The David Feldman Show He's talking politics And comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke If you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome to the mop up for October 29th, 2020. It's 6 p.m. in Manhattan, about 63 degrees and cloudy and wet. And that's just my lungs. I'm David Feldman. Mother Jones magazine is reporting that Facebook redesigned its algorithm to amplify right wing news back in 2017, which cost Mother Jones, a left wing magazine, more than six hundred thousand dollars that year alone in advertising revenue. Later on in the show, I'm going to show you how Facebook's business model is fraud. I'm going to show you a video screenshot of an ad that supposedly comes from Bruce Springsteen endorsing his new CBD oil. It's complete fraud. So we're not talking about Russian bots. We're just talking about fraud using Bruce Springsteen and a fake article from Rolling Stone to sell a CBD oil that Bruce Springsteen didn't endorse. The article never appeared in Rolling Stone. Drew Carey is supposedly endorsing the CBD oil. It is fraud. It has nothing to do with the elections. I'm not talking about Russian bots. I'm talking about Facebook refusing to screen the people who buy advertising. And we need a Federal Trade Commission. We need a Justice Department. And we need to break up Facebook because it's not just destroying our elections. It's just fraud. The business model for Facebook is fraud. By the way, my name is David Feldman. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Well, with the election five days away, a record shattering 76 million Americans have already voted. Have you voted? Donald Trump is hitting the campaign trail, saying if Biden wins, we should all expect the apocalypse. Uh, the halcyon days 
of the Obama apocalypse. That was a good apocalypse. Two people who attended President Donald Trump's rally last week in Gastonia, North Carolina, have tested positive for the coronavirus. Health officials in North Carolina are now asking anyone who attended that rally to get their head examined. The GOP reports that hackers have broken into the Wisconsin Republican Party's checking account and stolen $2.3 million that was earmarked for President Donald Trump to steal. Three people are dead after a man with a knife attacked a French church in Nice. This is the third attack in two months attributed to Muslim extremists. Many say the Muslim community in France has been inflamed when satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo once again published cartoon images of the prophet Muhammad. As we know, Muslims consider these images to be offensive, but Charlie Hebdo insists free speech laws in France protect their right to get people killed. Like, we need this in the middle of a pandemic, Charlie Hebdo. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu condemned the attack. Netanyahu said he felt obliged to speak out because nobody asked him. Cleared my throat. Chloe Kardashian, Kardashian, I got something in my throat. Excuse me for one second. Uh... Chloe Kardashian says she has tested positive for the coronavirus. Kardashian says her symptoms include coughing, shaking, vomiting, headaches, cold, hot flashes, along with a burning sensation inside her lungs, which coincidentally are the same symptoms I got watching Kim Kardashian West on Ellen this week defending her 40th birthday party on that private island with nobody wearing masks. What do you, I mean, you know, if you're not going to wear a mask, shut the F up about your COVID. The World Health Organization said Europe has broken a record with more than 1.5 million new confirmed cases of COVID just last week. 1.5 million new confirmed cases of COVID just last week. And that brings it up to 10 million cases since the pandemic began. So I'll ask Henry, who's coming up later. That seems like they they have one tenth of their COVID cases just last week. On the positive side, it could have been a lot worse for Europe, much worse for Europe. Thankfully, Boris Johnson gave them Brexit because we know how well he's doing with COVID. JetBlue will no longer block off middle seats to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. That's because of a 95% plunge in air travel. That's a really good idea, JetBlue, because you know what really increases air travel? Everyone in this country dying from the coronavirus. United Airlines and American Airlines, from the beginning, have refused to block off the middle seat. They argue that ventilation systems and air filters make planes safe without social distancing. Yeah, that's why every time I fly coach, it smells like Bill Barr's car seat. Jerry Falwell Jr. has sued Liberty University, alleging the evangelical school founded by his father damaged 
Jerry Falwell Jr.'s reputation, Falwell specifically blamed a course that his wife took at Liberty University called Blowing Freshmen in Their Dormitories 101. Apparently, rumor has it, they're saying that's what Ms. Falwell was doing. And can you blame her? Can you blame her? Well, a little later on, we're going to be talking with either Susan Collins or Melania. No, we're going to be talking with Senator Susan Collins. I see her in the green room. I cannot wait to talk to Senator Susan Collins, who's running a tough, tough campaign up there in Maine. But first, I want to tell everybody that this show is being sponsored. We have a a sponsor, just like Alex Jones. I have a sponsor. And let's go to Henry Huckamacki in Michigan. Now, Henry is an immunobiologist, so you have to trust him. Henry, this portion of the David Feldman Show is brought to us by whom? David, this portion of the show is brought to you by Feldos. Uh Do you feel like taking your medical advice from politicians rather than scientists? Well, why settle for some low-level politicians when you can take your advice from the highest politician in the land, Donald John Trump? Yes. Now, David, remind me, what, what drug was Donald Trump suggesting that everybody take to prevent getting covid uh, the, uh, the thing you put in your fish tank. That's right. Hydroxychloroquine. It's delicious. That's right. What do we have in Feldos? 40% more hydroxychloroquine than the other leading cereal brands. That really is a, a breed apart from all of the others. No cereal will make your heart race like Feldos will. Henry's an immunobiologist. He can't say this, but I will. Feldos cures COVID-19. Take it from me, Alex Jones, forget whatever Alex Jones says, Feldo cereal will cure and prevent COVID-19. That's right, David. And now with your order of a box of Feldos, you also get a free Scott Atlas decoder ring. This decoder ring will allow even the most scientifically articulate person to be able to decipher what Scott Atlas, who is far from scientifically articulate, is trying to say. You'll be able to unravel the mysteries of the universe using just this decoder ring. Order now. Back to your regularly scheduled programming. By, by the way, we have more hydro. Chlorox, what's it called? I, I, Hydroxychloroquine, David. 40% more than the other leading brand and 60% less sugar. What does that mean, Henry? You know, you can satiate your sweet tooth without actually adding the calories of sugar. We, we've done that with the hydroxychloroquine. It's a win-win. You get the hydroxychloroquine and cut the calories. What more could you want? And this is great. I mean, Alex Jones is on Spotify with Joe Rogan. The FTC isn't home. We can. I'm telling you, I've cured COVID-19. The Federal Trade Commission, they, they would come after me if I were lying. Right, Henry? Oh, you would think so. You'd think that in an administration that is so pro-regulation, that really wants to bolster our institutions, that if there was ever a time in American history that they would be really stringent about false claims and media outlets, that it would be now under an administration, like I said, that is so pro-regulation and pro-consumer safety. Yes. Feldos. Feldos. I am going to share with everybody on YouTube and in Zoom 
something that I captured off my website that is so outrageous. Uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, I'll describe it to you or subscribe to my YouTube channel so you could see this. This is the fraud that Facebook conducts. This is the fraud. Forget the elections. So you can see this is a screen capture of my desktop. You can see Facebook. Henry, what do you see here? You see an arrow pointing to an ad. Yes. Uh, Springsteen under investigation from learnrollerblade.com. Okay, this is an ad. Somebody bought this ad from Facebook. So let, let's continue. So I decided to click on this. I keep getting this ad with, you know, and I love Bruce Springsteen. I'm a Jersey guy. And let's see what happens. It takes me. I click on the ad. So now Facebook made money. They made about three bucks because I clicked on the ad. And it takes us to Rolling Stone magazine. And it's the cover of Rolling Stone. And it says, Big Pharma in outrage over Bruce Springsteen's latest business venture. He fires back with this. And we see the cover of Rolling Stone. And then we see an article by Alice Palmer from Rolling Stone, Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. Rolling Stone magazine. In an insightful one-on-one interview, one of the world's most popular musicians reveals how he wouldn't be here without CBD. This is a lie. This is not from Rolling Stone magazine. This is fake. This is a fake ad where they're using Bruce Springsteen's name and Rolling Stone to sell CBD oil. And it, it gets worse. This is a quote from Bruce Springsteen. When I started this whole thing back in 2015, it really was just part of a passion project. I developed organic green CBD, and then it claims that Bruce is going around the country promoting his product, Organic Green CBD. Now you scroll down and Drew Carey has a testimonial. Tom Hanks calls it the best CBD. Randy Jackson calls it the best CBD. Halle Berry calls it the best CBD. Organic Green CBD, try it for yourself. Limited time offers for our readers. And it's all on a phony Rolling Stone magazine website with fake comments. That's the fraud that Facebook engages in. That's the fraud. They were testifying before the Senate this week. And they're so busy worrying about the elections. The business model for Facebook is fraud. For them to say, well, you know, we can't monitor every ad that people take, then you know what? Then you're committing fraud. It's BS that you can't monitor every ad. You just don't want to. So they they are using Bruce Springsteen's name and Rolling Stone's name and Drew Carey's name and Halle Berry's name and Tom Hanks' name to sell a CBD oil that Rolling Stone, Bruce Springsteen never endorsed And Facebook collects a fee off this. Forget the elections. Forget what Facebook is doing to our elections. They are ripping the American people off. Follow me on Facebook. Well, Henry, we have a big show coming up that I want to talk about in a second. But I would be remiss if we didn't go to Kenny Bug, Maine, first to talk with the senator from Maine. Please welcome Senator Susan Collins. (laughs) 
Senator Susan Collins, are you there? Senator. Oh, give me a fucking break, you little pussy. Oh, it's me, David Feldman, not not Henry Huckamacki. Tom! Senator Hello? Susan, are you okay, oh, Senator? Oh. Hello, David. It's been so long since I talked to you last. I hear ice cubes in the background, Senator Susan Collins. You had a pretty tough debate last night with Sarah Gideon, your opponent. <sighs> how, how do you think it went? Oh, well, give me a fucking break, you little pussy. Oh, okay. I grew up in Caribou, Maine. Yes. Where men are men and the caribou are women. <laughs> I've heard that about Caribou, Maine, and their women. Yes. So yeah, how do you think? How do you think you did going against Sarah Gideon in that debate? I wiped the floor with that little shit's Emily's List bean box, you crackhead. Mm. You know, you're, the, the election is five days away, Senator. Are you, do you mind if I ask, are you drinking again? Of course not. Oh, good. Oh, <coughs> all you Manhattan Jews can just... Suck on my grizzled clitoris. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's necessary for you to talk that way. I'm sure it's. Hold not. on, Mama needs another glass of her thunder chicken. <laughs> I I think you should. This is not the time to be doing what you're doing, Senator. Uh, oh, blow it out your asshole. Okay. One question that seemed to trip you up during the debate last night concerned masks, wearing masks. Why are you against a mask mandate? Because nobody tells a fucking Mainer when to put on a mask. Okay. All right. Just like Mainers don't have a law against stuffing lobster rolls with their own excrement and selling it to tourists. <laughs> you just gave away the secret ingredient. Now it's no Mama, longer a secret Mama ingredient. Mama Susie says, fuck that noise. Uh, what, is, what is that? I didn't hear what you said. Fuck that noise. Oh, okay. Now, the Boston Globe, which is right on your doorstep in Massachusetts, the Boston Globe just came out with an editorial saying, Boston Globe just came out with an editorial The Boston Globe just came out with an editorial saying, quote, Susan Collins is no longer a good fit for Maine. Well, you know what I say. What do you say? Fuck Boston. Okay. The bunch of mass holes. Ooh, ooh. These hyannis port pricks with their, I'm going to park my car in the garage. <laughs> 
Okay. And they're fucking retards. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Get out of my yard, gibberish. Well, listen, you know, a lot of, well, you don't need may, uh, the votes of people in Massachusetts. So, uh, but, you know, the Boston Globe is a well-respected newspaper and they said in the editorial entitled Susan Collins is no longer a good fit for Maine they they say that uh you're not a good fit they, they say know what is a good fit I'm for sorry Maine. what was the question I'm sorry do you know what a what is a good fit for Maine no I don't what my pussy and the Glomar Explorer. Okay, Senator, I think you're I, I think you're a little upset over the debate. Okay, the the Glomar Explorer. Are you referring to the deep sea drill ship that Howard Hughes built to help the CIA recover the Soviet submarine K one twenty nine? Where the fuck is Mama's Mama Susie's gin fizz, Tom? Tom, get your ass over here before I empty your diaper on your fat, ugly face again, you gimpy-dicked bum fuck. Oh, I don't think that's uh, good luck. Uh, Tom is your husband, right? Tom Collins. Okay. Well, let me ask you, let's catastrophize for a second, Senator Sue Collins. What are you going to do? If, God forbid, you lose next week. I'm going to suck on a fatty and read Peter Blatty. Now fuck off, you fucking idiot. <laughs> okay. Suck on a fatty and read Peter Blatty. The, uh... That's all the time I have for today. Okay. I have to go now, Jaime. Besides, it, 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 my David. bottle is empty. Okay. Okay, thank you, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, everybody. Everybody. Susan Collins, and I approve this. Okay, we didn't, the the audience was applauding over you. How did you wrap that up? What what did you say? I'm Susan Collins, and I approve this. Oh, okay. I think you need to. Uh... Oh, you're pathetic. Okay. Thank you, Senator Susan Collins. For Go your... fuck yourself. Okay. Thank you. I Give me a fucking break. Okay. Ha- have some coffee. Nobody and... wants to fuck me. I, I, they do. You're, they do. And there'll be plenty of time for that uh, after the election. Okay, I promise you. Thank you, Senator Susan Collins. Thank you for joining us. Well, let us now go back to Wisconsin, to Michigan. Thank you, Senator Susan Collins. That was fantastic. Thank you, David. It's an honor. And a privilege. Thank you. Well, uh, let's go to Michigan, Upper Peninsula, where, where Henry Huckamacki is standing by. And we are doing a very special COVID Town Squares live on Zoom this Saturday night, October 31st at 9.30 p.m. with the irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamacki. Listen, folks, this pandemic is reaching levels we had feared for months. We had warned you, and by we, I mean Henry and Irritable had warned you for months that this thing was going to get worse. The two of them have been on top of COVID-19. 
way, way back. So this Saturday at 930, while social distancing from the trick-or-treaters that we normally would have just turned the lights off for and pretended we weren't home, we have a show to entertain and inform you with about all the latest on the science behind COVID. This show will be a Halloween special, and we want to celebrate with you. Tickets for this show will be available for as low as $6.66. We have lowered the price for COVID Town Squares. We recognize that people, well, it's a tough economy. So we've lowered the price to $6.66, 666. But there are higher donation levels available and they have fun perks for you. But before I tell you the tiers, I just want to remind you that we're in this together. Let's make sure to have solidarity with one another. And even if you aren't able or willing to come to the show, please share the info with as many people as you possibly can. You can get the links through my website. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Click on the pay-per-view tab, and it'll take you to Eventbrite where you can buy tickets to attend COVID Town Squares this Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. Or you can go directly to Eventbrite and search for COVID Town Squares number five. Number five, Henry. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, David. We've done five of these. And so these are the tiers. We have a scary low entry price this time for just $6.66. We have the OG ticket tier. I think that's original gangster. That's at $15. And if you buy a $15 ticket in return for your additional donation, you'll get a postcard from me, David Feldman. I have... uh, I thought I have one sitting around, but I will send you a a, a thank you postcard suitable for cleaning Salisbury steak out of your teeth. The $30 tier is our super generous tier, and you'll get a, a postcard from David Feldman, plus a funny credit at the end of the show. So I want to show you what Frankie C does at the end of COVID Town Squares. And we play these on YouTube for people who subscribe to the COVID Town Square YouTube channel. But if you buy this tier, look how beautiful these credits. Frankie C does these. And again, for you people listening to this as a podcast, I'll describe David's banana peeler, Atlantis Johnson. Thank you. That's a credit. And it's beautiful, suitable for framing. Frankie C's herbal provision provided by Wendy Garfield. The next Kathleen's limo driver, imbecile, inspiring to moron. I guess that's the name of somebody who came. Benji's personal joint roller, Robert Butterfield. I think he was also the donkey fluffer. Dan Frankenberger's nose hair is trimmed by Jennifer Pelkey. Daily mind massage conducted by Senor Brainwash. These are really well done. Bunion removal by Ryan Refner. Ryan Refner. Pimp slapping done by the Invisible Ninja. That's not nice. We don't pimp slap. And Zoom Room Feng Shui consultant, imbecile, aspiring to moron. And it goes on like that. So if you want to get your name in the credit, the credits, then you would do that tier. And it's suitable for framing to see your name in those credits. 
At $50, you get the Sausage Fest tier. I think that's Sausage Party tier. And well, you know, David, slip, slip of the tongue. Freudian yeah, well, slip. that's a good sausage party if it's good tasting sausage. And for $50, you get the Sausage Party tier where you get the postcard, the credit at the end of the show, and you get to attend our next rehearsal. You get to see, that's why it's called the sausage party tier. You get to attend our next rehearsal. So you get to see not only how the sausage is made, you also get to see how it's eaten, <laughs> digested, and excreted. And most importantly, how the fecal plumes are neutralized. We'll get to fecal plumes in, in a second. Uh, so we have two tiers at $100. In addition to everything from the lower tiers... You choose the say it and spray it ticket and you get your very own bottle. You get your very own bottle of look at this Plumex Plumex. What's what's in Plumex? Henry? Yeah, we've got dichlorodiethyl sulfide, David, which is a. You know, a fancy way of saying a mustard gas, but, you know, maybe not that great for the lungs. And even though it's called mustard gas, probably shouldn't put it on your hot dogs. But, uh, you know, it neutralizes those fecal plumes like like nobody's business. And you're good to go. You're good to you're good go. To go. You're Big good problem go. with COVID-19, fecal plumes. You don't want to catch it from a fecal plume. We're selling our very own fecal plume neutralizer. In all seriousness... Frankie C does the art for our show, and we are giving away actual fecal plume neutralizers that, uh, for some reason, some of you have requested. So we've added them to the tiers. I think it's pretty funny. If and oh yeah, yeah, you'll get a souvenir from the show. I mean, how, what more could you want? If and when you ever have guests over and they use your bathroom. How great will it be for them to spray the fecal plume neutralizer? Henry mixed this batch up himself. It's called Plumex. Uh, not only that, for the say it and spray it, for $100, you get a, a bottle of Plumex. But Henry will also make a phone call to an anti-masker on your behalf and use science to convince them that wearing a mask is essential. Okay. Or there's another $100 tier. It's the turds and the bees ticket. I hate this. Turd. Who came up with turds and the bees? Say it whoever, spray. whoever came up with it, David, was an absolute genius. The turds and the bees. Just great. Say it and spray it is clever. Turds and the bees. Not funny. That's where you get the Plumex. And Henry will save you the awkwardness of giving the talk to a person of your choice. And by talk, we mean the turds and the birds and the bees, the birds and the bees. You have a teenage son or daughter who you feel should know about where babies come from or where they don't come from. How about an anti-science uncle who needs to learn about where babies don't come from? Henry will give them a call and set the record straight. And lastly, that's a, that's a good tier. That's the the turds and the bees tier for a hundred dollars. You get the Plumex and Henry will teach somebody about the birds and the bees. And in America, I think we could, we could use that Henry. And lastly, our top tier is Hank's shank, where in addition to all of the perks we've already discussed, you'll get a handcrafted finished style knife 
made by none other than Henry Huckamacki himself. Do you have a, a knife that you can show us, Henry? Now, yeah, again, for our, next to me, David. For our podcast listeners, Henry will describe this. I'll really, describe this it. isn't a joke. This is this is really beautiful. Look what look what he, you, he's made here. This is really amazing. You've still got the Plumex up, so I can't okay. see what I'm there showing people. Is. There okay. it is. Yeah, so we've got uh, 80 CRV2 carbon steel blade. This one has a zebra wood handle. I've got ones uh, in the works with other wood handles. And uh, a wooden sheath of my own design. This one is made from Michigan uh, black cherry wood, uh, which is, yeah, from from the UP. So From the Upper Peninsula. My, that's right. From the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, slides right in there. It's heavy because it's all wood, but it's one of a kind. So all right, you buy that ticket tier, you'll get one with, uh, you know, I'll have a couple of different choices of woods for you to pick from for the for the handle. OK, again, I don't ask you for much on this show. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the pay-per-view button and tickets are as low as six dollars and sixty six cents. We're trying to open this up to more people. And if you can't make it for $6.66, buy a ticket and don't come. No, buy a ticket and send it to a, a friend. We have a great time doing the COVID town scores. Henry will be back later interviewing China and Taiwan expert Grace Jackson. That's right. And we're, we're going to open up with some news from the UK first. But yeah, Grace will be on in about an hour from now. So, OK, I'll see you in an hour. When we come back, we will talk to animal behaviorist Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. But first, I need to hear Mike Steinel. I love this song. I, I, I love this song and I have to find it first. This is his song about billionaires. Did I lose it? What is wrong with me? Here we go. I can listen to this. This is about uh, billionaires. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job Or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes I am
Professor Mike Steinell, jazz trumpeter, composer, educator. He's been a member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty since 1987. He's the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, as well as building a jazz vocabulary. And if you want to listen to more of his original music, go to Spotify and Download the Mike Steinel Quintet. He has a new CD that people can buy over at MikeSteinel.com. It's called Song and Dance, featuring Rosanna Eckert. And I can listen to Mike Steinel all day. I can. We can all listen to Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. If she will unmute herself, she is the animal behaviorist as well as the author of Raised by Animals, you sent me an amazing picture of Senor Buttons. He looks like he had work done. (laughs) Yeah, well, unfortunately, now we're heading to the vet tomorrow. It's a life full of adventure with this kitty. How old Um, is he? He's 17. He turned 17 in September. And, uh, but he, you know, he plays every day and he... I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty young and spry. I mean, he makes a lot of noises as he's moving around, like, you know, and I feel some mornings and some days he makes a lot more noises like, boy, this is a lot of effort just being a cat. Mm -hmm. Um, And he sometimes misses the chair that he, (laughs) it's not very high off the ground, but he missed the other day Uh and. I know. And, you know, I have steps for him to get up on the bed. And he, unlike humans who don't, who feel somehow bad about modifying what they can do as they get older, it seems that other animals kind of, uh, you know, slither into that phase a little more gracefully. I'm not sure. We learn from animals. Things come very naturally to animals. I remember in a previous life when I lived in Los Angeles and I had cats and dogs and I was surrounded by nature, I would get up in the morning, make coffee, and a a squirrel would visit me and stretch in front of me. (laughs) And then I'd look down and my cat would be waking up, one of my three cats, and she would stretch. They would literally yawn and stretch and the dogs would stretch. Mm They know instinctively to do yoga. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because uh, we get told, oh, don't sit in the same position for a really long time or don't sleep in the, this position or that position. And, and, and then when you look at other animals, you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, he, he stays contorted, you know, for hours. Why is, he, why is his neck not stiff? Um, right. You know, and... I've seen him stretch. I've had a different experience with a squirrel here. The squirrel attacked the screen, screaming at 
senor buttons mouth open little pink tongue sticking out just bah! and you know and and senor buttons only sees birds as something most interesting to pursue and he just is sort of looking at this squirrel like what what is your problem like what is happening and the squirrel was just on the screen <laughs> And, right. you know, and finally, I guess, realized, oh, we're just not we're not a problem. Right. Him, <laughs> Me and Senor Buttons are not a problem um, and, and not to, you know, waste any more of its effort on making us go away because we're not going anywhere. And squirrels so. are smart. Of course. I mean, loads of animals are smart. I mean, squirrels. So squirrels have this fun thing that's happening right now where I am. So they're burying their nuts for over winter and they're, they, you know, he's coming with his mouth and he to put he or she puts it in the ground and then, you know, really getting it in there. Now they remember the location of most of the, probably about 80% of the food that they store. Uh, and they even can, remember the order in which they put it. So they'll take the the oldest things out first and then the freshest things last. But other squirrels watch where another squirrel is burying its nuts. And then as soon as that one runs off, I've seen one come and dig it up and take it and move it somewhere else. And then I always imagine at some point over the winter when that squirrel is like, gosh, I knew, I thought, I thought for sure I put it here. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I know I put it here, you know, and sorry, I don't mean to put it's my my fancy new microphone. Uh -huh. so, it's good. Um, so, you know, I, I just sort of imagine like, you know how I I, I thought I put my keys here. Right. I, I know I put my keys here. And so um, it's kind of funny being the observer and going, oh, somebody just took your nut. They took it and they just put it somewhere else. Um, so, you know, squirrels are very smart, great spatial memory, much better than humans. And, uh, and, and so, but, but, and, and it's never done it again, you know, so really quick to discern your problem. You're not a problem. Okay. I, I won't spend my time. Well, I am going to ask you a question that I don't believe is true, but I, you know, I, we have Emil Guillermo journalist and host of the PETA podcast. He's on yes. the show later. I get emails from PETA all the time. I believe in PETA. This looked like it was fake. Coconuts. PETA is trying to stop slave labor. Apparently, they are using monkeys to pick coconuts somewhere. Oh, well, because they can get up the trees. Right. But, but they're but can you use monkeys as slaves and, and cage them and then hire? I mean, not hire, but force them to pick coconuts. Well, there's yeah. So there's I mean, think about even um, falconry. Right. I mean, some would argue that that is the same thing. You you basically have the falcon. It's trained uh, and it goes and it brings the food to you. And then in exchange, you feed the right the the falcon so falconry has a, a a long history a human history i don't know um what the situation is i'm not i mean i'm not surprised right because it would be much easier for the the monkeys to get up 
to retrieve the coconuts, they most likely uh, to open them themselves would have to smash them on rocks or, or something else. They, they, I've seen a, a chimpanzee shuck a coconut with its teeth, but you know, um, but how much that happens naturally, I don't know. Well, this was sent to me um, by one, one of the animals in the chat room sent this to me. Mm-hmm. This is from the New York Post, October 28th, 2020. Costco pulling Costco pulling products allegedly made with forced monkey labor. Sure. I mean, they they're it's. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they abuse the monkeys, if there's collars on them of some kind, if they've done other things that are um, harmful uh, psychologically and physically to the primates in order for them to be doing this. Yeah. Right? Um, you want me to sh- so, I'll, I'll share it with you. You can see they, there's that it's, you can see it's in Thailand. Oh yeah. So you see he's on a, um, Do you see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, in general, right, when we use other animals to do things, um, you can almost guarantee that the conditions aren't going to be what we would consider to be humane. So those are macaques. Yeah. They're a type of macaque. I'm not sure which one. Look at that. They're being left out mm-hmm. in, in the macaque, rain. Probably. In cages. In yeah. Thailand, then this is a, a macaque climbing a, a palm tree to get the coconuts down and mm-hmm. knocking them down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is done yeah. in Thailand. And yeah. Peta's- so um, it's not fake. I'm I'm certain of that. And I'm certain that they're not cared for well. And it's not a hey, it's not like um, the monkeys signed up, you know, to to do this job. Because they wanted to help. Right. And so Costco will stop selling Thai-made coconut products. From what I understand, Costco, of those big box stores, they seem to treat their employees much better than Walmart does. They provide benefits and a livable wage. Costco is a better company than Walmart if you have to choose between the two. So somehow I had the impression that there were the that Walmart also owned another big box store that's like Sam's. the BJ's or the oh Sam's that's the one okay yeah. so I I wanted to make sure I was correct um, yeah no I, I actually have a, a friend uh, whose sister in law works for Costco and has worked for them for many years and loves working for them yeah. as a company um, you know it it was like that also for a while for Home Depot I don't know what they're doing now but um, but they they used to. Um, well, I, I think the guy who founded Home Depot is a big Trump supporter, but he's no longer associated um, with. Yeah, well, years ago, they they had a good salary for their cashiers and benefits, you know, things that that were not happening kind of at that time. Um, I have no idea now or the politics, but um yeah, they, yeah. Uh, I, I'm a broken record on this, and then I want to show you this clip sure. that, that will make you happy. Oh, good. Uh, when we think of competition, we think Walmart is competing against Costco. Walmart is competing against its employees. Mm. Most of these retail outlets, most businesses in America, they don't compete against somebody who's selling a similar product or providing a similar service 
They compete against their employees. They want to keep labor costs down. Right. They, 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 they bully the people underneath them because mm-hmm. they lack the, the savvy to go into the marketplace and deliver a better product. So it's all about keeping costs down. It's cowardice. It's unoriginal. It's uncreative. Right. And it's incompetence. Well, and I would love to add something that we we can take from other animals and other species in ecology, which is that um, in 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 a, in in a given system, you don't you can never have overlap. Like you cannot have it's not sustainable to have two stores selling exactly the same products. And so there has to be, that would not happen. Two species cannot utilize exactly the same resources and have exactly the same function and, and need exactly the same things. And both of them survive only one will. Um, and you know, and so you have to have a niche, right? You have to have your own special take on something. And those are the ones that survive and don't need to resort to, I think some of the things you're talking about. Um, so, um, but yes, um, I don't know. Competition is a very interesting, uh, sort of, uh, topic, you know, when it comes to thinking about animal behavior, human behavior, and even economics, what we see in economics, um, the Nash equilibrium, which came from economics we use in, in ecology. What's it called? The Nash equilibrium? Mm-hmm. What is yeah. that? It's a game theory, game theory, right? So how you predict how individuals will behave under different scenarios and decision-making rules um, that we, that we um, use in economics, we also use in, in behavior, um, in animal behavior. So, so it's quite uh, informative. And, and for some um, animal behavior studies, they, they didn't realize that some of the same economic principles would apply. (laughs) Um, You know, my favorite is that we have this belief that animals don't understand uh, other animals don't have a sense of currency or or value of money. Right. But in fact, they quickly learn how to assign value to something. Right. We just made paper. It didn't used to be paper. It was something else. Um, and it didn't used to be coins. It was before coins. There was another way to track value and to exchange goods for, you know, of, of a similar value. And so uh, animals, other animals, very quickly, you can teach them about currency and money. Did you write somewhere? I think I read in one of your books that animals with the currency will look at another animal lacking the currency and share it. Oh, well, so there's difference between sharing and exchanging for something you want. So, so yes, they will, they will share. So there's been some parrots, social parrots that have shared um, excess resources with those that don't have it. Um, But in terms of currency, there was a pretty famous uh, experiment gone wrong with capuchins where they taught, we were trying to see if they could get the concept of, of money and they gave them tokens and they could use those tokens to get grapes or other items from a vending machine that they wanted and they cost different things. And they very quickly learned that they needed to use the tokens to exchange it for another item and that different items had different prices. And one female, it didn't take long, ran out of tokens and they 
observed her having sex with a male who then gave her his tokens. And then she went and got grapes. Hmm. So that, that's, then they, <laughs> that's they what separates these. us from the animal kingdom. <laughs> At least we know that never happens among humans. <laughs> or it's not for grapes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, and I all, they immediately stopped the uh, experiment because they were horrified that they'd essentially just created prostitution. <laughs> and wow. I thought, well, how did they how did they decide on the value? Like how many mm-hmm. tokens? Was it one token? Will the price of, of that go up um, over time? Especially if you're not that fond of that male, will you charge certain males more right. and other males less? Um, I thought it was fascinating. I'm not a fan of using animals in laboratory experiments, uh, right? But but this is sort of an interesting um just because they don't have money and they don't have the you know bank accounts doesn't mean that other animals don't exchange things so we don't know to what extent you can turn a, an animal into a prostitute <laughs> they stopped the no. study well i mean essentially it's it's a, a we could say that's i mean i would say that even an orb wave spider it's some level of prostitution right the male provides a meal for the female and she allows him to mate with him right now some males try to cheat they wrap up they eat the item and then they just wrap up the skeleton of the insect and wrap that to try to fool her or they don't even bother with getting a, a food item they just wrap a twig and try that okay and females if they discover that this item is not food or it's eaten food they terminate copulation immediately so do they kill him not in that species in the species where you have those hyper aggressive females and there's um killing of males males are actively trying to avoid death they are not suicidal there's been some scientists who said oh they just commit they willingly throw themselves at the mercy to die no they don't do they They, know they're going to be killed no they active well no because they actively try to avoid it same with praying mantis only about 30 percent of males actually get killed in that scenario so that means 70 percent of them figured out how not to get killed and and it's very careful approach in the case of like redback spiders, the males will engage in foreplay with the females for up to 110 minutes. And that's all to just calm her down and make her like tap, tap, rub, rub, please, please. Uh, you know, are you happy? Are you happy? And they look for signs of aggression, just like human males, I think, tend to want to avoid angry females. Females want to avoid angry males. Right. We you look for cues that tell us you're dangerous. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, 110 minutes of tap, tap, rub, rub is not because the male is just interested in doing all of that. He's trying to calm her down so that when he goes in to mate, he doesn't die. And there's certain behaviors that he's looking for. Relaxation, calming, Right. All kinds of cues. So uh, I think that the benefit for us as humans is that if we do it wrong, your mate's not going to eat you and kill you, right? In general, we hope. So, Hang on for one second. Okay. So what is the male attracted to 
the, the praying mantis, is he attracted to the female that is most excitable, that requires the most foreplay? Or is he more attracted to a sluggish female <laughs> praying well, mantis? Well, so I will tell you a little story about a praying mantis. And now I know why they're praying, by the way. <laughs> right? Please don't kill me. But, okay, so in general, among insects, males will often look for the largest females because they have to either provide food or do something. They're making an investment also. And larger females tend to lay more eggs, so you get more more bang for your buck. And or more bucks that, for your, okay, go ahead. Or more sorry. bucks for your bang. That's deers. Of course. So go ahead. Okay. So, um, so I've watched praying mantis and it's fascinating. It can take hours before the male will approach. And this one male, it ended up clearly being the male because of how I found them the next day. <laughs> um, but he watched her and she ate, she ate a couple of insects, Right. So she fed and he would start to approach. And and the thing when praying. So hang on for one second. Does she eat him after she kills him? No, only 30 percent of them die. 30 percent. They have a neat little trick, the males, um, to help them finish the job, even as they're being eaten. But. The point is, is oh, that so they she, do get eaten if they sometimes die. Sometimes thirty percent. Oh, it, yeah, that's how they die. Is they just are eaten by the female, right? While they're copulating. So, if I were a male praying mantis, I would take her out to the soup plantation <laughs> or you know the sizzler and all you well, can eat. Well, this is what that male did. He was watching the female after she'd eaten. He started his approach. If a female praying mantis looks in the direction of a male, he freezes. Right. Because they tend to look at things they're going to hunt. <laughs> and then he would wait till her face turned the other direction and approach a little closer. And then they 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 flip when they make the, the decision. All right. I'm going to I'm going to go for it. They flip upside down first. OK, because the female, if she's going to kill him, starts with his head. So now his head is at her bottom and his bottom is at her head. And then and then eventually, you know, you find them turned the other way. Now, if he's miscalculated while he's copulating with her, she you know, we think about people biting our heads off. But this literally she literally bites his head off. But Talk about giving head, but go ahead. I shouldn't have done that joke. I shouldn't have. It's not giving. Oh, yeah, he's giving right now. Please keep it. I apologize. It's the chat room that ruins this show. I know. I'm not looking. I know, but I'm I'm competing with the chat room. Don't compete. Okay, so so here's the thing. His nervous system that controls reproduction is not in his brain, in his head. It's further down. So he can continue even as she's eating perilously close to, you know, yeah. So So, wait a second. So she can be eating his head. Mm -hmm. And he's still mating with her. It's not a problem. This sounds, I think Keith Carradine almost died this way. (laughs) I don't know who that is. Or or the guy from In Excess. I mean, it just sounds like. But males don't want this to happen. So they watch the female, they calculate. And just about 30% of them on average miscalculate. 
No. They, I, you know. David Carradine, I, I stand correct. Um, sorry. Um, that's... So. And, and, and so if you survive... Yes. Is that it? Do you date again? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I had some bad relationships. No, he, he usually goes on to find another female and he's got to do this whole process all over. She's now, you know, lays her eggs and the whole thing is, you know. Is, How long do um, they live usually praying mantis? That I don't know. I mean, the praying mantis, I don't know. They could live a little while, you know, long for like an insect. Is I mean, there, um, this is a serious question. Do they have homosexuality? In the praying mantis? Oh, I don't know about praying mantis, but insects are notorious for being, you know, having sort of homosexual adventures, mostly because the males don't wait to find out if what they're actually leaping on is a male or a female. They leap and ask questions later. Um, I would of, definitely be a gay praying mantis. Would you? Yeah, I would. Why do you say that? I just think it's a better lifestyle. It's safer. <laughs> I, I think you, I think... In terms of your mortality, I think you have a better sure. chance of, uh, well, let me show you a clip and then I want to ask you about Colorado. Okay. It starts off, we showed this on Tuesday's show, but it's it's kind of inspiring oh, yeah. on so many. Re so this is a, a house, an apartment building in Brooklyn and a gentleman's Apartment oh. is on fire and oh. this cat, the cat was on fire too. And the cat is on fire. And in the middle of this, you have all these firefighters and residents not worried about their possessions. They're worried yeah. about this little kitty cat. And they looks like they missed him though when they went to catch him. Yeah. But look at if that doesn't inspire you about human beings, especially Brooklyn, look how happy. They all are. Yeah. I mean, the whole apartment building was fixated on saving this cat. Sure. And it does give you hope, doesn't it, about humans? Absolutely. I think what's, you know, for the average person, right, clearly not the people who are, are enslaving macaques, but for the average person, when we see another creature in distress even another person in distress. We, we feel empathy, right? This comes from, we have mirror neurons in our brain and those are the things that allow us to connect, to feel empathy with each other and to essentially put yourself in the other's shoes. Right. That is what's happening. And so what was clear was like the cat is sort of, like, I, I don't know what to do and starts to back up, but it can't. And, and here is, it has to take this leap of faith. Um, and I think that we see this all the time. Firefighters, other people go rescue cats up in trees, rescue right. bears up in trees. You know, animals get into sticky situations just like people do. And you look at that animal and go, what were you thinking? Just like people, you go, what were you thinking? But we, we, the average person, I still believe is a good person and tries to help others when they see them in distress. I, I don't know if anybody's seen this footage, but at Lion Country Safari in Florida, many, many years ago, there was uh, the chimps on that um, island surrounded by water 
were bullying uh, one chimp who had no escape except to try to go in the water and they can't swim. And then this chimp was drowning in the water. And uh, I think it was a firefighter dove in and rescued the chimp, pulled it just like you would a human and rested it on the beach of the, of the Island. And it kind of coughed up water and, and it, it put it there. And even the other chimps like stopped with the bullying and were like, what just happened? And this fire, uh, this person, this man started to swim back and the chimp turned around and went, Ooh, you know, so, so they recognize when we've helped them too. And I think that that's a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, we have to go. Uh, Professor Ben Burgess just joined us. Jill of Canada and yes. Phil have two questions. I'll read them and then okay. we'll answer them next week. How about that? Oh, okay. Phil asks, are there any ethical sources for coconut products? Okay. I'll know. have to look that up. I don't right. know offhand, right? Because I don't, I don't um, buy a ton of that, so... And Jill of Canada writes, Dr. Verdelin, I recently saw two blue jays on the ground beneath my window. One seemed to have hit a window and died. Mm. The other was lying next to the first with one wing splayed out, looking mangled. I just stared in shock for maybe 30 seconds. When I moved to take a picture of them, they both flew off. It was a cloudy day, very close to the house, so no apparent risk mm. of attack from the air. No obvious reason why they'd be playing dead. Um, well, so I would say no obvious reason to you if in fact that's what they were doing. I've, I'm not, I've never known Blue Jays to do that. So that's something interesting I'll look into and maybe have more of a detailed answer next time. But sometimes we don't necessarily know what the threat is to other species. So if they were in fact playing dead, um, they might've had babies nearby. It depends on where you are. Um, if you're in Canada, then it's too late kind of in the season for that, um, potentially. So there might have been a hawk or, or other and some other, um, you know, threat. But right. I will investigate that a little bit more. I'm very curious to because I didn't know there are some species that feign injury uh, to get attention away from their offspring or a nest. Or like bone spurs. They feign bone spurs to... <laughs> You know. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a bird that acts like it has a broken wing, um, right. you know, to draw the attention away from its offspring. Right. So I will I will investigate that. Fantastic. Doc, fantastic. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is the author of Raised by Animals. Follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. And we have to talk about a special Saturday night. Let's, yeah. I'll, I will talk with you tomorrow to plan a Saturday okay. night with you. Thank you, Fantastic. Dr. Jennifer Vernon. We'll be back with Professor Ben Burgess. I want to ask him about Glenn Greenwald leaving The Intercept, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party. And then I want to talk to you about Walmart and why it should be nationalized. We'll be back with Give Them an Arguments, Professor Ben Burgess. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet.
You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Professor Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin. He's the host of Give Them an Argument, which is also the name of his, is it penultimate? No, his last prior something book, uh, Give Them an Argument, a great book. And his current tome is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. And I want to thank you for having me on your show. I got a great response to your show, being on your show. Yeah, I think you convinced some people to vote for Trump. (laughs) You know what? Here's an example of sometimes you need somebody to force you to do something. So it was Saturday when we recorded. You wanted me to be the the lefty from way back, the guy who, you know, says he wants to vote for Bernie, but underneath it all, you know, he's voting for Trump. It's a character that I love playing, but I didn't want to do it. I was scared. I didn't think your audience would understand this, but you did a great, you, you made me do it and it turned out great. It was, I had a lot of fun being an no, I, I think I think people really liked it. It was yeah. good. Yeah. There are people who think I'm serious. Uh, <laughs> Which is even funnier. I, I know. Awesome. <laughs> I know. I was telling a friend about my stand-up act that it only works if one-third of the audience thinks I'm serious. It's just people laugh harder. Do, does this generation take people more literally? I always am amazed by how you can just tell a bald face lie to somebody. For the sake of humor, and they go, really? Yeah. Are people more I mean, gullible? I don't, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a generational thing. It's as much as just that. Uh, I mean, who knows, right? But like my my best guess is that it might just be that in twenty twenty, um, you know, because the technology is different. You know, we get more instant feedback from more people, so uh, we're more likely to hear from the people who didn't get the joke. Right. Let's talk about Glenn Greenwald. Mm-hmm. He left his own yeah, website, yeah, so, Intercept. Can you do that? Well, can I leave? Uh, can I give this to Henry and just walk off? I don't Am know I allowed to? You. Yeah. Um, so even though he co-founded it uh, with a couple of other journalists in like 2013, I want to say something like that. I, I'm not. Anyway, I might be getting the dates wrong, but uh, he... Uh, you know, I, I, my understanding is that he was, you know, I, he was an, an employee ultimately, you know, of of the company uh, that, you know, because they got in. Uh, there was this like one individual wealthy person, Omar something. I can never remember his last name, who uh, uh, who was uh, who was like the primary financier uh, behind it. And then I, and I think that guy probably had ultimate say and, and brought in some editorial, you know, an editorial team. Uh, that apparently Greenwald, you know, increasingly uh, didn't get along with. There's there's a lot of uh, backstory drama here, including um, when they you know, started, the, when it, the Intercept started, there, what, didn't it almost not get off the ground? Uh, I think this you might know more about than I do, but um, but I, I guess to to at least bring it up to relatively recent events, um, you know, I think. Some te- some of the tension between Greenwald and the uh, the the uh, editors, the Intercept, 
uh, might have to do with the uh, the reality winner story uh, that people might remember. Um, you know, she was a uh, she was a leaker who uh, who the Intercept um, in their kind of bungled attempts to to do what journalists should do and the due diligence thing of 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 checking with the people, you know, of, of, um, you know, giving people a chance to respond to stories and all that stuff that they didn't, uh, that there were some pretty basic things they neglected to do that would have helped keep her identity. So, you know, uh, anonymous, uh, or make it harder for, for the government to figure out who she was. And she ended up going to jail. She was a whistleblower. Uh, yeah. She's a whistleblower. Right. And, um, uh, and uh, there was actually a New York Times story that came out about this pretty recently, uh, showing which which did uh, which did very validate what Greenwald had been saying, you know, all along, which was that uh, or not, you know, he hadn't been saying. I think he wasn't talking about it, uh, but uh, but it did validate that he um, that he really had nothing to do with this, right? He was he was in he was in Brazil uh, while all this was going on in New York, uh, and. Um, and so I think he kind of resented, you know, I, I think that like, I think there might've been some tension between him and, uh, and, and the company over uh, the fact that there was all this stuff that was circulating, you know, that, that was blaming him for this when he really wasn't involved in any way in it. Uh, but at any rate, whatever might've gone on there uh, over the course of the last, you know, when I started reading Greenwald, he was, he was writing Salon uh, and, and then he was the guardian um, and at the guardian, he published the uh, Edward Snowden leaks, um, which was this hugely important thing about uh, NSA spying uh, at the, uh, at the intercept. Uh, he's done some really important work on the, um, particularly on Brazil on the politically motivated prosecution of uh, the former president, Lula da Silva. Uh, and, um, and they've tried to arrest him at one point. Didn't they yeah, break they, into yeah, his they home? Did. They did. Yeah. I mean, there was, there, there have been some, some pretty extreme uh, things that have, that have happened there. I think this is somebody who, you know, all of which may be important background. Cause I, th- I think oftentimes when, when people kind of weigh in on some public figure like this, it's all sort of based on the politics of the moment, you know, mm-hmm. that like, what have they been doing this week, you know? And, 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 but I mean, I think certainly in terms of, you know, my admiration for this guy, uh, you know, one of my first, uh, you know, the, the day that I met Michael Brooks, you know, one of our first conversations, you know, was about how much we both, you know, admire Glenn, Glenn Clayton Greenwald. Right. Um, but um, in any case, um, let me just remind everybody who reality winner is. I looked it up. She yeah. was an American former intelligence specialist charged with removing classified material from a government facility and mailing it to a news outlet. That would be the. The intercept. Um, that would be the that would be the intercept. Yeah, and she, which which actually, as has been pointed out subsequently, you know, I think she probably thought she was being safer by just sort of sticking it in the mail uh, like that. Uh, but um, uh, so so she could do it anonymously. I think she probably would have been better off if she'd actually um, if she had actually reached out to to a reporter and, and developed some kind of relationship with them. So so they would have known. Uh, right. that, the, that this was genuine and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have tried to check it in ways that, uh, you know, that opened her up to this. But but in any case, um, and she the report suggests that Russian hackers accessed voter registration rolls in the U.S. using email phishing software, though it's unclear <laughs> whether any changes have been made. And she's still in jail. 
Yeah, she is. I believe. Uh, well, anyway. Yeah, but let's know, let's go to Jeremy you know, Corbyn. Let's talk so, about. So, okay. Well, I, I just wanted to say right, just just to just to yeah. finish answering your original question, right? Because because like all this is just background, right? The uh, the big thing is that uh, is that when Greenwald. Um, you know, these other journalists co-founded The Intercept. The idea was that they would have like much more editorial freedom there than they would have uh, at, at a mainstream outlet. Uh, and so Greenwald's leaving now because he feels that, you know, you know, maybe like that's that's not true any longer in practice. And in particular, uh, what he claims, I mean, this is all like very recent. This is stuff that happened today. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so so who knows? I'm sure we'll get more information that might complicate it. But what he says certainly is that um is that his employment contract actually specified there wouldn't be any editorial interference with him pursuing whatever stories he wanted to pursue, printing what he wanted to print, more or less. The only exemptions were things having to do with legal liability or um, or kind of new breaking investigative uh, you know, coverage. Uh, and so he thinks that this was violated uh, in this case because of this this article that he he was going to um, he was going to he was going to write about. Uh, you know, various things that have been going on with, with, uh, with Joe and Hunter Biden, uh, and, uh, and that they, they wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him run. So he feels like they were violating the terms of his contract in ways that seem politically motivated. But is uh, he, is, but he's not defending Giuliani's claim. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that he's defending Giuliani, but I think that, uh, I mean, I haven't read the article itself. I think he has subsequently published on his own Substack. But since this also this all happened today, right. you know, I, I read his initial article about the whole thing, and I read the um, uh, and I read the response from the editor, the chief of the Intercept. You know, I haven't actually read. I think it's like literally within the last hour or two that he's published the uh, on his own Substack the original article that wouldn't run. So I haven't read it yet. But I think it's. But I, I don't know that it's like Giuliani is a great guy and he's he's behaved admirably here uh, as much as uh, the way that a lot of the media has has reacted to this, um, uh, you know, is is bad uh, because uh, because there's, there are legitimately newsworthy things here, but people don't want to talk about them because of the context of the presidential election. I, right. I think that's his angle. I guess the last thing I would say about this before we move on to Corbin is that, um, you know, I don't always, you know, I don't always agree uh, with all of Glenn Greenwald's, you know, takes on everything, uh, you know, they, there's, but, um, but I think he's always somebody who makes a thoughtful and rigorous argument for whatever he's saying. And, uh, and I've really admired what he's done as an, as, as an investigative journalist. So um uh, whatever may or may not have happened between him and the intercept, you know, he started up his own thing. Now it's uh, I think it's just glengreenwall.substack.com. So I, 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 I subscribed to that this afternoon. You know, I mean, I don't always agree with him, but I, I'm always going to read whatever he's writing. And apparently Substack is the way to go for independent journalists, right? Like Taibi, a lot of people have just decided. Yeah. yeah Once you have, credibility uh, you don't want to deal with anybody editing you so yeah and that can be bad of course because editors can be can be really good they can, uh-huh. they can help uh they can see things that you can't right you know about your own work uh that they they can help you see um you know like they can help you tighten up pieces and 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 frame your arguments better and you know it is it is good to have that check uh but um I think that 
it's also the case that sometimes maybe uh, it might be legitimate that you want to just say, look, I'm, I, I want to write about what I want to write about. And if there are lots of people who are going to read it, right. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do that. Right. You know, that uh, I, I can, you know, I can understand, um, you know, I, I can understand both ends of that, but, but I, I think that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for the moment to, uh, to slave away in, in the Jacobin sweatshop and, uh, and, and let, uh, and let Bhaskar Sankara dictate things to me. But, right. uh, uh, but but I, I can definitely see why some of these journalists prefer to you could just go on Substack. So there's a new report that Jeremy Corbyn, when he was running the Labor Party, turned a blind eye to the rampant anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism well, that, within the well, party. Well, so anti-Semitism is the claim. Uh, I think that. Um, so um, this is this has been something. This has been like an allegation that's been out there for a very long time at this point, uh, and and I think that actually some of the uh, material that leaked from within the Labor Party, um, like the uh, there was a, there was a report um, just earlier this year, I think actually um, that that actually did did show uh, that. Uh, that there were a lot of people in kind of the centrist wing of the Labour Party who who were really adamantly going out of their way to try to find ways to undermine uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, and the thing that does make this a little bit complicated is I don't want to go so far as to say that um, that there's nobody in the British Labour Party uh, who's anti-Semitic because that'd be absurd. Uh, you know, there's you know it's the largest political party in the United Kingdom and. Uh, if nobody in there had any anti-Semitic attitudes and anti-Semitism would be much less of a problem than I thought it was. Uh, but, uh, but what I haven't seen from anybody is any kind of evidence that anti-Semitism, that there was more anti-Semitism within the labor party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership than there was before. And I certainly haven't seen anybody uh, even try to make the case that there's more anti-Semitism in the labor party than there was in the conservative party or any right. other political party in the UK. Right. Uh, and, uh, and what, what happened is, you know, since Jeremy Corbyn, since they lost the election last year uh, and, uh, and because, you know, the first election when he was leader, they'd made some gains, but this one, you know, but they didn't win outright. And this one, this one, they, they lost seats. Uh, and so he stepped down as, as labor leader, which you kind of have to do at that point. And then, um, and then somebody who was a much more centrist politician, uh, Starmer, uh, came in after him and under the, um, and then there was this report, um, you know, which, does seem very politically motivated saying, uh, Oh, well, you know, there's all this anti-Semitism in the labor party, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't doing anything about, uh, and then, uh, and then he issued a statement about it where, you know, for like the first six paragraphs of the statement, he was like, look, anti-Semitism is horrible. It should be opposed in every case, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that the extent of the problem was wildly exaggerated for political reasons. And that was used as an excuse to, um, to suspend him from the Labour Party, which is really maddening because nobody, I mean, as you kind of indicated earlier, I, I do think that some of this, um, you know, I'm sure you can point to examples of real anti-Semitism, but I also think that a lot of this has to do with the politics of Israel. Well, there is a problem on the left, as I see it. There's a problem on the right because the right traffics in racism and bigotry. But on yeah. the left, the problem. I, I can hear you. Keep talking. 
he just walked out of me. The the <laughs> left has two issues. One is Israel and the plight of the Palestinians. And so anti-Zionism blends with anti-Semitism. Then you have the the issue of the left identifying with the oppressed. Some people on the left are prone to conspiracy theories and the idea mm-hmm. that the Rothschilds and the Jews control the banks. I mean, there's a healthy distrust of banks. And uh. so people begin to believe that the Jews control all the banks and therefore are responsible for the farm going under. Mm-hmm. So that's the there's a double double shot of anti-Semitism on the left if you believe that the Jews control the banks and you're against the banks. Well, so 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 I, I guess I, I, I think there is some truth to that. I think I think there's certainly, you know, I think left anti-Semitism is certainly a thing that has existed. Um, this uh, August Bebel, I think is how you say his name, uh, the uh, German socialist in uh, the beginning of the 20th century has a book about anti-Semitism called The Socialism of Fools. Uh, that that's very much on that point. Uh, so so I, I certainly don't want to say that it doesn't exist, but I also think that there is an that most accusation like maybe we disagree about this, right? I think that most accusations of left anti-Semitism are spurious. I think that usually when people when people make those accusations, uh, they're not reacting to real anti-Semitism. They're policing the boundaries of of what can be said about uh, the Israel-Palestine issue. I think that that's what's going on in in most cases. Um, but uh, well, let's move I, on. I'll give you the last word on it. Anti-Semitism is is very tricky. It, it, it it's that doesn't seem tricky to me. I'm against it. I mean, are you for it? No, no. But but it it's a slippery conversation because sometimes Jews use attacks on Israel to label somebody an anti-Semite. Mm. And sometimes anti-Semites use the treatment of the Palestinians as cover for their own anti-Semitism. When times are bad, when the economy mm. is bad, it's somebody's fault. It is somebody's fault. And it, it gets a little scary for the Jews. What I have found, in just anecdotally, that... Young Jews who I know who were highly critical of Israel, as this economy tanks and they taste the anti-Semitism that's out there, they're not so they they see the necessity for some form of Jewish state. I've noticed that among younger Jews who don't have the Holocaust to remind them of anti-Semitism, much like seersucker, is a perennial. Well, anti-Semitism I, is like a seersucker suit. It never goes out of style. You can always, yeah, always I depend on it. I do think that that's true, although I've also, um, I've also, something that's always struck me as an odd tension here is that I hear, I seem to hear two things oftentimes from this, these very same people, which are one, um, it's really important that the U.S. support Israel in various ways. It's constantly under threat, you know, be destroyed. And the other is we need Israel to exist in case uh, 
in case the the uh, United States ever becomes a violently anti-Semitic country. And it seems like you can pick, but you can't believe both of those things. That if uh, because if uh, if Israel is has this precarious existence that would be wiped out if not for the support of the United States, then if the United States became a violently anti-Semitic country, Israel's existence wouldn't do you any good. Right. Like like I, I don't see how both of those things could possibly uh, could possibly be true. Uh, I, I think, fortunately, uh, in, well, let's, in my let's, view, let's I want to get to your piece in because I have four uh, minutes with you and I want to talk about your piece in Jacobin, which is entitled Nationalize Walmart. This is from Jacobin. You write Walmart is the largest private sector employer in the United States, and it's an important source of low cost groceries for consumers around the country. It also pays poverty wages, busts unions and drives economic inequality. Luckily, there is an economically viable route to solving all those ills. I guess it's nationalized Walmart. How would, what would yeah. that look like? Yeah. Um, so I think that you could, I think that you, that, you know, if Walmart was, uh, was, was publicly owned, uh, could call it, you know, public Mart, American Mart, something like that. Uh, and, uh, I, I argue in the piece that there's no reason to think that this would happen. you know, like sometimes we think about nationalized grocery stores, we think about, you know, Soviet grocery stores, you know, empty shelves, uh, uh, so I argue in the piece that that, that wouldn't be the case, uh, that wouldn't be the case here. Uh, I, I think that um, I think that it, it seems to me that if you want there to be an important source of, of low cost goods that can also pay people uh, a living wage um, and uh, and not bust unions, then a really good model for that would be, you know, the U.S. Postal Service, uh, which um, will bring a postcard from California to Alaska for uh, 35 cents. Uh, but also supports many, many good uh, public sector union jobs. Uh, and so I, I'm confident that, you know, maybe maybe not everything could be as cheap, uh, but uh, but that we that if Walmart were nationalized, it could continue to provide relatively low cost groceries without doing all the things that it does right now, which, you know, I, I know our time's limited. You have another guest coming up, but just real quickly, right, some of the things that it's doing now include um you know paying substandard wages uh there are people who've been working there for decades who still aren't quite up to 15 dollars uh and on hour. food stamps they're on food stamps. uh they're they're famously uh people who work for walmart uh who uh who are on uh, who are on yeah snap you know food stamps uh which uh which includes uh uh one of my favorites taking out um life insurance policies on employees uh, with, with, you know, without even, you know, consulting them and listing themselves as the beneficiaries. The, uh, the, the betting on your employees, that. betting on yes. your employees. Yes. The, uh, the industry uh, term for that is uh, dead peasant insurance. Uh, and uh, um, being uh, it's had to over the course of like, you can look at a bunch of these cases over the course of the last decade or so it's, it's had to repeatedly, uh, pay out these huge settlements, sometimes tens of millions of dollars for uh, denying employees legally mandated uh, rest and meal breaks, uh, for, uh, for neglecting safety uh, precautions, for discriminating uh, against, uh, against pregnant women. Uh, and, you know, the list, the list goes on and on and on in that vein. 
Uh, and I, I and and certainly it's a driver of economic inequality, both within uh, its own corporate borders. You know, since uh, the Walton family, which owns almost half of it, uh, is uh, immensely wealthy, much wealthier because of the pandemic. You know, they they just they've they've made about forty three billion dollars since the uh, uh, first quarter uh, of uh, of the year, and um, and and they pay. Their own employees very little. They 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 work very hard to make sure that their own employees don't unionize. They're not allowed they, to talk to one another. Yeah, and, and they'll do things. They'll do things like uh, set up hotlines for managers to report. You know, if they do hear anybody talking about organizing a union, uh, preemptively closing locations to uh, to stop them. But Hillary Clinton uh, was on the board of directors of Walmart because she's from Arkansas. You think she would have fixed that? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what happened there. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. When you look at what Walmart has done to America, they they have destroyed Main Street. First, it was Walmart. Then Amazon came in. Like Walmart was the picador. Did it to, to Main Street. And the cities allow it. The cities allow it, even though. They lower Walmart lowers the tax base. Not only is it allowed, uh, but um, in many cases, right, there are Walmart superstores that have been built uh, through various levels of government exercising their power of eminent domain to uh, seize private property from others, which is something that uh, I don't even get into in in the article. But uh, but is is could be added on to this case uh, that any kind of libertarian defense of the property rights of Walmart, you know, you can't nationalize it. You know, let's say uh, they have a right to their property would be incredibly ironic because they have been uh, the recipients uh, of, um, of a lot of seizures of, uh, of other people's private property, as well as, as various other forms of, uh, of government assistance, right? Part of what allows them to, uh, to pay, um, to pay people such low wages and the Walmart defense against that point you made about food stamps will be, Oh, but a lot of those people you're talking about, you know, those aren't, those aren't even full-time employees. Those are part-time. It's like, yeah, they're part-time because you are giving them an hour less a week than, uh, than the standard for when you would have to reclassify them as full-time. Oh, they have a very sophisticated algorithm in terms of scheduling their employees where they will figure out just enough work for you to make sure you don't reach the threshold for benefits. No, exactly. Right. I mean, like and that, that, and so, that entails keeping your workers unable to know what their schedule is next week. So yeah. they can't go look for other jobs. They're totally. Bu- Walmart is effing evil. They're just yeah, evil. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and they make us all, complicit because eventually we have no choice but to shop there because yeah, Main Street's and, you know, out of business. We have to wrap it up. You get the last word. It's great. Yeah. No, no. So. So, look, I mean, I don't I don't think that I don't think bringing them under public ownership would be a panacea. I don't think it would necessarily solve all the problems with the many, many, many bad practices. Uh, but I think that it couldn't possibly be worse. And uh, and I think that it would remove a lot of the incentives that drive some of their worst behavior. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think we, I think we should, 
uh, I'd, I'd also um, I'd also add uh, Amazon too, since you mentioned that. Uh, I think would also be an excellent candidate uh, for uh, for some form of nationalization, but also. Um, but I guess uh, I guess I'll use my my last word to say that uh, that next time we talk, uh, you know, there are two subjects that that we really need to argue about because because these are these are important bones to pick. Uh, one of them. One of them is Palestine, and the other is your defense of uh, in through the outdoor. Well, I like Orr's version better. Okay. Well, of of fool in the rain. Yeah, and I have warm. But you, memories. But, you, but you actually like the album as a whole. I have warm memories. I lost my virginity <laughs> when that album came out, so I have warm memories. And you you called Bonham. Better than Keith Moon? How could you say that? How could you say that? Because uh, I say true things. Okay. Uh, which log- logical, logical or logical fallacy are you employing? Uh, ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess writes for Jacobin. Read him over there. Listen to give them an argument. He has a great guest this week. David Feldman is absolutely fantastic. And... You have a Patreon account, mm-hmm. patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess. Sign up, get essays delivered to your inbox. And when does your new book come out? Uh, new book comes out at the at the end of April. So you've, you've got a uh, got a little while to wait, sadly. But uh, the gears of publishing grind very slowly. But until then... Can uh, you can read the stuff on uh, on Jacobin? Uh, you can uh, you can listen to the podcast, uh, watch it on YouTube, uh, and sometimes uh, you can even catch me on the David Feldman show. We're very grateful for you. This portion of the David Feldman show is brought to you by Feldos. We have a sponsor. That's right, David. <laughs> Feldos are sponsoring this show. When you are reaching for your cereal in the morning, most of the time it's just a boring old bowl of cereal, but Feldo's makes your heart race. That's because it has 40% more hydroxychloroquine than the other leading cereal brands. Why listen to scientists when you can listen to public officials, especially those holding the highest office in the land? Feldo's. Also, now with a free Scott Atlas decoder ring, even you can decipher what Scott Atlas is saying when other scientists can't. It's a real privilege, and you should look into buying yourself a box of Feldos. And he's an immunobiologist, and as long as the FTC and the FDA won't do their job, I mean, Alex Jones is doing Joe Rogan on Spotify, and he sells boner pills that don't work. Trust me, I know. I've tried all of them. I'm in this business now, Professor Ben Burgess. Feldos. How much hydrochloroquine in it? 40% more hydroxychloroquine than any of the other leading cereal brands. And, and the sugar content? 40% lower. It's a one-to-one substitution. So it's good David. for your kids to eat. Exactly. It's good for their teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Professor. All right. Thanks, comedian. Thank you. Let us now go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And this is exciting. We're going to Cambridge. Are we in Cambridge, Grace? England? No, we're in the Upper Peninsula of England. You're in the Upper Peninsula of England. I thought for some reason you were in Cambridge. Uh, Previously, a long time ago. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, but I actually live in Cumbria, which is in the north of England, just wow. south of Scotland. This is exciting. Henry, Grace Jackson is back. And That's right. You take it away, Henry. Yeah, so we have great. Back. Grace is an expert on China and Taiwan, uh, but as you can tell from Grace's last statement, as well as her accent, she's uh, UK-based. So before we get into talking about China and Taiwan, there was some pretty big news that came out of the UK today in regards to the Labour Party. Grace, what the heck is going on with the Labour Party? Oh, boy. Um, well, this is not my area of expertise, Henry, as you know. But I suppose as a British person, as a British voter, I should have a position. Um, it's a mess. It's a real mess. And I think, well, I'm personally very upset with the kind of purging that seems to be going on in the Labour Party. I mean, pretty high profile purge today of Jeremy Corbyn, former leader, Um and it's it's a let's really use his proper title, Grace, the great Jeremy Corbyn, or the absolute unit, or the absolute <laughs> lad, or something. Jezza. Um, yeah, so that's that's a real bummer. And um, I I watched earlier a video of the late David Graeber uh, talking about the kind of Labour anti-Semitism um, crisis or smear, as as some would would describe it. Um, and he had a really good point just about the, the constant conflation of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, with opposition to Israel's right-wing government. And I think it's just really important to bear that in mind when thinking about this. Um, nobody, even Jeremy Corbyn himself, is not claiming that there isn't anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But the fact that it keeps on getting kind of pinned on him and certain, you know, parts of his party where there are other political parties in the UK that also have problems with anti-Semitism, um, such as the Conservatives. It, it just, it seems uh, to be highly political. What's the reaction been on the, the left side of the Labour Party in terms of the members of the Labour Party? Uh, I think a lot of people are quite disgusted and um, those who did not uh, give up their membership earlier this year when similar things happened, like when Rebecca Long-Bailey was expelled from the party for retweeting an interview with someone who mentioned um, the tactics that were used to kill George Floyd possibly being... Um, you know, transferred by like the Israeli, uh, trained by Israel. That was a big blow, I think, for many people on the left wing of the party. So if you didn't leave then, and if you didn't leave earlier in the year, you're probably thinking about cancelling your membership now. Yeah, I, I know that I, I'm not UK based myself, but I do follow a lot of people that are, were members of the uh, Labour Party that today was uh, basically the last day for a lot of them. But let's get back into the topic that we were discussing last time, which is China and Taiwan. Um, is there any recent news that we should discuss before we get back into the historical context of Taiwan? Yes, definitely. Um, so today, there was some news out of Taiwan, um, namely that Taiwan has marked <clears throat> 200 days without any community transmission of COVID-19. 
um, which means that the only cases of COVID-19 that were within Taiwan had come in from the outside. There was no actual spread from person to person within the country, just to clarify what that term means. for Yeah, that's right. They have had some cases uh, imported, um, but they've had no community spread and their death toll from COVID-19 still stands at a staggering seven. That's not 7,000, not 700, just seven. Yeah. Absolutely staggering. Uh, yeah, Taiwan certainly has had one of the best responses uh, to COVID. I think that I would pinpoint Taiwan, New Zealand, and Senegal as having probably the three most successful COVID responses. Anything else uh, news-wise that we want to talk about before we get into the history? Um, no, nothing, nothing in particular. Just to mention that I did see a little bit of pushback on this news from Taiwan about their their COVID control. A lot of people dismissing it as, you know, oh, Taiwan's just an island, you know, New Zealand's an island. It's easy if you're an island. <clears throat> How's the says, UK doing? Dwelling uh, <laughs> in an island that's <laughs> uh, done horrifically. So, yeah, it's not just the fact that Taiwan is an island. Taiwan has had a, a really... Um, kind of multifactorial approach to COVID and it's all kind of embedded within their society, which is one in which people do take care of each other and they do have a consensus on public health, which we don't and you guys don't either. So it's, um, it's not as politicized in Taiwan. Yeah. So Good news for the people of Taiwan. 200 days without community uh, transmission is absolutely massive. But let's get back into the history where we left off last time. So last time we left off with uh, some changing uh, recognition by the UN. You want to recap what that was all about? Yes. So where we left off... I think we were in the 1970s when in the early 1970s you had Nixon visiting China, visiting the PRC. Remember in this discussion, we like to keep our terms nice and clear. So we've got the PRC uh, on mainland China, we've got the ROC on Taiwan. And so in the 70s, the US shifts its recognition. Uh, Officially, this happens in 1979 when the U.S. recognizes the government in Beijing as the government of China. And so Taiwan is kind of thrown into this diplomatic limbo, this sort of diplomatic purgatory, which is where it still is today. Um, So that's 1979. Uh, After that, Jimmy Carter um, passed the Taiwan Relations Act through Congress, which basically defined the U.S. position on Taiwan as one of strategic ambiguity, which is basically saying that the U.S. is going to have substantial relations with Taiwan, but they're not going to be diplomatic. They're not going to be official. Uh, Although, you know, in practice, they do resemble uh, diplomatic relations. There is a place in Taiwan where you can go and get a visa for the U.S., for example, Um, There are U.S. diplomats in Taiwan and so on. It's just a kind of, it's like a a polite fiction (laughs) that allows them to maintain this relationship. Um, And so 
yeah, through the 80s and 90s, Taiwan starts to liberalize uh, and democratize. And in 1996, you have the first uh, presidential election in Taiwan. And that kind of triggers the PRC uh, on mainland China to kind of, um, they attempt to intimidate the voters in Taiwan by uh, by basically doing a lot of aggressive military exercises, there's missiles, and President Bill Clinton responds by sending aircraft carriers into the straits, and sort of everybody backs down after that. But that's known as the Third Taiwan Straits Crisis. Um, in 2000, you have the first peaceful transition of transfer of power between parties in Taiwan. So you have the Democratic Progressive Party winning an election for the first time with President Chen Shui-bian. And yeah, what what else do you want to know, Henry? Is that is that a good overview? Yeah, I think that that's a, a good overview of the history. Uh, if you missed the first part of this interview, uh, this is for the listeners. If you missed the first part of this interview, we had the first part two weeks ago. So go back to that episode to get pre-1970s history. Um, I guess now let's talk about the parties that are in Taiwan. So there's two main parties. Um, we have the, the KMT and the DPP. Would you like to kind of lay out the historical background of those two parties and then roughly what each of them stands for? Sure. Uh, so, Right, we have the KMT, who we heard a lot about in the our first segment on this topic. The KMT KMT stands for Kuomintang, or Kuomintang in Mandarin, and they are the Nationalist Party, the Chinese Nationalist Party. They were formed in 1919 in the mainland, on the mainland. This is Chiang um, Kai-shek's party. Correct. This is Chiang Kai-shek's party, which... Uh, was the only party to rule on Taiwan from like 1949 up to 1987 when martial law was lifted. Um, And this is a party that historically has a lot of nostalgia and fondness for mainland China. I mean, it's not surprising given that they fled from mainland China, they retreated to Taiwan And so a lot of the people who came over with them, a lot of military families who were fighting the Chinese Civil War, had this kind of longing for the mainland because they were essentially, they felt like exiles. Um, And so in terms of identity, that party is really bound up with mainland China. Although as Taiwan has democratized and the kind of definition of Taiwan has allowed to has been allowed to kind of expand even the KMT is kind of less and less connected to the mainland in people's minds and so these days the KMT would agree that there is such a thing as Taiwanese identity they just might define it a little bit differently from the DPP Um, and broadly speaking the KMT is like center-right a bit more conservative Uh, whereas the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, who are currently in power, they are centre-left 
and they were founded in 1986 officially. But this is a party that has a very different genesis. This is a party that emerged from opposition to one-party rule. So they were rebels, basically, um, in the early stages. And now they're in power. Their president is Tsai Ing-wen, who um, is a very, I think she's a very savvy uh, political operator. She's very popular at the moment in Taiwan. And she, she's just, she's very good at towing, at kind of threading the needle between <clears throat> having a robust response to Chinese aggression. Like when the Chinese government, the PRC government will kind of flex its muscles and throw its weight around and make speeches about unification by force. She always has a good robust response to that. She doesn't kind of take it lying down. Um, but she's also very, she, she, she's not bellicose at all. And she has expressed interest in, um, you know, restarting talks, cross-strait talks with the PRC government. So she's not opposed to that. She just wants those talks to be on the grounds of like mutual respect and um, you know, acknowledgement that Taiwan does operate as a country, even though many people are upset by that fact. Yeah, one one thing that you mentioned was Taiwanese identitarianism, and that brings up kind of a historical topic that I'd like your take on. So, as we discussed, the KMP was Chiang Kai-shek's party, the Nationalist Party that uh, fled from China after the Chinese uh, Revolution. Um, Chiang Kai-shek, when he was in Taiwan, had basically anti-communist drives, or some would call them purges. Um, And in a lot of cases where we see these anti-communist pushes by governments in charge, there's basically a dichotomy that emerges where on one side you have the people that are afraid of the government and start towing the anti-communist line, and then you have people who resist that push by the government and adopt a basically a, an underground kind of communist mindset and then ends up being basically underground revolutionaries against the oppressive regime. Um, but in the case of, of Taiwan, these anti-communist drives, it seems, didn't really create more anti-communism or underground communism. It, it appears as if they've actually made, they, that fostered Taiwanese identitarianism. Can you speak to that at all? Mm. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I love studying Taiwan is that it kind of exposes all of our ideological dichotomies to be false. It, um, it's not, the rubric of communist and anti-communist doesn't really fit Taiwan, because the people who lived on Taiwan before Chiang Kai-shek arrived in 1947, they they have their own kind of identity and experience of Japanese colonial rule. And they're not about to um, identify with communist China just because their oppressor, Chiang Kai-shek, is fighting that enemy. So the whole enemy of my enemy is my friend logic doesn't really hold in Taiwan, which I think is really interesting and really important um, because that's really a logic of the Cold War, right? And 
Taiwan offers us an opportunity to sort of transcend that logic and realize that there was this kind of, I, I know that non-aligned as a, as a technical term that belongs to another kind of set of issues, but that Taiwanese people were not on either side of that. And so, uh, yeah, there was no kind of like communist backlash to Chiang Kai-shek's anti-communist policies, partly because those anti-communist policies were actually just an excuse to oppress the population, to maintain power, you know. Mm-hmm. So let's shift topics then from, again, we kind of dip back into history, um, but let's look at cross-strait relations. So this is what I think mm-hmm. most of the listeners want to know at this point is how have cross-strait relations between mainland China, People's Republic of China, and Taiwan, how have they been ever since uh, KMT f- fled from China to Taiwan, and how has that evolved over time? Mm. Uh, well, they've been very patchy. They've been very unstable. Uh, in the 1950s, immediately after um, the, the KMT retreated to Taiwan, there was a continuation of military conflict across the strait. And so there was lots of kind of amphibious uh, attacks in the, on the islands around Taiwan. Um, and remember, that was a period in which Taiwan was under martial law. And so you had, um, you know, military conscription and people kind of like huddled in caves on these islands in the, in the strait um, with missiles coming at them. So there was military conflict uh, through the 50s. And then from then on, it was kind of like diplomatic competition, you know, who gets to call themselves China. Um, it's, uh, there's been kind of periodic attempts by the PRC to either woo or intimidate Taiwanese voters after Taiwan democratized. Um, and there's also been the development of kind of unofficial relations to some degree as well. Both countries have offices that are sort of semi-governmental, but not fully governmental, that allow them to have some unofficial relationships and of course there's a huge economic relationship uh, between Taiwan and China and this is that kind of like lovely paradox of this situation which is that Taiwan's biggest economic partner is also an existential threat (laughs) so Taiwan has to live with this this contradiction um, which I think we've, we've struggled to imagine what that must be like. And how have relations changed since Xi took power in China? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, they, they have deteriorated and they've also, that's um, also the period during which Tsai Ing-wen for the DPP has been in power. So you've got a much more uh, strident, PRC nationalism taking hold under Xi Jinping, and you've got Tsai Ing-wen on the other side of the strait, who's you know um, inclined towards independence. Not she's not about to declare it, but that's her orientation, um, and she's quite assertive about that. So things have gotten worse. Um, Xi Jinping has this idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation 
And that's a pillar of his rule and of his legitimacy as a leader uh, because he's not elected. Um, and he has said that bringing Taiwan back into the fold is a key tenet of that rejuvenation. He cannot rejuvenate China without Taiwan, which is, I mean, if you think about it, that's actually quite a scary thing to just throw around. And I think we forget that the rhetoric is is getting more and more bellicose all the time. Um, he's also said himself that if Taiwan were to become independent, his party would lose its legitimacy. So it's very, very high stakes. Um, and there's a lot of kind of bullying tactics that go on as well. And this is one of my kind of, one of my notions is that the left, the Anglophone left anyway, should care more because we should support the underdog or we should at least think of the underdog in this. Yeah, that uh, that leads into my last two questions and they're going to be the two hardest questions that you're going to feel uh, during either part. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't worry, you'll, you'll be fine. Question one. With this recent change in Chinese policy, would you consider China to be a neo-imperialist power as they currently stand? You're going to get a lot of hate mail regardless of how you answer. Oh, good. Oh, well, I don't get enough of that. So, um, uh, yes, <laughs> I think China has neo-imperial aspirations. And I think... In order to back that claim up, I would, I, you know, you can't be like neo-imperial without a previous imperial to refer back to, right? And I think that China historically has been an imperial power, and I think his, I think its own sense of itself is that it needs to restore that imperial grandeur that status. And that's, that's something I think Xi Jinping would probably agree with. He may take an issue with um, the nomenclature, like empire. But I think if you look at the rhetoric, if you look at the way um, the PRC is expanding economically, the Belt and Road Initiative, these are all things that you can view through an imperial lens. And then final question, this is going to be a uh, another relatively difficult question. It's another opinion-based question, which is why it's, it's difficult. But as somebody who is much more learned in this subject than me or probably any of the listeners, your opinion is rather important to us. Uh, how should the left view Taiwan? Because, oh, no. you know, uh, the left, we, we tend to view the left as a monolithic whole, but how would a nuanced left view Taiwan? as it currently stands? Well, I think we need another 30 minutes for that question. Okay. I I think the left needs um, needs to pay more attention to Taiwan and it needs to overcome the awkwardness inherent in agreeing with Ted Cruz about some things. Unfortunately, expand expand on that point. Well, Taiwan is a massive inconvenience for the left because there are some really awful people who support it. And so, again, it's that Cold War logic that I was referring to earlier that we can't possibly voice support for Taiwan because we'd end up agreeing with Marco Rubio on something. 
Um, even though, you know, Marco Rubio's reasons for supporting Taiwan are not good ones. He's an unreformed cold warrior, right? He's just treating Taiwan as a bulwark against the PRC because his ideas are still stuck in that, that era where PRC equals communist, communist equals bad, therefore Taiwan good, right? The values that Taiwanese society is beginning to kind of hold up as essential to its identity are not values that the Republican Party of the US would would also kind of get on board with. So I would just suggest that the left needs to look at the kind of society that Taiwan is building right now and get excited about it because it does offer us which is what we haven't we ha- just briefly we haven't mentioned what kind of society Taiwan has yeah. at the at the moment. So briefly what what kind of society are they building? Well, they're a damn sight further along the road to democratic socialism than any of us are. They've got universal health care. They've got well-funded public services. They've got a conception of identity that is based on civic values um, as opposed to ethnicity. They do have a kind of nationalism, but it's one that is, I would define as a post-colonial nationalism. It's not an ethno-nationalism that is exclusive or exclusionary. It's an inclusive idea. Um, They have a very vibrant democracy where people argue all the time. People are protesting all the time. And because because their struggle for democracy was, was so bound up with social and political movements, they actually have a much more fertile ground for change. And they're much more receptive to social movements. And so I'm not suggesting that Taiwan is a worker's paradise. They have huge problems with labor, migrant labor as well. There are real issues there. But it's it's more fertile ground for the kind of change that we want to achieve in our countries. And that's why I think the left needs to pay more attention. Okay. I think that that was a great way and very nuanced way to answer the question without getting too many people angry with you. Uh, not that I think that you're going to get any mean messages, but you know, I just had to throw that out there in case anybody does want to send mean messages to you. But uh, yeah, I think we're out of time. We've got the Hershenfeld, Hershenfeld. Well, let me, so. let me offer this up as a suggestion because Ethan Hershenfeld can't make it tonight. As I understand it, he can make it. He, uh, Dr. Hershenfeld, let me unmute He's He joined as an attendee, so please unmute oh, him. Oh, I don't see him. Well, he says he's there. Well, as, I... As a, he's in a place where the internet went out. I, so I don't see him on. unless it's... Is he on the phone? Did he join? Oh, he's here on audio. Ah. He's here. He can hear you. Uh, what is the prefix? What is his prefix on his phone? What's a prefix? Uh, the, the area first, code. The area oh, code. 646. 646. Yeah, I see him. Now okay. I see him. Is that you, Ethan? Ethan? Unmuted. Okay, we're, we'll figure this out. He has to unmute. While we're waiting for Ethan to unmute himself, we will uh, introduce... Dr. Hershenfeld and his son in a second. Uh, Grace, fantastic. I'm here. Here I am. Fantastic. Do you know Grace Jackson? Hello. Can you hear us, Ethan? Ethan. Yes. 
Yes, hello. Hi. Hey, Grace. How are you? I know her from your show. Ah, great. Hi. Uh, thank hey. you, Grace. You'll come back. We'll talk to Henry about your coming back. We have the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is also here. Let me just throw this out to everybody, and then we'll talk to the Hershenfeld. But since we have Dr. Hershenfeld here, who is a psychiatrist, and his son, who has a father who's a psychiatrist, in England, where you are, Grace, Great Britain, mm-hmm. the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, you're in Washington, D.C., Henry, you are in the Upper Peninsula of the Michigan State. What is the level of anxiety that you're noticing in the lead up to Tuesday's election? I'm going to start with Grace because you're in Great Britain. I've noticed that most people I know have are in a holding pattern. They're in a state of suspended animation waiting to find out what this country really is. Because there's this fear that Biden, well, there's this fear that Biden is going to lose because most Americans prefer Trump. That's the first fear. Then there's the other fear that Biden wins, but Trump steals the election, both of which are pretty disconcerting what is the anxiety what what are you feeling about this election how important is it to you in great britain and to your friends well it's incredibly important to us um it's personally important to me because i do have kind of a relationship with the u.s a special relationship you might say um having lived there for a few years until last year when i moved back here um but you know I, uh, I also have to present the caveat that my social circle is not as wide as it normally is right now since I'm basically stuck at home. I see my parents uh, pretty regularly and they are glued to the TV um, getting news from the U.S. So they're watching very closely. And what is their anxiety? What are they afraid of? Um, they think Trump's a maniac and that he is going to try and steal the election. But I think they also have a bit of that first worry that you cited, which is that they've they've kind of lost faith in America and Americans. And in fact, I find myself in the bizarre position of defending America to my parents <laughs> on a regular basis. I'm like, you're so anti-American. How can you say such a thing? Right. You don't understand that country like I do. But they've, you know, they're baby boomers. They've seen the promise of America and they feel like they're witnessing the decline of America. Are they rooting for America? Yes, they are rooting for America. Well, let me yeah. ask Dr. Hershenfeld through the sun. Is there such a yeah. thing? You're, you're the son of a psychiatrist, is that correct? That's right. That's okay. right. Yes. Is there such a thing as Trump derangement syndrome? And I ask this question because I... I have Trump rearrangement, which is <laughs> uh, the last few weeks. Every, every day I have to rearrange my furniture. <laughs> Otherwise, I just go completely insane. So that's, anyway, go ahead, please. Trump derangement syndrome. I noticed it after the last debate that nobody could acknowledge that he looked presidential. They hate him so much. They could not. 
hear a single word or pay attention to his demeanor and say, you know, he's a Nazi, he's a fraud, he's a clown. But as far as his performative ability that night, I'll give him a, a B plus. Is there such a thing well, as Trump derangement syndrome where there's no way he can do anything right? And does it cloud our judgment? I think that, think that uh, for many people, derangement of a person who has shown us for four years and for an entire lifetime who he really is. So even, you know, if, uh, if a, 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 a raving lunatic um, can stand for a few minutes, uh, you can't be hoodwinked by that to say, oh, lunatic, he's a raving lunatic. Right. Your, 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 your connection, you is, there, is there any way you can, the, you're in a storm, right? Where are you? Are you still on location? Yes, there was a storm, so there's no electricity. So I'm talking to you from uh, phone. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no, there's no. It's uh, it's it's chaos. It, no, it's not chaotic. I'm just sitting in my car, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we're having trouble hearing you. That's the problem. Jesus, I'm sorry. No, it's David. It's David. But thank you. Talk thank louder. You. Yeah. Try Does yelling. That work? If I yell, is that better? Is that yeah. better? Yeah, that's better. Okay. Uh, here. It's Atlanta. Joe Biden was here today. That's what's happening. In Joe might win Georgia. This is good news. Joe Biden might win Georgia. So, Dr. Hershenfeld, Trump derangement syndrome. Well, yeah, what we feel definitely um, affects what we see. We see that all the time. So I've got it very bad. People tell me that the second debate, he wasn't horrible. But after seven minutes, I simply got so sick in my soul from watching him that I had to turn it off. Can I accept from you the idea that, well, he wasn't that bad? I can accept it, but but when I see him, my disgust and, and fear of him uh, just take over completely. Right, and we're girding our lines for Tuesday night. Yeah. The same way the Dodgers won the World Series, some people had an emotional investment in the World Series, others didn't. I choose not to get emotionally invested in baseball because it's like kids, you know, they're only going to break your heart, so why bother worrying about a baseball team or your kid? I'm joking. But uh, is it possible to say, you know what? It's just something on my television. It doesn't affect me. I want Biden to win, but uh, I'm taking this a little too seriously. This is becoming an obsession with me, and I should pay less attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C. Is that a healthy way to approach this? I don't think so. I see people who do that, but I think they are just 
It's a defense. It's not a good defense because I think we have um, real things to be worried about. And I, among the people I talk to, which wide range of people and and political persuasions and professions, there is genuine anxiety like I have never seen before about a political event, and I share it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Biden is arrested between now and next Tuesday by that lunatic attorney general. I'm ready for anything. But the idea of somebody sitting and say, ah, this is just another baseball game. I think they're trying hard to fool themselves. Right. Every step of the way, we've relied on norms and institutions and they keep failing us. Although in many ways they don't. They do slow down his march. Is it conceivable that come election night, he loses and the people who we rely on rise to the moment and say to him, Buster, you're out of here. You know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but you're out of here. That history, that people are, even people like Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Bill Barr are looking at history or are they so craven and do they want something that we don't know about? Are they more concerned about something more more important than history? What would they be concerned about? What, what would somebody like Bill Barr care his more about power. than history? His own power. See, it's conceivable, the scenario that you're painting, that they would all stand up and unify and say, OK, Mr. President, this is it. But we've never had to ask that question before. That's the big problem. In the past, with anybody, the whole country assumed he loses, he leaves. So is the problem, is the problem Trump or is the problem the Republican Party? Because I think that if Mitch McConnell stands up and says, it's over for you, it's over for him. If he says that, but we have no assurance that he's going to say that. Right. Because I think all of those, first of all, I think it's a mistake to blame this all on Trump. I agree. This this slide has been going on for a very long time. He hastened it. He mobilized it. And he had a lot of craven allies to help him. And and even as I say this, I'm thinking, uh, what train am I going to be on to the gulag for expressing these ideas? I mean, I've never thought like that before. When I donated money to various liberal causes over the past six months, I always had the same thought. Who's keeping a record of this money and what's... What's going to happen to that record? And you do honestly have, 
would you call it paranoia? What would you, how would you diagnose, self-diagnose? I would say that uh, I don't think it's paranoia. I think... Um, is paranoia a, a, an illness or is it... <laughs> it's both. It's an illness and it's a description of a particular symptom. If I had these thoughts and then I went into an underground bunker with a machine gun, I would say, that guy's paranoid. But simply to have these worries pass through my mind, I don't think it's paranoid. I think it's one of many multiple possibilities. But the fact that I'm considering this one, I don't think is is a reflection on my own personal mental health. I think it's a reflection on where we're at right now in history. Can I step in to allay the anxieties of my father? <laughs> yes, yes, please. Okay, listen, that thing about the train and the gulag, the good news, a Republican governor of New Jersey refused to build a train tunnel that would have made that possible. <laughs> there was going to be a tunnel under the Hudson. So the train system in our country is so pathetic. There, I mean, you could probably, maybe they could get you, they could get you to like 11th Avenue. That's and then you have to transfer. As, then you have to transfer to a, it's just not happening. Yeah. The whole gulag. Yeah. It, yeah. We're, we're very right. disorganized. Public is a mess. I mean, like even trying to like, like transfer between the L train and the four train, you got to walk through a tunnel full of incense and a guy. Oh, it's so frustrating that you're breaking. It has one string. Thank you, son. Sorry. Thank you, son. All right. You're breaking up, which is very frustrating, but have you ever, without Sorry. violating a trust, have you ever seen your father, politically speaking, politically speaking, have you ever seen him this concerned? He was very upset once when he, he was attending a social event. I was going to be there. Whoa, 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 hang on. You broke up. I'm hanging on every word and it's breaking up. He, he was very upset. He was attending he, a social event. A social event and he had heard Bella Abzug would be attending. <laughs> he got very excited and he didn't show up and he was very upset. He was so very the upset. Bella Abzug incident. And and yeah. is and is there without violating a trust, is that his secret love, Bella Abzug? Is her that I loved her ass. <laughs> We need Bella Abzug. I think you should carry a portrait of O'Neill. Okay. Uh, what happens? I have to mute your son because the, the, the sound quality is so bad. What happens if it's a whimper? If Biden wins and it was just one big goof that, that Trump says, you know what? It's amazing I got this far. Boy, did I scare you people. I can't believe you fell for it. Is it, I mean, what is motivating the, this monster? What is it? You say power or what? what? No, I would say notoriety more than anything else. He just needs his name up in lights constantly. 
maybe if the country promises to put him on Mount Rushmore, maybe he will quietly retire into the sunset. Is every democracy, is, is there baked into every democracy, every society, a type of authoritarianism that would round people up? I mean, we're already rounding up undocumented Americans. So it's, it is baked in, into humanity to... Yes, it's baked into humanity. That's where it's baked in. And that's why we need things like laws and constitutions to fight against the baser instincts that exist in all human beings, which is what I've been trying to teach you for the last three or four months. Right. That um, man is a wolf to man, unless there are strong institutions, constitutions, laws, standards, all of which are pretty much undermined at this point. Now, Henry, if memory serves, you're under the age of 50. Is that correct? That is correct, David. By, oh. by about half, yes. By about half. So that would make you about 25. That's right. Your generation, are. what do you think we're losing since you didn't have that much to begin with? What, what do you mean by what we're well, losing? Well, you, you were born in 1995. By the time you were conscious, we had George W. Bush. So what are you losing? And Grace, I would assume you're Henry, around Henry's age. What do you feel you're losing? We, we feel your parents feel we're, we're about to lose something. Do you see the same loss that we do when you talk to your parents? No, David. And I think that this is one of the reasons why we saw particularly low voter turnout from the youth uh, in this election cycle. So in 2016, we saw a moderate increase in youth turnout for Bernie in the primaries because Bernie was the one candidate that was really energizing people that were young, uh, giving them hope that they would have something at which at some point in the future they could lose but the people of my generation and this is again just speculation on my part based off of conversations i've had with acquaintances over the course of the last few years uh is that the people of my generation have felt so beaten down by not having anything to lose as you said that they've just fallen into apathy and they're just not turning out to vote even for Bernie in 2020, youth turnout wasn't that great in 2020 for Bernie. It was one of the reasons why uh, he underperformed what we would have expected based on polls, because polls were taking into account similar youth turnout to 2016. And that's just not what we saw. Grace, so what are you what is your what, what are you seeing in England in terms of loss? Certainly you've experienced it with Brexit and Boris Johnson. And do you feel you've lost something? Yeah, I, f I feel that in the UK, we're basically sliding ever closer towards a US style of political discourse and a US system, like with the way that Brexit might result in um, the partial privatization of the NHS and, you know, the lowering of our 
food and environmental standards that's already on the table so i feel like that's one thing that we're that's shifting in the uk and has been shifting for a while but another thing that i feel is that um we hear a lot of optimism about the zoomers you know the younger generations who are using tiktok or what have you to 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 do that activism and the sunrise movement and that stuff is all great but i worry that there's like nothing new under the sun and if if my generation or your generation had had social media then there would have been a similar similar thing on display and that by the time people get to 40 or 50 or 60 they naturally become more conservative so i just i wonder about the sort of demographic projections that we're making and that you know that it feels to me like they're there's a bit of false optimism there, maybe. Dr. Hershenfeld, what is... David, I have, I have a question for Dr. Hershenfeld, oh, okay. if I may. So this is a like a political psychology type question. Um, so like I said, I've noticed that there's a, a lot of apathy among young people because they don't have anything to lose. And, and of course, the way that you would snap those people out of that apathy would be by giving them things that would give them some reason to actually stand up and, and make their voice heard. But short of giving them things, because with the current administration and likely with the Biden administration, we're not really going to see things that are going to change the material conditions of the young generation significantly. How do you bring people out of apathy without actually materially changing their life from a psychological standpoint? I, I do have an answer to that. Can I guarantee that it's the correct one? I don't know, but but it's my answer, which is that um, you got to show people that they have a lot. Not necessarily. I'm not talking about material stuff. Um, that they have a lot, and if they lose what they have, like free speech, for example, or the ability to march down the street for a cause, or um, uh, civil rights to whatever degree, and it exists to a degree, civil rights. I think you've got to show people that, that in many ways, they are better off than 100 years ago. And there, is, there has been progress in certain ways. So for people to say, I don't care, I'm not going to vote, I have nothing, that's simply not true. I, I agree with you, but how do we show them that they have something to lose despite not having material things to lose? Yeah. I think you have to, you can't as... Bill Clinton said you can't vote your fears. You have to vote your hopes. So I don't think people are going to vote about losing more than they already have. I think you have to sell them something. You have to tell young people that the future is going to be golden. You can't ask people. Uh, Go ahead, Ethan. Am am I audible? Yes. Well, I was going to say the way to show them, Henry, is using a TikTok. You get a press, you get a, a guy who can eyewall very quickly. It's very impressive on TikTok. If you can show someone 
drywall incredibly quickly, then you can give them any message you got to get them. Right. Uh, before we go, I want to ask Dr. Hershenfeld about nostalgia, because for the first time in my life, and I don't know if this is a function of my dotage, but I am. It is. Yeah. I am suddenly looking back, which I never used to do. And uh, I never used to look back and think that was it. That was fun. That was good. I was always looking forward. Uh, I know I speak for most people. Forward seems, you know, that wall that Donald Trump promised us. I see a wall. The future feels like a wall. so I'm looking part of, back. Part of it is the, the golden retrospectoscope. Things really do take on this golden haze from the past. And the way your mind works, you usually do not remember how bad certain things might have been. That's one answer I have. The other answer is Steven Pinsker. You know him? The Harvard, yeah, he wrote a very convincing book as to why things really are much better than they were 50 or 100 or 200 years ago, even though that's not how we see it. And I think there's some truth to that. Obviously, right now, with Trump and with COVID, there's a there's a blip in that steady march of progress. But in in terms of important things, longevity, health, lots lots of uh, even equality to some degree. Right. The the tendency for humans to look fondly at the past. Yeah. That makes I'm not making a joke here. That makes it easier to be a serial abuser because people will look back at the person who abused them and think, well, he had his good points. She had her good points. There there wasn't all bad. There were some happy moments. You know, is that is that what makes that's one example. Another example is I'm also a child and adolescent analyst. You're you're not a child or an adult. You're an adult. Child also. Okay. Okay. It's really hard, really hard for most, and everybody here will say, no, that's not true about me. Let me tell you, it is true about you. Uh, it's really hard to remember the pain. Wait, wait, that, and, I, and you're a psychiatrist, and when you hear that bell, uh, another Jew got a beard. <laughs> he became a psychiatrist, I think. I think that's from It's a Wonderful Life, I think. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, it's hard to remember how painful your adolescence was. It, let me, I guarantee you, it was really painful. Yet most people do not remember it that way. Oh, it was exciting. I discovered boys. I discovered girls, whatever. I ran around with my friends. It is, in general, a miserable time of life. And it takes a lot of work for people to connect with that. Right. And it makes it easy for evil to be forgiven. 
Yeah, for example. Uh, yeah. Well, this has been uh, fantastic. I wish we could keep going. Ethan, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, uh, it's very frustrating not being able to hear your voice. Breathe into a... Breathe into a paper bag. Is that what? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Will you be in uh, the United States next week? Or you're going to be in. How, how much longer are you on location? Okay. Two weeks. So I'll ask your father. When does he come back? Yeah, no, but he'll have Internet by next week. I don't think there's going to be any problem. Unless Trump gets reelected and pulls the, all be the kill in, switch. Right. OK. All right. This Come may on, be everybody. this may be uh, the last time we get to talk to one another, just in case. I enjoy Grace. You were terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Just in case Trump gets reelected, it was nice knowing you. Absolutely. Thank you. And Ethan, in case Trump gets reelected, I'll see you at the uh, at the gulag. OK. Bye, everybody. Yeah, I'll see you on Platform 6. Uh, <laughs> platform 6. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, Grace, thank you. Yeah, I literally have an attic. I'm in the attic right now. So Really? You can get across. Save us some space. Yeah. <laughs> I'll erect bunk beds. Do you, do you know how annoying it would be if Ethan and I were in your attic? Listen, can you, uh, you're being very, very kind, but I, I know these are fake Bako bits, but still, it, it just, could you just pick the Bako bits out of the salad? Right, Ethan? Yeah, they don't belong in there. There should not be a pig in your salad. <laughs> Even a fake pig. No pigs in a salad. Pig in a blanket, maybe. Pig in a salad, no. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. Of course, Henry, we'll plug. Our, why don't you go ahead and plug and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. So we're going to have our pay-per-view on Saturday. Before I mention just a little bit more about that next week, I'll be back with two guests. David, mark it down around 6 p.m. your time, 6 or 6.30, whenever you can fit us in. I have two guests that the listeners are familiar with. We have a big announcement to make next Thursday. So mark it down. We'll be back. Right. Saturday, yeah, and it'll be announced here first, David. You can feel special in that way. Okay. Um, on Saturday, pay-per-view show, 6.66 for your general admission tickets. Even if you're not coming, please share the link with your friends and loved ones. I think that they're going to have a good time. And then we're going to have a little break before the next one. Right. For some. Yeah. Right. I, uh, this pandemic is reaching levels we had been warned about by Irritable and Henry. And this Saturday at 930, we are doing another COVID town squares. We realize that the economy has completely tanked. We realize like we didn't know this. And we've lowered one of the ticket levels to six six six, six thousand six hundred and sixty dollars. We've lowered the t is that no no uh, six dollars and sixty six cents. It's Halloween six six six. There are higher donation levels, but 
Uh, we have fun perks, which we'll tell you about later in the show. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the pay-per-view menu tab, whatever you want to call it, and it'll take you directly to Eventbrite, where you can purchase a ticket. And you need to be a member of Eventbrite. And you also have to have a Zoom account to meet the irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamacki to talk about a virus that will be with us for a while. And in the case you don't think it's going to be here for a while, let's ask Anthony Fauci. I think he said it best. This is uh, a man who is hanging in there and telling the truth. This is what Dr. Fauci said yesterday. Well, uh, he was muted because I didn't hit the right button, so we'll stop. But let me, uh, Henry, you'll respond to this as soon as I get the computer sound going. This is Anthony Fauci on the news. <laughs> this is so, I'm going to do this. I am going to play this. I don't care what anybody says. I will get this right. This is Dr. Anthony Fauci on the news yesterday. You don't hear it, do you? I'm not getting any sound, David. You know how many jokes could be made about uh, boomers with technology right now? But I'm above that. I'm I'm not Uh, making any of those jokes. No, you're not. You're not above that. I don't understand why that doesn't work. All right. Well, he's saying it's bad. That's what he's saying. (laughs) You want my response to that, David? Yeah. Agree. I agree. It's bad. When we come back, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn will join us. Hot times in the city. 
Well, welcome back. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, he was running Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of... I just want to make sure I get this right. Is it pronounced? Let me just see if I can do this. Christ? That's okay. right. I got it. You got it. All right. You you're, got it. Let me I'm see if I can. Massachusetts. You're in Massachusetts? Let me play Fauci. Okay. If you look at the chart, which you just showed, <laughs> we've never really had waves in the sense of up and then down to a good baseline. It's been up and wavering up and down till now we're at the highest baseline we've ever been, which is really quite precarious. So, you know, it's kind of semantics. You want to call it the third wave or an extended first wave. No matter how you look at it, it's not good news. Now, one of our very first office hours that we ever had featured the Reverend Barry W. Lynn and your wife, Dr. Dr. Lynn. And this was... I believe it had to be late March, early April. And she she laid it on the line. She is a a doctor, a medical doctor. And she was one of the first people to tell me this thing ain't going away. We have we have a serious, serious problem. And it's going to be with us for a long time. And they knew that. And Trump knew that. Yes, he certainly did. But, you know, let me just build on something that you were talking about a few minutes ago. How do you get the people that one sees at the Trump rallies, particularly people who are 25 years old or under, to take any of this seriously. And I i mean, I know this is more controversial than I usually am, but I think what you just say is, uh, here's what's gonna happen. You're not gonna have any birth control and you're not gonna be able to watch porn on the internet and you're not gonna be able to go to football games because the COVID will still be around. Well, I thought well, porn was birth control, but- yeah, Well, it, it depends. Okay. But, no, but I mean, I think you have to, we, we always underestimate what people find most important in their lives. And these things, football, look at Trump, he's always talking about, he brought back Big Ten football. And people love that. He goes to Michigan, he loves, people love that. And what could happen with rulings of courts, uh, that have been so corrupted in the last four years is serious efforts to block everything, not just abortion rights, but everything about using birth control as well. And also um, free speech, a lot of free speech. You know, it isn't uh, us leftists having arguments with each other. That's not what most people view as free speech. They want it. They want to see the most violent things on television. They want to see the most uh, curious porn on Pornhub. 
And those little things, until they're taken away, I think there's an enormous swath of people, notwithstanding that so many young voters are coming out and voting in Florida, in Michigan. The numbers are staggering. But I don't think that's going to make for a blue wave. I think we'll be lucky. In fact, in fact I, I, every year I do a projection of what's going to happen in the presidential race. And I just I published it on Facebook yesterday. And I'll be happy to share. Sure, with yeah. You yes, want. please. I think when this will all be known and over by 1230 next Tuesday, it's going to be finished. And Biden will have won. He'll, he will win by a 289. Write this down. 289 electoral votes. That's not a lot. No, it's not. But what it means is he just takes Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Then it doesn't really matter electorally whether he wins in Florida, whether he wins in North Carolina. He just needs those four states. Right. He can uh, he can win without Ohio. He can right. win without Florida. Correct. He needs Arizona. He needs. He does need Arizona. He needs Nevada. Yeah. I don't think he's in serious jeopardy there. Right. What about North Carolina? He doesn't need that either. Right. Right. And, so, but, and but I think what's going to be interesting and more complicated is what happens in the Senate. And you know, I've been talking about this for the last few weeks. And this is my view of that. And you can also write this down. And you can ridicule me, you know, next week. I'll ridicule you right now. Here, go ahead. <laughs> Alabama's <laughs> lost. Doug Jones, he's a wonderful guy, but he's going to lose. Right. Um, but as far as the pickups of Democrats, they're going to win in Colorado. Uh, they're going to win in. Um, they're going to win in Maine. They're going to win in North Carolina. They're going to win, I think, in Iowa. And that's all it's going to take: Colorado, Arizona, Maine, New North Carolina, and Iowa. And then there'll be 51 known Democrats within a day or two of the elections being over. And then. I don't think either one of the the uh, Senate races in Georgia will be resolved. They'll both go. They'll both go uh, to a runoff in January. I think it's January 5th in Georgia. So that and, and I would think one of those two will probably end up going to the Democrats. Interesting. So the Democrats will end up when all is said and done with 52 people in the United States Senate. They'll be close, but no cigar. Jamie Harrison, um, uh, Dr. Gross up in Alaska, uh, former governor of Montana, Steve Bullock. They'll be close, but I I think they're not going to be close enough, and those seats are going to remain in Republican hands. So with 52, you got Schumer and Pelosi and hopefully Biden. Then you get rid of the filibuster. Yeah. And you pack the courts. One would hope so. You know, there are a lot of, uh, I, I would point out, there was an excellent article in the New York Times a few days ago. Yeah. Of the various ways that you could deal with the courts. And the thing about half of them are so complicated, you could never explain them. I mean, somebody was talking about a, uh, 
Uh, they wrote this down because of a certiorari alteration. That means, first of all, half of that is Latin. So well, that, it means that you have uh, fewer trials, uh, cases being certified to go to the Supreme Court. You you have right. you have a a bigger judiciary that takes care of this before. But you see, all of these interesting ideas. You know, Bernie had this idea that maybe you could take some of the people on the Supreme Court and put them down into an appeals court for a while and then re-elevate them. All these things are, A, very complicated, and B, subject to endless constitutional challenges that will ultimately be ending up where? In the United States Supreme Court. Do you think any of the conservatives on the court, the six of them that are there now, are going to go, you know, come to think of it, I wouldn't mind being in the 10th Circuit in Montana for a while. That would, that would be fine. They're right. not going to do that. Well, there is no- what do you do about the Supreme Court? Because it is conceivable that a Trump-like figure could end up becoming chief justice and with a majority. Is that possible that that a Supreme Court chief justice could accrue a disproportionate amount of power? Well, sure. I mean, we're going to see it (laughs) with John Roberts. You know, I occasionally would debate John Roberts when he was just in private practice, and he always had these extreme right-wing views. It's, It's not a surprise He's just trying desperately at the time that there were occasional five to four decisions where he could be on one side or the other, looking like he was a serious jurist and a person who was not an extremist. Now he doesn't have to worry about that because he's got got five extremists already on the court. And we know that. How do we know that? We know that by some of the voting rights cases that came up to the court just in the last week. First in Wisconsin, could they extend the time necessary or permitted for uh, ballots to reach them be counted in Wisconsin? And a a lower federal court had said, yes, you, you can actually do that. You can do that. And then the Supreme Court this week said, no, 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 you you can't do that. Federal courts cannot make such decisions. So now, uh, once, I I think this being Friday morning for most people, it's it's almost too late to drop your ballot in the mailbox in Wisconsin with any degree of assurance that it's going to be. You go to the post office. What? You can go to the post office. Well, you have to get it. No, I, I, I don't know what the Wisconsin law is, but you, you can't drop it in a mailbox like you could two weeks ago and have it arrive in time. In Pennsylvania, a very similar case, except there the Pennsylvania Supreme Court read the Pennsylvania Constitution and said, we understand that you can extend the deadline. So now you have three days after election day to get your Pennsylvania ballot in the hands of election officials, including through the mail. 
Interesting. Well, that we- was, well, interestingly, um, Amy Coney Barrett did not take part in that case in Pennsylvania. But she didn't formally recuse herself. She didn't formally say, I'm not going to do this because I have a conflict. She just told the Supreme Court clerk, um, I need more time to think about it. That was a four to four decision in Pennsylvania. Had she participated in it, she would have undoubtedly shifted the balance and Pennsylvania also would have had a similar restriction about if it's not in on election day, it's not going to be counted. These are the things I think I said once, if I had my whole legal career to start over again, I would just work on voting rights because that's what it takes to defend what's left of American democracy. If you leave these six to three decisions in place, more of them come up. The Pennsylvania case, in fact, could come up again. Let's say Pennsylvania is close. I don't think it'll be that close, but let's say it's pretty close. Three of those justices invited the Republicans in Pennsylvania to bring the case again so that it won't be a four to four tie because they know with Amy on the court, they'll win. Mm -hmm. That's the scary stuff because once you have corrupted the courts as much as this Trump administration has done, there's no place to appeal. There's nothing you can do to appeal terrible decisions. And I'm reminded, as I'm sure you remember, John Kennedy once famously said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And he was right in the 60s, and I think he's more right today. You reach a point where even in this non-revolutionary uh, country, when you take away so many rights for so many people, that they start thinking about how do we make the dramatic change? And some people will go, I'm, I'm going to I'm like that Second Amendment after all. Right. Show me where the machine guns are. So how optimistic are you about Tuesday? We were just talking with Dr. Hershenfeld. The- no, I'm, I'm quite a, I mean, it, I'm quite optimistic about the results, but I'm very nervous about the lawsuits and I'm very nervous about potential violence on the part of Trump supporters. There, there's so many people. You know, in Massachusetts, which of course voted even for George McGovern, it's a very liberal state. And I'm not in the most liberal part of the state, but I mean, there are people with trucks, with huge Trump signs. The American flag is. And not just red, white, and blue, it's blue, black, and and white because it's a support for your police flag, but it's also a support for Donald Trump's sign. Right. If if worse came to worst, and I, I, I think Dr. Hershenfeld is right to be as nervous as he is. How um, bad would it get if Trump, I mean, what, what, this is... Yeah, I mean, the the two choices are Trump wins legitimately or he steals the election. What would you prefer? 
of those two that he that the American well, people I'd, vote him no, in or that he has to steal it. What I'd would you prefer? prefer? If he had, I'd prefer if he had to steal it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because that would be a motivating factor, not for everybody to go out. I'm never going to go out and buy a gun and shoot somebody. But yeah. but this this sense that there needs to be something dramatically done, as I've always said, because I've, I've been willing to vote for Joe Biden for months and months. You have to put his feet to the fire. You have to continue to put Nancy Pelosi's feet to the fire. You have to, with any luck, maybe get rid of Chuck Schumer completely right now. Don't wait for him to decide he doesn't want to run for the Senate again. Well, Pelosi already That's- announced she's going to run for speaker. She's 80. Yeah. Well, no, she she is. But but it's there has we have to be committed to doing the same thing post-election that we did last time. I mean, I was in Austin, Texas the Saturday after. So there was a women's march. There was an immigration march. The immigration march had more people in Austin than most of the Austinites had ever seen in their life. That's the kind of turnout. And what you do, you object to a bad policies of Biden. You say, push it more to the left or in or you write a letter or an email to all of your elected officials with the things you're most passionate about. And don't just say, no, oh, we won. Let's go have a beer. Mm-hmm. Let's won. Let's, let's go into the movies because they're opening 30% of the seats. We don't have the, we don't have the opportunity to do that. We can't rest on any electoral laurels that are appearing or sprouting on election night. Well, we have polled our virtual studio audience while you were talking. And the first question is, do you agree with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn? Will we know the winner of the presidency on election night? How well do you know my virtual, our virtual studio audience? What percentage of the people in our Zoom room said, yes, we will know who won on election night. What percentage agree with you? Uh, Let let me think about this. 52% agree with me. Well, I don't have the wrong sound effect. So uh, how do I tell you you're wrong here? I don't know. That's wrong. That's all I got today. Seven uh, percent agreed with you. Seven. I'm sorry. Twenty six percent. Twenty six agreed with you. Seventy four percent disagreed with you. Ready? We have a, we have another poll question. All right. You ready? You're not doing well. No. Okay. I asked the people in our Zoom room. Should the Supreme Court be packed? And by packed, I mean, should Biden put more on the bench? What percentage of our Zoom room think the Supreme Court should be packed? I would think 70 percent believe it should be packed. But I don't like the word packed. I like the word balanced or expanded. 70 percent. That's my guess. I'm sticking to it. 83 percent say yes. 17 percent say no. 
And our last question, one of these results I found interesting. I already voted. True, false, I'm not American. And the fourth one is no, I hate America. What, <laughs> what percentage of our audience has already voted? This is really interesting. I'm going to say 62%. I'm very impressed. 83% yeah. of our audience voted. 13% hasn't voted. 4% is not American, and nobody in my audience hates America, which means what I always suspected, my listeners aren't listening. <laughs> They're so busy in the chat room talking to one another. If they were paying attention, they would hate this country. <laughs> hey, on that first question, you know, that where I was so wrong, yes. uh, I'm pretty sure that that was um, uh, fake. I think, I think I don't believe that poll result. And I'm going to actually uh, file a lawsuit against you tomorrow and take it to the Supreme Court because I don't believe I could be that wrong. Before you go, because we have Professor Marianne Cummings, the commish, I want to play you. And it's a bit of a long clip. It's Rudy Giuliani, who I try to ignore. But uh, you're, you're a member of the Supreme Court bar. Is that correct? Yes, yes it is. You are a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Yes. And having experience with lawyers, I don't find this behavior uh, impossible. You tell me in a perfect world what an officer of the court what what an officer of the court should be saying and whether or not this is ethical or legal, and should he be disbarred or committed? I'm going to play you Rudy Giuliani, who is on with Kennedy. She's Fox Business News. I remember her when she was on MTV before you were born. Oh, I was born. And once again, no sound. Well, why don't you interpret? I can I can tell you right In away. Our news department. Something All right, here we go. Here we the go. The pictures. Okay, go ahead. He's accusing fifty okay. pic- ped- pedophilia now with Joe. The pictures you see fifty okay. pictures. All right, of come on, underage man. I, here's, here's what we'll do. Underage we girls. We will have. Uh, the people in our news departments verify all of this. Be- That's Fox News. Their de- news department. Because um, it sounds yeah. like there may be something here I, that is fishy um, that is causing Americans, it's giving them it pause and other stuff that uh, might have been. I've seen this clip and I've heard it, but of course I don't. Well, let my audience hear because right now he's talking about underage girls. Hang on for one second. It's just another 30 seconds. Completely adulterated over the 18 months. And some could say that you were acting like Christopher Steele, that, that you were abstracting information. And because you got to be kidding me. I was acting. I was acting like Christopher Steele. That's what it sounds like when well, you, you look at apologize. The people that, you, better, you better apologize for that. I mean, I've been a, I've been a United States attorney, associate attorney general, mayor of New York City and a member of the bar for 50 years. I've never been accused of anything. And you're accusing me of being Christopher Steele. 
I'm accusing you of That's acting outrageous. in a capacity that similar to, to Christopher Steele and that similar you were going back and forth between Ukraine of justice? and the United States. What you are States. saying is an outrageous defamation of me, of my reputation. Every single thing is here. And I want you to look at it and would, then you apologize to me. Well, you can you can you can come to my office and you can look at it. And tomorrow night you can apologize to me for Fair saying enough. I'm like Christopher Steele. I told you there are underage girls there. There are. I told you there are documents that show that he's getting 10 percent. There are. There are documents that show that he's getting half of what he's saying gets. that the there girl are. looked 23. And when they're there, I want you to apologize to me okay. because you I just defamed me. Absolutely. And that's outrageous because you have no basis. No one can that. hear. Uh, I came on your audio show in good faith. Oh, you can't hear the audio. That is being no. withheld from the no, audience. Kind of to like, you know, imagine what he's saying. Nobody could hear the uh, audio. No, they couldn't. No, they could not. Okay. I, well, just looking at it like idiots. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm learning how to do this. So uh, let's bring in Professor Marianne Cummings. Hello, Professor Marianne. Hey. How are you today? Oh, uh, I'm doing well. Um, so before, can't... let me just, because in case people didn't hear that, uh, and okay. I hope they did, that's Rudy Giuliani claiming that Hunter Biden is trafficking underage girls and that oh, of course it is. and that <laughs> he's an officer of the court. He's a former U.S. attorney and he was the mayor of New York. This becomes the news. This is news. This is Fox News, where sure. the story becomes Rudy versus Kennedy. And we're talking about this. Nobody at Fox News, all the millions of dollars they have. I know it's Fox News, but this could have easily have been on CNN, MSNBC or the Today Show. Nobody's investigating this stuff. Is there what? what and Glenn, Glenn Greenwald leaves The Intercept because Thank you. nobody will investigate. The left won't investigate Hunter Biden. Is there anything, Professor Marianne? On Hunter. Well, he was, uh, I didn't read all of his, uh, he's got a sub stack now, so I have to go see that, I read the whole thing. But basically, he's been having a trouble with the New York-based editors of The Intercept for quite a while. They're not allowing any mention of Biden, Joe Biden, in articles that might be negative about Joe Biden. Now, I remember... Um, Matt Taibbi was in an interview, maybe it was Joe Rogan, but, you know, he remembered covering the Hillary Clinton campaign. And there were a lot of people pressuring the reporters, the reporters pressuring themselves not to report too negatively on Hillary Clinton, that there wasn't really a whole lot of enthusiasm for her out there. And it was just all kind of roses they wanted to make the reporting you know, um, cheery and more upbeat and more positive. And he says, you know, that didn't help Hillary at all because all that did was make her team arrogant and kind of clueless and, you know, just a little bit almost reckless sometimes in their disregard for just basic optics and who they were going to try to get to vote for them. So, you know, um, Trump is, he's a compulsive liar. But, you know, Trump's lies are being like vetted 
every, um, almost every day, except when he lies about stuff that the Democrats actually agree with him on. But, you know, the, the idea that, that Biden could go through this last debate with, with uh, Bernie Sanders and hardly anybody's calling him out on just the blatant lies he was telling, like, uh, he was talking about, I think, George Stephanopoulos in the town hall he had about a couple of weeks ago actually felt compelled to kind of gently nudge him on an issue because Joe Biden said, I didn't want to, I didn't want law enforcement to be that that rigorous. That was that was the governor's doing, blaming it on the governors. When mm-hmm. you know we've got hours of uh, of YouTube videos from C-SPAN with him bragging on the floor of the Senate about how he wanted everyone arrested up up to and including jaywalking, and he had the death penalty for 59 offense. I mean, he's out there bragging about it. So even George Stephanopoulos had to say, you know, I think you were pretty hard on crime. But my point is, is that, you know, the left is really making a big mistake. If they think it helps Biden, it ultimately doesn't help. didn't help Hillary for all of this for people to be self-editing about what they really saw on the ground. Uh, Marianne, yes. are you suggesting, though, that the mainstream media helped Hillary Clinton or thought it was helping Hillary yes. Clinton? I, think I, it, I disagree with that 100%. Why is it that when every, every time that Trump would have a, a campaign rally in 2016, CNN, MSNBC, well, CNN's the word, they would they just cut away... And cover it in its entirety. Yeah, well, that was in the primary. And by the way, remember, that was the Hillary camp scene of talking, urging their friends in media to promote what they called the Pied Piper candidates. They were Trump mostly, but also a Ted Cruz. Candidates they think they could, that they could beat. They could more, and then the polling showed that Hillary had a, the best chance against Trump than any of the rest of them. And so what that did was normalize Trump's behavior. I mean, it worked too well. I mean, it normalized Trump's behavior. It pushed out almost all coverage of Bernie Sanders. I mean, they never covered his even bigger rallies and even his more enthusiastic supporters. And I I think they were just, you know, they talk among themselves. Like Barack Obama, they didn't see... They, they were happy at first when it was Bernie Sanders. You know, they thought, oh, Bernie Sanders, it's great. It's going to be nominal opposition. We're going to brush him aside. They did not understand. They did not see the Bernie Sanders phenomenon coming. But they also didn't see the Barack Obama phenomenon coming. No, so, but I, I was actually talking about the general election in 2016. Okay. Hillary's campaign rallies were... They were not seen as such exciting, necessary to break away from whatever their talking heads were saying. But with Trump, and I think if if they were honest, they would have said the reason we did it is because he might have made news. In other words, he might have made some other stupid gesture and insults him. He could have asked somebody to punch somebody else in the mouth. But that's they gave Trump so much airtime. And Hillary made huge numbers of mistakes. They thought that they were going to bury Trump with it. They thought that, oh, my God, I mean, this guy is like, you could even see it in the polling, too. Trump would make some horrible remark and, you know, there would be slight dip in his ratings. But 
I think most people just look, what they didn't understand is that most people would look at Trump and go, holy crap, he said that? Well, no DC consultant told him to say that. I mean, they were, it was, it was really, I think they didn't see that when they were trying to hurt Trump or trying to expose Trump, they were in a weird way with his base actually helping him because they hated DC. They hated the system. I was going, when I was canvassing for Bernie, going from Democratic primary voters in consultant to say that. There was always a few Trump supporters, and they said about the same thing. Yeah, Trump's crazy, but they hate the system. They just hate the system. They like Bernie, but they're not going to let Bernie win. And, you know, it's, it, I heard the same thing over and over again. Sure. And I had to push back on that. Well, you know, you vote and Bernie wins. That's kind of how this works. But I think that this is – but what my, my original point was that, like, everybody just – solidifying their support for Biden so early without demanding, without demanding that he, I mean, these are existential things, like climate, you know, this is existential for a good chunk of our population. I mean, people on the left should have been going, how dare you, how dare you promise to veto Medicare for all, if it comes to your desk, because he didn't have the excuse that, oh, it's never going to happen. You know, well, when he was asked specifically, oh, what happens if it does come to your desk? Would you veto it? And he said, yes. And of course, everybody is like, instead of out being outraged about this, and, they, and that's how you would have pushed him to the left. What power do you have to push him to the left? When he's already won, maybe he wins by large margins. Then everybody and all the neocons and all the neocons around him go, ah, you know, the, the, the progressives, we don't have to listen to you at all, at all. As a matter of fact, they will be wanting to make, make grand bargains with Republicans, the progressives, they're going to crush and try. I think I don't think it's going to work, but... I'm trying to warn the young activists I deal with around here that, you know, don't be surprised Either way, if, if, if Trump manages to win, they're going to blame you. If, if Biden wins, they're going to tell you to shut up. We've got midterms. Don't buy, I mean, he's inherited immense. How dare you criticize? You know, it's, it's never going to be a good time to criticize Biden from the establishment Democrats' point of view. Yeah, so you might as well just do it. That may be true, but it is up to people like us who are to the left of Biden, whether we're going to vote for him, and I know you're not going to vote for him, but it's up to us to try our best to make the biggest changes possible. You can't change anything with Donald Trump. And I, by the way... Well, you can, but not for the better. Not for the better. I think CNN wants Trump to win again. I think MSNBC wants him to win again. I... Joe Biden doesn't have control. It's better television if Trump wins, and it's even greater television if he steals the election. If this goes on for months and months in the courts and people are screaming and guns. Well, Reverend, I have a I have a question for you. Yeah. Because this is absolutely just unfathomable. The the absolute passivity of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in this uh, Barrett confirmation process. I mean, Jacobin and other lefty journals, even, even the Young Turks, you know, Cenk Uger, 
laid out how they could postpone this this confirmation. They, as James said, they could probably postpone it until inauguration day. But all they needed to do was postpone it two to three weeks to have an effect. Mm-hmm. What if she wasn't going to be uh, confirmed until like two weeks from now? Yeah. That would have... That would make a difference. That would make a huge difference. Of course it would. But they didn't do it. It was in their power to do, and they didn't do it. What in the world is going on with, with their thought process? Well, it's, it was in their power to try. You know, you, don't, you lose automatically if you don't try. And so all of those procedural things that I've been talking about, that Sank was talking about, all of those could be tried. The only time it was tried was in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which has a rule that says it cannot conduct any business unless there are not one, but two members of the minority party there. No one from the minority party was there. They went through this, I thought it was kind of goofy, these cardboard cutouts of their constituents. But Lindsey Graham noticed that, I noticed that nobody's from the Democratic Party is here. We don't care what the rule is. And the only way you could appeal that decision is to go take it to Mitch McConnell and say, let's take a vote in the full body about whether I could have proceeded, I should have proceeded, even without any Democrats present. And, of course, we all know what would have happened then. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. But the other things, the calling for a live quorum call, there's never anybody on the floor of the Senate. And they should have started this weeks ago when they were debating rodent eradication programs and having a a national bison day. They should have insisted that all of those be passed only by a physical quorum required under Article 5 of the Constitution. And they didn't do it because they don't, they, the left, in my experience, In those rare times when the left and the right actually, for ideologically different reasons, came together to do something like fighting the reinstitution of the draft, the lefties would, they go home early. The conservatives, the libertarians would stay there forever. So this is, it's not just a gripe I have with the Democrats in the Senate and the House, but it's with the whole idea of what the left movements do. I think things have changed. I don't go to a lot of lefty conferences anymore, but I do think things have not changed enough. There's still a sense, and this is what I'm afraid will happen when Biden wins. There will be enough people who held their nose and voted for Joe Biden who are going to say, you know, there's not a damn thing else I can do. And it becomes then a self-fulfilling prophecy because then he doesn't move. And Chuck Schumer's in there for life. And people like OAC are not going to be able even to challenge him in his Senate race, which I certainly hope she does the next time he's up for the nomination. I hope she does too. But I'm going to take a little issue with you is that uh, that there is nothing getting done even now with this buffoon in the White House. Um, All over the country, People have been forcing change on local police departments because of the Black Lives Matter movement. We have a, uh, a, a, a guy that Howie Klein knows very well, uh, John Lash, who ran against Hastert in 2006, 
and uh, almost beat the Blue Dog Foster in 2008. This is in Illinois. This is in, yeah, the Aurora area in Illinois. It was the 14th congressional district. Now we're even redistricted into the 11th. He's running for mayor. And just him running for mayor and us coming out with a big, uh, with a big splash and, and uh, the media and everything else. Suddenly, the current mayor and the police chief want to, st- to uh, sit down with the various civic leaders and have a talk about, you know, reforming the police, about, they're not going to call it defunding, but allocating resources to other Mm -hmm. aspects of, so just the fact that John is running, I actually think he's got a good chance to win, you know, that's, but, but then that kind of makes your, that it's kind of a counterexample to what you have observed, you know, the left in general, that people think they vote, okay, nothing I can do, well, even when it's hopeless, those of us on the left, uh, the progressives around here, surrounded on all sides by extremely hostile Democrats. I mean, really Democrats are making a splash anyway. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, I, I promised uh, the aforementioned uh, doctor. Give her Ryan my best. Before you go, go uh, this is the best we have on Greenwald Substack about mm-hmm. what he had on Biden. The censored article, this is why he left The Intercept. This is from Glenn Greenwald's new Substack. The censored article, based on recently revealed emails and witness testimony, raised critical questions about Biden's conduct. So, as I understand, unless somebody knows otherwise, Greenwald is contractually obligated not to reveal his criticism of Biden, right? We don't know precisely what he wanted to say about Biden. Is that correct? That appears to be what is happening. The Justice Department, by the way, just conveniently uh, earlier yesterday actually admitted that there was an investigation of Hunter Biden for money laundering that they've been doing since 2019. It's so convenient that they would do this in, in part to, uh, you know, just to muddy the waters. I, I think even Ted Cruz, who, as you know, I, I, I think uh, less than nothing of, uh, but even he said this Hunter Biden thing coming up at this point in the, in the election cycle doesn't gain Trump one vote. Ghosts and- of Comey. I mean, when you look back at Comey's announcement, Professor Marianne, well, a week before the election, the FBI announces they're reopening the investigation. You don't care because you weren't a fan. No, no, but the, was, are you talking about when they found the, um, the emails um, on, who was it, uh, Uma's uh, husband? God, what was his name? I always forgot about it. Wiener. Wiener. Anthony, Wiener. Yeah, now that was an unforced error. I mean, this is them being incredibly sloppy. It was an unforced error, but... I don't think changed a single mind at this point, at that point. Now, what was, and I actually don't fault Comey for that. That was a procedural thing that he had to do. What I did fault Comey for was uh, earlier when he came out and there, there was a criminal investigation regarding your emails, but he decided not to prosecute. If you want to stay out of, knowing that there is just a hair trigger, you know, a, a, 
amount of emotions out there and it's a presidential election, you go and you make that announcement. He made that announcement that said, but, oh, there's lots of really troubling things and there was a lot of really wrong things and I just didn't think I could prosecute. You know, it's like, shut up. Then you should have prosecuted. So what you've done, he's trying to like straddle both sides. He made both sides furious because he didn't really clear Hillary when he didn't. And, and on the other hand, the, for the other side, it's got, oh, wait a minute. So she did a lot of wrongdoing, but you couldn't prosecute. So there's a separate rule for people. In, I mean, it was horrible the way he did it. He was just not savvy or something. No, but, but, but the right, Mary, and the right took that and said, look, even Comey, who they didn't yeah. hate at the, at the, as much, they said even he said they're all kind of wrongdoing. Yeah. And then as David points out, a week before, he finds this laptop yeah from Anthony Weiner, the most hated man in America. And he knows it's Weiner's computer and that everybody's going to know that, and they find it. And then, just days before the election, he makes his third statement that helps Trump. He says, well, you know, we look through that laptop, and there's nothing there. And that ticks off the Trump people again. So now the Trump people are ticked off. The Hillary people are ticked off. I couldn't care to this day one blessed second of what Don, of just what Comey thinks about one issue in this yeah. country. Not one issue. Yeah, I just you know they the, the there was a fluff movie on, on HBO about yes. him. They did look. They made a movie a few years back where well Hank Paulson for God's sake was seen right. as the hero of the financial crisis. It was like it's crazy. They they always do that. But I think it was pretty much what Bernie said over a year before. You know, I don't give a, I don't care about your damn emails. <laughs> you know, I, right. I think that was now, and he should have. I mean, like a lot of people thought that you know that was not politically smart of him to do. But he's honest, you know, and I think a lot of people were just that way. So it's too bad because I thought Comey, you know, years before showed a little courage when he confronted was it. Alberto Gonzalez. When Ashcroft was in a coma. When Ashcroft was like dying or in the ICU from like gallbladder or something, and they wanted to sign off, he and Wu and all these little trolls working for Dick Cheney wanted to sign off on torture. And I think Ashcroft says, I can't, this guy is the, you know, attorney general and he pointed Comey. Comey had gotten word about that and ran to the hospital and confronted these guys, so... He was yeah. and, and Obama picked him because of that. We have yeah, to say yeah. goodbye to the Reverend Barry W. Yeah. Lynn. Can yeah. you give your wife a, a message, Reverend? I will. Uh, when it comes to COVID-19, tell her, I told just say, I told you so. I'll tell her that. Hey, let me do one piece of publicity. Yes. Uh, you know my website, www. Yes. BarryWLynn.com. It's got coming attractions. It's got some things that I'm doing in the next few days. Everything from a um, a church service on Sunday. You're doing um, church services on Sunday? We did one last Sunday. I'm doing another one. Ooh, wow. And, but, just to the yin and yang it, uh, the, the thing I mentioned that uh, two girls, one microphone, my discussion of my uh, efforts to stop censorship of pornography is also now available as of Thursday of this week. What time is your church? It's at 
on the East Coast, it is 11 o'clock. That's, Coast, a, that's very civilized of you. It is very civilized. Wow. And I'm only doing, it's kind of a half of the sermon, but I'm talking about what do you do if the world falls apart next Tuesday night? Okay. Great. Bert Thank Ross you. is joining us, so I'm going to say goodbye to Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you. Brilliant as always. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you always. When we come mm-hmm. back, we will talk to the former mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, who stood up to the mafia and then became energy czar of New Jersey and gave us the gift of the right turn on red. Stay with me. It's time right You can now hear this, right? For the David Feldman yeah. Show. Okay. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Is that I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Uh... Well, I can hear you, Bert. Let's lower the good professor. Hello, Bert Ross. Joining us. Hello, Hello, David. You look great. For for somebody who's barely alive, yes. That's what I was, you let me finish my sentence. Magnus in Sweden, very quickly. How are you, sir? Good evening. I'm fine. How are you? Good. Good morning, Magnus. Magnus is Swedish. Uh, Yes, I, as fa- I used when I when I was in Sweden, I would announce to everybody, Jager and Svenska Poika. I am a Swedish man. And everybody would laugh because if you look at me, you realize in the in the Svenska, not Swedish. In the uh, Philip Roth also, novel. Uh, also not a not a poika. Yeah, that means uh, boy. boy. Boy, not man. Correct. Yeah. So Magnus, I uh, for man, so I went with boy. <laughs> what's happening in Sweden? Are you watching America? Any message you want to give us? I know you're. Uh, well, I just wanted to add to the Trump derangement syndrome, uh, hullabaloo, uh, and that is, uh, I think there are like two sub branches of it. Uh, first is uh, Trump enragement uh, syndrome, which is people are just very, very angry. Uh, either shouting or uh, just in disbelief, uh, a sort of emotional nihilism. Ah. Uh, And also there's brunch arrangement syndrome, which is the ignorance that leads the liberals to talk about brunch. (laughs) About brunch? Yes. Yes, yes. It's been a meme for weeks. Come on. Yes. 
Is that a cat I hear in the background? Yes, this is a cat that is also confused about what uh, time it is. He thinks it's dinner time, but dinner time was uh, quite recently. Ah. Do they have IKEA yeah. in Sweden? What? Do you have IKEA in Sweden? Never heard of it. Oh, okay. I was That's thinking right. of the a huge Swedish company in in America. Yes, furniture company. Yeah, and they're Swedish. Yeah, American pastoral. Bert is the Philip Roth novel. Yes, I read it. Yeah. And there was the Swede, the Jewish man who they called the Swede because he kind of looked like he wasn't Turkish. Remember? Magnus, where in Sweden do you live? Thank you for... Uh, in the capital. But I, uh, I missed the... Uh, uh, what was that? The, the Swede, wasn't it because he looked like a turnip? Or am I thinking of something else? No, his daughter became like a Patty Hearst type. She ran away with like a Symbolese Liberation Army. Okay, group. I have no idea. <laughs> I was thinking about something else. Do you read Philip Roth in Sweden? Is that Philip K. Roth? No. No, just Philip no, Roth. Then I have never heard of him. Okay. All right, Magnus, let's talk to Bert Ross. Yeah, instead of me, put your firstborn on the line so I can take the answer off the air. Okay, thank you. You know, I'm pissed off, Bert. Mm. Can you hear me? Yes. Because I want to run clips, but uh, for some reason... Now, can you hear this? I hate to bother you, but I wanted you to respond to this. So let me try and see if you can hear this. Let me see if I have everything set up properly. Okay. Can you hear this? No. What? Yeah. Do you mind if I spend the next six hours trying to get this to work? Would that be annoying? I, it, it's, I, I mean, it would be so wonderful to have a few minutes where I don't have to listen to him. Your husband. Can you hear him now? Column. Do you hear him now? They want to get back to work, right? They want to get back to no. work. You don't hear him. Well, no. you're lucky. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I wrote a column, which is probably going to be in next week's Malibu Time, about with, it's called Trump withdrawal. It's a new syndrome which is if by some miracle he loses, the country will have nothing to talk about. Uh, I fixed it. Hang on. Partners. I'm sorry. You want to work on this. Okay. Hang on. Work, right? They want to get back to work. We're getting your husbands back to work and everybody wants to hear it now. You know what else? I'm also getting your husbands. They want to get back to work, right? They want to get back to work. We're getting your husbands back to work and everybody wants it. That's sweet. What their he has such a 1950 mentality. Get your husbands back to work. See, the women in his world don't work. Right. They're, they're home. The whole thing about MAGA, Make America Great Again, is going back to the 1950s where um, the, you had uh, the whites. You, you weren't aware of the blacks uh, in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I went to public school. Uh, in elementary school, we didn't have a person of color. Now, there were 
a significant African-American population the other side of town. We didn't know it. We weren't aware of it. There were no people from Asia. There were no Hispanics. Um, there, um, Ozzie uh, and Harriet, that was the kind of image. Uh, right. even, even Lucy and Desi, who in real life were married, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnett, slept on television in different beds. And they were controversial because he was Cuban. That's why they slept in different beds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I didn't realize that connection. Yeah. She was pregnant. It must have been the Immaculate Conception. Separate beds. Um, There were no gays. They were all comfortably, uncomfortably in the closet. Right. And, And women made sure that when their man came home, dinner would be served. Period. That's that's the image. So I can understand his talking about getting the men back to work. Did you have that? Because you you are of a certain. We had a traditional uh, 1950s family. My uh, mother was home. She had been a a substitute teacher. In those days, women were either nurses, teachers uh, or secretaries. By and large, most women uh, certainly, uh, women in the suburbs, white women in the suburbs didn't work. They raised the family. My father commuted each day to work. He left at seven or seven thirty and came back at six o'clock. And it was a, uh, tumultuous thing. When he came home, there was excitement. The dog started to bark. You could hear the garage door open. We were trained not to go into the garage until he parked the car and came out and he got each night a hero's Welcome. Was he the man of the house? Was he respected? Well, he was, believe me, my mother was strong. The problem with their marriage, they lasted, I don't know, 60 something years, fought the entire time, was that they were both strong personalities. But in terms of certain traditional roles, uh, he paid the bills. Uh, he, He came home. It was kind of a sacred thing for him to open the mail. And uh, mom made sure that the food had been bought and, and prepared. And do you uh, think had there been had there been second wave feminism by then, she would have been out the door? At least getting a job. I, I don't. I doubt it. Um, the. She never, I had been a sick kid. I had uh, double pneumonia, measles when I was three and almost died. And when I was seven, I had polio and was in the hospital in Jersey City for five months, which was horrific. uh, Jersey City Medical Center to me was like reading about an orphanage in in one of Dickinson's Dickinson's books. Dickens. Dickens. I'll be all right. Uh, so you day. you you had polio and did they put you in one of those? No, that uh, an iron lung was when you had uh, your lungs were paralyzed. And I in those days, the respirators were iron lungs, and all you could see was the head of the person, and you would hear this sound just for anybody frightening image for somebody seven years old to see somebody in it, there were one or two people on the ward in those iron lungs. They were massive and they were frightening to a little kid. 
So what was the treatment for polio back then? They, they had no treatment. The, what they had uh, at the Sister Kenny Institute there um, was they would give you a couple of times a day hot packs. Very, very hot. And then they would do physical therapy. Uh, one of them was so hot that I have a scar on my leg from it. And the reality is, in retrospect, that after 10 days you weren't contagious. And so there was no reason in the world to take a, a seven-year-old kid and keep him in the hospital for five months. That would never have been done today. Now, they said that the massage that was given to FDR made the polio worse, that massaging the legs. Well, is- I, I did not have um, massage. It was, it was physical therapy where you, you, um, you exercised. Um, and like in a stroke, uh, you know, when I went in there, I couldn't walk. And then my left leg came back pretty quickly. And I, to this day, have virtually no muscle from the knee down. And so for many, many years, I wore a brace. And then finally, I had a couple of surgeries uh, up in Boston, Boston Children's. Uh, it was certainly the low point of my life. Uh, and that's why I felt um, beyond emotional when Trump was separating families and you see these young kids and I wrote a piece on it. Um, it, uh, it just, a uh, inexcusable criminal act. So what did you do? So you, you, you were sent to Jersey city hospital because you had polio because you had, you were contagious. Is that why they kept you in the hospital? No, what you <laughs> You were quarantined in the hospital for 10 days. I'm doing this a long time ago. This is literally 70 years ago. But my understanding is that the period of contagion was was not very long. The reason I stayed was that this this, uh, Sister Kenny Institute in Jersey City Medical Center had a great reputation for bringing your muscles back. And so we stayed there and had, had that. My parents literally... And they were the only, I can't tell you how many people were on the ward. My guess is 30, but that again, this is 70 years ago. My parents literally every single day came. My father worked in Newark. I'm sorry, worked in Elizabeth. I met my mother who had to take two buses to get from Teaneck to Jersey City. And he would meet my mother there every single night and bribe the nurses to get there. And every night, they would order from a local Howard Johnson's hamburger, French fries, and orange sherbet pretty much for five months. In five months, I was allowed home one time, which was Thanksgiving. Absolutely inexcusable. I'm not blaming my parents. They thought they were giving us the best, the best treatment possible. I'm a little upset um, because I, I, I heard in some interview that Alan Alda had been in a Sister Kenny Institute. Uh, he had polio also. And I tried reaching, you know, when you try to reach these people through agents, it's it's just impossible. They they think they're doing a great job by just protecting everybody. And I just was dying. I had never spoken to anybody who had been in the Sister Kenny Institute in that ward. And I would have just loved to have talked to him about sharing our experiences. And I had met Alan years ago when I was mayor of Fort Lee. He lived in Leonia. The gentleman, and I, I tried reaching him and just... You know, 
I can't imagine if he knew who I was and remembered me. He, how could and, he and not remember you? Call. He, uh, who the hell he, um, he, he lived in Lee. He wouldn't yep. have called, but you know, it's just annoying. You can't, you can't reach these people. So uh, in any case, he has a, a significant Parkinson's uh, today. Right. Right. So when, here, by the way, a friend of mine, I'm sorry, who's a, a, an accomplished doctor said that, uh, that one of his peers that Parkinson's, and went to Cornell, and they have this uh, fairly new treatment, which has been approved by the FDA, uh, where you go into a um, uh, what's it called that that uh, it begins with an M. It's not it's not a microwave. It's not a CAT scan. The other thing, um, MRI. Yeah, thanks. You go into that MRI chamber, and you have to have your head shaved, and they can direct ultrasound to a specific spot in your brain. He was in it for three hours and he could feel the tremor stop. And he, I don't think he's had a tremor in a couple of months since. Wow. Rather dramatic. Uh, anyway. Thanks. Yeah, my grandfather had Parkinson's. Uh, it was back then. It was horrible. No, it's horrible today. I mean, I've, I've lost some friends uh, from it. And it's a, a, if you don't die from something else first, it's terminal. It, it, you, you die from it and then uh, it's pretty bad. It's one of those many diseases that's bad, but this seems pretty hopeful. Well, let's, uh, I don't think it, anyway. Let's talk about something more cheerful. How's COVID in L.A.? <laughs> well, the numbers everywhere are just going, going berserk. How bad do you think it's going to get in this country if he gets reelected in terms of COVID? Because Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, no, said, we're not going to control this. We have a magic bullet. Yeah. We, we have the vaccine, <laughs> which well, everybody, you know, that all of Trump's supporters are, are pro-vaxxers. They would take a government funded vaccine in a second because they trust the government and they trust the medical community. Oh, well, wait, they don't. You have a, you have a, a the son, the skion of, of Robert Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., who lives in Malibu, uh, has been horrible on the issue of uh, mandatory vac- vaccines. Recently, for, for decades he was. Oh, for, for decades. And... My guess is that there will be a significant part of our population who will refuse to get vaccinated. But we're going to be living with this for some time. I believe in Anthony Fauci. I believe he is is beyond a pro and he's a mensch. Uh, And we will have some vaccines. We, first of all, don't know whether these how effective these vaccines will be. Some of them may be 70 or 80 percent. Uh, and secondly, some of them may require a booster. And we don't know if, like the flu shot, you need to have them every single year. Uh, the one thing we do know is that they will not be widely distrib- distributed for a long time. And if, if the government's rollout of the vaccine is anything resembling the way they've treated the vaccine up to now, God help us. Um, I. I think that people such as myself will be early on in terms of being able to get it because I'm because I'm 77. I may be phase two. 
but it's still going to be six or eight months. And, and during that period of time, my guess is that we will be losing every bit of a thousand to fifteen hundred people a day. Uh, cancer and heart, heart and cancer are the one two leading deaths in this country. They, I think, heart something like six hundred and sixty thousand. Cancer, you know, what the third like is six hundred and thirty thousand. If we lose a thousand a day. And I think we're pretty much averaging that. Then when you get into March, when we started to count, uh, you're going to have half, 350,000, more than half of cancer and heart. I mean, you know the third leading cause of death in America is? Absolutely. Um, the, Do you know what the third leading cause of death is in America? It's COVID. Medical error. Me- medical error. Well... I did not know that. And I, yeah, I'm of course sure. you didn't know that. Your, your daughter's a doctor. It's one of the dirty, dark secrets about our healthcare system. One of the leading causes of death in America is the cure, is the hospital, is your doctor. Well, I've been fortunate. Um, I have, and I thank my mother for this have been to top doctors all my life. Uh, I think people, the average person does not understand that every doctor did not graduate in the top half of his class at medical school. And the average doctor didn't go necessarily to one of the top medical schools. And so they think all hospitals are equal, all doctors are equal. I have been blessed with top-of-the-line doctors, both in, 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 on the East Coast and now on the West Coast. Okay. Give me, if, if I have to choose between somebody who went to Harvard Medical School or one of your so-called lower-tier medical schools, I'll take the lower-tier medical school. Trust me on that. I, I don't doubt that you would do that. Um, and I won't even ask you why, because that... that that is just, um, how do I say politely? Um, I'll just say uh, I don't agree and be polite. Read David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, which you did. I, and, and it says in that book, don't go to a doctor who graduated Harvard Medical School, go to Grenada, the medical school in Grenada. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, I'll go, I'd rather go to Cuba. Cuba has a better, you're more likely to get a better okay. doctor in you Cuba. You know what's wonderful? We have a country where you can do that. What? And so my suggestion is that when you see, when you go into a doctor's office and you see that the doctor went to Harvard or Yale or Columbia Medical School, I'll take, you get the fuck out of there. And I'll go to Cuba. I'd rather go to Cuba. You go, you go wherever you want. I, I am perfectly happy. Uh, one of my very dearest friends, who is as good a doctor as there is, uh, is graduated Harvard Medical School and is head of ethics at Columbia uh, Hospital and is, as far as I'm concerned, he walks on water. Uh, and I'm sure as far as he's concerned as well. 
Well, you know what happened to you in Sweden? You contracted Stockholm syndrome. That's what happened to you. I wonder where where in Sweden he lived, by the way, Magnus. He's he's an Italian guy from Queens. In Stockholm. Do you live in Stockholm? Yes. Hey, tell me this is true. I have this fantasy. Please tell me this is true. That to get out of Stockholm, there's only one bridge and there's a four day traffic jam in Stockholm to get out. Because it's Stockholm. That's where Stockholm syndrome comes from. Huh? You are half. You are half correct. That's where Stockholm syndrome comes from. You can't get out of Stockholm, right? That is uh, completely unrelated. Uh, you are half correct about the traffic. Uh, <laughs> what are you in Stockholm now? I am in Stockholm now. What time is it? One fifty-three. Hmm. You're up. You're up late. Uh, or very early. <laughs> the or very early. My. Uh, my brother's first wife mm-hmm. was uh, a stewardess. A she was her a stewardess was in the concentration camps. And I'm sorry, what? I, her family were welcomed in Sweden and she lived in Sweden until she was about 19 or 20 years old before she moved to the United States. And so uh, her uncle was the uh, conductor of the Swedish opera for many, many years. Um, Wait a second. Kurt, your 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 brother Philip, who wrote the book about you, yes, he married hang on. Tana. Huh? He married Tana. Tana, who, who she went to a concentration camp. Well, yes, it's, uh, the way you say she went. I mean, yes, she, she was, survived. Yeah. A, she survived. Her, her mother. Her mother was killed there. Okay, she survived a concentration camp. Yes, she still girl. couldn't. Survive a marriage with your brother is what you're saying. I've never thought of it that way. She went through a concentration I camp. Bet, I bet. I bet she never thought of that either. Tell Philip he must be one lousy husband. <laughs> Should I call him? Call right him right now. now. Tell him that. Tell him right now. Well, is he still in love with his uh, childhood sweetheart? No, you know what's wonderful is that they really are good friends. And for many, many Who? years. Who's good friend? My, my brother and Tom. Oh, I was, okay. Uh, and and uh, quite often um, she's, she's there for Thanksgiving. Uh, and when Phil married his third wife, who unfortunately died a couple years ago, uh, Tana was very good friends with Barbara. So... Uh, she's a special human being, extraordinarily well-educated, never having gone to college. Uh, but because of her, I was in Sweden, I, I don't know, three, four times and, and loved it. Uh, what are you country. reading? I am reading now a great book called Splendid. Oh, about Churchill. Yes. Eric Larson. He's great is just a great reader. He takes history and... and Novelizes. He takes into a novel. Of, of his third or fourth book of his that I've read. Yeah. 
but strange. It must, it must be a very popular book because two people uh, whom I've been speaking to recently, uh, recently said they're they're in the middle of it also. I've read the sample. I, when I have time after the election, I want to read him because I've read his other stuff. Garden, the one about the ambassador yes. to it, Nazi yes. Germany. That's his most famous work. Um, in, where the in Berlin um, prior to World War II, fabulous and, and won all kinds of awards. And it's a, it's basically a novelization of of history. It's all based. Yeah. He doesn't make anything up, but he writes in a way that it reads like a novel. Yes, and 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 I love it. Yeah, yeah. exactly correct. Right. You know, it's amazing um, when I look back at history. Uh, learning history in school and how boring it was. The, so much was based on memorizing things, you know. Um, and you realize why as a country we're lacking, so many of us are lacking the ability to think critically. Mm-hmm. Because you don't learn how to think critically if all you're doing is, is, is doing things by rote. Um, so the question of why certain things happen seems to be absent. I'm not, I'm generalizing obviously. Um, but you, you see a Ken Burns documentary or you read a book like that and you realize how absolutely exciting history can be. What are you eating? Champagne. Hmm. Yeah, I'm getting hungry. And cauliflower and carrots. I'm against cauliflower. I consider cauliflower a Gentile vegetable. Really? Uh, a Jewish vegetable. You know, uh, there are quite a few Gentile vegetables. Um, uh, broccoli, definitely a Gentile vegetable. A Jewish vegetable would be, would be corn. Jared Kushner. Corn. Corn's a Jewish vegetable? Absolutely. What makes it Jewish? Cob, on the cob? Because I like it. Oh. <laughs> I did something when I was a uh, much younger. Joan still can't can't believe that I did this. We're in Englewood. We're in this beautiful old house, Victorian house built in the 1870s. Englewood, New Jersey. And, yeah. There are a lot of Englewoods and Englewoods. There's one in Colorado. There's one in... in uh, there's only Colorado. one Englewood. It's in, in New Jersey. Jersey. Yes. I think there's an Englewood in, in California. Inglewood. Well, it's spelled the same way. No, the one with an I. Do you know why Anglewood Cliffs was founded? No, why? Because they gave women the right to vote. And Allison, remember Allison Park? No. Well, oh yes, sure, the park. I thought you meant the person. Yes, great. They seceded from Anglewood and founded Anglewood Cliffs to Hmm. deny women the right to vote. And here comes Professor Harvey J.K., who was born in Anglewood, New Jersey. Not only was I born... Oops, hold on. Can you hear me? Yes, it's good to see you, sir. Not only was I born in Anglewood, New Jersey, I am on a Fort Lee committee. Now? There is a a project, unless it's been to put up a monument to Thomas Paine, correct? Well, you know that Bert Ross is the former mayor of Fort Lee. I know. That's why I'm mentioning this. Well, wait a minute. If you're on that committee, I would like to suggest there be a statue for me. <laughs> really? 
<laughs> no, I could care less. No, there should be. Amazing is they have not named a water fountain after me, not a tree. I am the only living former mayor of Fort Lee. What years were that? Were you mayor? Sorry, I was. I was elected in November of seventy one. Yeah, wow. and I was appointed in October. Or October, I think, of seventy five to be head of the energy office. So I served a tiny bit less than the, than the full four year term. Okay. But so this man stood up to the mafia. I understand that. Yeah. Professor. And not. Do you live in Fort Lee? Sorry? Do you live in Fort Lee? No, I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Like that's so any better. I, be I, I was born in Englewood. Here's the deal. I was born in Englewood. I grew up mostly. Well, I lived in East Patterson as a kid. I grew up mostly in Paramus. Yeah. And, and some, this goes back uh, several years ago. A fellow named Tom Meyer, is it? Who's a cultural affairs Tom guy? Tom Myers, unfortunately, according to a mutual friend of mine, said that Tom suffered a, a significant stroke several months ago and is in is in rehab and, and has had some uh, deficits. Tom was a councilman of the um, historical commission and a good man. Yeah, that's terrible because, um, oh, geez, that explains why I haven't heard from him for sure. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, so some years ago, they, he led a, uh, uh, an effort to create and put up a statue in Fort Lee. And the, in fact, the sculptor up in the Hudson Valley is got, I could even show you a, no, I don't have it here. I could show you a picture. He's got the model. I don't know how far in the casting they've gone. So I was the historical advisor to that because as David will tell you, I'm one of the, one of the key scholars on Thomas Paine and I, my politics are informed. I, I've liked Thomas Paine ever since I was 10 years old. So, uh, What was Thomas Paine's connection to Fort Lee? Okay, so as you know, Washington's army came across, sure. right? And the, the, the march across New, New Jersey. Retreating the retreat, from New York City. Right, the retreat began, well, Nathaniel Green's army was in Fort Lee. He was one of the, one of the finest generals Washington had under him. So Washington's army comes across, and Paine is in Fort Lee at that time as like an adjutant to Nathaniel Green. And so that's the first time he and Washington actually meet and they begin the trek across New Jersey. And uh, somewhere around Newark or Elizabeth, the story goes, is when Washington suggested to Payne that he write a new pamphlet. The, the original was Common Sense that okay. he should now write the pamphlet that came to be known as The Crisis. So Payne begins the, the composition of the pamphlet while he's with Washington's army. About halfway through the retreat, Washington writes to his cousin, one more blow from the British and we're, it's all over. But by that time, Payne is, is now well into writing the pamphlet. Washington gives him permission to leave the army and go to Philadelphia to get it printed. Not long after, in December... Copies arrive at Washington's uh, encampment on the west side of the Delaware, mm -hmm. and he orders that this pamphlet, These Are the Times to Try Men's Souls, be read to his army, mm. that all the officers read it to their men before they board the boats to go back across the Delaware to win the Battle of Trenton. Yeah. So it's in Fort Lee where, if you like, this next stage of the revolution takes place. Mm. And it was from, from Fort Lee on the heights there, looking across 
to, sure. to Washington, what later becomes known as Washington Heights, that Payne himself is writing correspondence and journalism back to Philadelphia. So he's there in Fort Lee. And uh, I never knew any of this. I was, uh, I have a dear friend named Armand Pohan, who was very involved in the, the history of Fort Lee, especially the movies, because it had, believe yeah. it or not, in the silent movies, Perils of Pauline, et cetera. It was the capital of. Yeah, of no, I tell everyone it was the, it was the original uh, Hollywood. Yeah, and, exactly. And it, it also then explains the cliffhanger reference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so, Professor. Yeah. Are we going to win Wisconsin? This is the big question, right? Um, I know the question. I'm looking for an answer. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I can only vote so many times to guarantee it, right? Yeah. Where are you living now? Are you still in Fort Lee, by the way? No, I'm in Malibu, California. <laughs> which is, um, it's a strange thing. I People ask me, you know, what, what do I love most about Malibu? And it reminds me of when Hugh Hefner, the publisher of Playboy, was on the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. And Hugh Hefner was talking about the, the great writing uh, in, in Playboy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Norman Mailer, et yeah. cetera. Sure. And Johnny Carson finally heard enough of it. And he said to Hugh Hefner, excuse me, Mr. Hefner, but if somebody ripped out the centerfold, how many people would buy your magazine? And everybody laughed. <laughs> and the analogy I'm using is if you take away the weather, I probably wouldn't be in Malibu. It's a great place. But today, like yesterday and tomorrow, was 73 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. The only problem is that the the song, It Never Rains in California, uh, I never realized was literally true. And it's <laughs> yeah. now been somewhere between six and seven months since we've had any rain. And when I say any rain, wow. I mean not a drop. Well, that's dangerous. Yeah, right. Well, it, it's... And, and we have kind of the, the worst timing because what you have are six or seven or eight months of, of dry, bone-dry weather. Then you get these Santa Ana winds over the mountain toward the ocean. And if you have a spark in the air, that creates damage. I lost my house two years ago with 500 other homes in Malibu. And then the rains come after the fire season to give you the mudslides. God forbid the fire season should come first, in which case you wouldn't have fire. If the rain came first, you wouldn't have the fire. So you should speak to somebody about that. That's a good idea. I'm going to drop a name. A friend of mine had a place in Malibu. I don't know if he's held on to that one or not. Norman Lear. Oh, I've never met him. How did you, how do you know Norman? Well, again, Thomas Paine. In fact, it's, I was, I was on Bill Moyer's show a few times and one of them was all about Thomas Paine. In fact, that was the weekend that I actually ended. I was I did Bill's show and I spoke at Fort Lee to start raise to help raise money for the statue. Mm. And so Norman saw me and called and said, oh, you know, I'd love to for you and me to talk. I've got some ideas. So he flew me out to out to L.A., though we were up in Brentwood at his then estate. And um Anyhow, so because he was a big fan. He's of in his nineties. He's in his nineties. He is still active. Yeah. Uh, what? He's ninety-eight. It looks well. Absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Um, now, right. Professor K. He's he's bearing the big lead. He programmed Turner Classic Movies. He had a night at Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. 
Can you imagine Ooh. that? Yeah, I'm this uh, unknown celebrity, I guess. So how did you end up in Green Bay? You're not impressed well, that he had a night on Turner Classic Movies? Wait, Bert or me? I did. Did Bert too? No, no I'm asking no, Bert. You're, no. But are you just I, so consumed I, 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 by I, I, envy I that you... When you said it, I didn't understand it. They asked him yeah. to program an evening and explain why he picked the films on Turner. That's all I watch is Turner Classic movies. He was with Ben Mankiewicz. Yeah, Ben oh, and I became friends. Bill Moyers. Bill, is Bill, Bill Moyers okay? I haven't seen him on television in any capacity for years. I met yeah, he him. Deci- yeah. He, back he decided, in the- he's 85 and um, 86 now, maybe. And he decided, oh, it was a f- few years ago that it was time to retire from television. Okay. His website is being maintained by a small team, and he is doing some podcasts right now where he'll, okay. he'll interview people and they'll put it up on the, on the, uh, on the site. By the way, this I'm reminds me of every I'm conversation. This reminds me of every conversation I overhear at Arts Deli in the Valley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just three guys. Bill Moyers, does, does any is he still doing television? Bill Moyers, what do you? I know Ben. That. I met him uh, when we went. Uh, I was at college, and we went down for some kind of a. I guess I was head of the Democratic Club, and we went down to Washington. And he was working, I think, for Johnson. Yeah, he was and the met president. Met him at a cocktail party. Johnson. Class, bright class act of major league. You know, where'd you go to school? A uh, Harvard. Uh, nice. Which which is going to get David into a into a fit of how terrible Harvard is, and if we can only abolish Harvard and a few other institutions, the world would be infinitely better. And I have to hear that crap. How did you get to Green Bay? Well, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Was that David you were talking about, or Bill Moyers who said David? That? David. I'm oh, sure David. Bill Moyers would agree with me. No, he wouldn't. Yes, he would. <laughs> Professor, how did you get to uh, Green okay, Bay? So, so when I got, when I got, there were five universities. Okay, so I, I got my PhD in 76. And I was when I went looking for jobs, university jobs were very hard to come by at the time. But there were a, a set of universities around the country that were set up to be interdisciplinary universities. So the one in California is UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. The one in New Jersey was Ramapo College up in uh, I know Ramapo sure. in Mawa, okay. And no. then in in Massachusetts it's a private school, Hampshire College. Anyhow, UW sure. Green Bay was set up to be one of those interdisciplinary universities. Gotcha. And my degrees are in history, political science and sociology, so I wanted a place that wouldn't limit me. And this fortunately they took they, they offered me a job. So now have you noticed how many years have you been there? I believe I've been here. This is forty-two years. My lord, Do you, so you are definitely aware that around now it starts to get brisk. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> yeah, we're down in the thirties. About yeah, I went out for a walk this evening. I walked, took a little mile hike, kind of thing. And when I came in, I, I, I didn't put a warm enough jacket on. That's all I can. But tell you, you felt yeah. great. Green, the Green Bay right. Republican. The city of Green Bay is generally voting Democratic. Good. The, the congressional district is Republican. And do you have any sense uh, about this election at all? Yeah, I do. I, I think, okay, here's what I think. I think that the, the thing that will ultimately decide 
that Wisconsin will go blue again, as it usually does at the presidential level, is the fact that we are a hot spot, a truly a hot spot of the virus. It's terrible. You have more cases. You have considerably more cases. What's the population of Wisconsin? Well, I don't even remember. Sorry, but go ahead. Well, it's it's not too many million. Right. You have more cases or as many cases as we do in California, and we're almost 40 million people. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's, real really, it's no terrible. Question. It really is terrible. And uh, when you say terrible, county, the county that I'm in, Brown County, has has generally been a place where things are particularly bad. Um, maybe the industries. But I'll tell you what it really what really brought it on in Wisconsin is the fact that the Republican legislature has opposed every initiative by the governor to try to limit the spread of the virus. So whether it's masking in Brown County, staying at home or shutting the bars, the legislature does everything in its power along with the Tavern League to go to the courts and have it overturned. I mean, sometimes we get it overturned one day and then turn, you know, then it comes back the next day. It's not a consequence of the return to university that brought the, the new spike. It's because the bars are are so important in people's lives here that they've they they overlooked the danger. And Green Bay, of course, is the Packers city. We're only a city of a hundred thousand people. Uh, yeah, I, I I thought that was remarkable. Now you have you have uh, Coach Lombardi uh, memories. I'm not that. Far. I came in '76. He was already. He had gone. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, when I was in Englewood, I went to the cleaners. Ah, and sure. this was this was a couple. Vince uh, Lombardi's Coach from Lombardi. New Jersey. Coach Lombardi uh, was the football coach at uh, I think it was called Saint Cecilia. Saint Cecilia, that's exactly. And it. so I'm a jet cleaners in Englewood. This is I don't know two three years after the coach died of cancer. He had then right. I think gone to the Washington uh, Redskins. Right. And I see Coach Lombardi. And I don't know what to say. I I know he's died, and I know I hadn't been drinking. This was in the morning. And I finally went up to him, and I said, I, excuse me, sir, but are you related to the late Coach Lombardi? Yes, I'm his sister. And he, <laughs> he, beamed. he beamed. It was his younger brother. Uh, and it was remarkable how, how close they looked alike. Remar- that is remarkable. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> well, most people wouldn't know he had a brother. But- one, of my, one of my older cousins, he must be at least in his 80s, he, um, who, who grew up in Teaneck, I guess. Yeah, and that's where I was fact, born. Yeah, oh, really? Okay, so yeah. he, um, he was a, a, journal- a sports journalist for The Record. Bergen yes. Record. Sure. Yeah. And every time he and I talk, it's he. It's all about the Packers and memories of Lombardi. You know, he had he had the opportunity to meet him a number of times in Jersey. So the first time I spoke to Burt Ross, he was the energy czar of New Jersey, and I was a Cub reporter at the Jersey the, the Hudson Dispatch. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you t- how you met. Well, it's a long story, but he was my hero growing up. Uh-huh. And he was not nice to me when he was the energy czar of New Jersey. Something about the mafia trying to kill you oh, makes you yeah, kind of right. edgy. You were you were on edge. Bert. 
I obviously have no memory of it. You obviously do, and I feel bad about it. Uh, my wife once interviewed me, uh, and fortunately, I didn't come off badly to her. <laughs> See, it was a phone interview, and then we met a few years later. When you talk Wait, about your, your wife, her, before you were knew each other, she interviewed you. Yes. For for this is in Jersey. Yes, I was. I had moved to Englewood, and she was working for the Board of Education, and they were doing some calendar or something about famous people who lived in Englewood. It, hang on, let me yeah. explain. So let me, young. Bert. Hang on for one second. Hang on. It's not just any calendar. He is a sex. Symbol. I'm not making this up. He is oh. a sex symbol in certain corridors of Bergen County. My my sister. I'm not making this up. Okay. When I was growing up, my, my sister had a picture of Bobby Sherman, a poster of David Cassidy, and several articles with Bert Ross's picture on it, in it, on her wall. There it's were kind of a limited, Professor, that's a limited corridor when he refers to his sister. He was, a, this man, I'm telling you, he's a sex symbol. And when his wife was interviewing for a calendar, did they expect you to pose with or without your shirt on? Hmm. I'm curious. What a, pleasant, what a pleasant thought. Why is it, though, that when you list me as your guest, yeah, you have all this bullshit about, you know, right turn on red, but the, the sex symbol is never mentioned. I've mentioned it in the past. Yeah, but it's not, but you don't put it in writing. Do you know that my sister's knees went weak? When we met you at, at the reunion, she goes, that's Bert oh, Ross. Would you please send her my regards? What, what reunion? <laughs> what was the event? What was the, what, we, we met. We met. People forget. I don't know if they know. David is an accomplished stand-up comedian. And go on with that. that fi finish that it's thought. It's nice Bert. of you to say that about him. Finish no, your thought. Is. They, there was a reunion at, at Dwight Morrow, the public high school in oh, Anchorage. Yeah. Right. Uh, my wife had graduated there. Mm -hmm. I don't know what reunion it was, but they had a number of performers who had graduated. As a matter of fact, Richard Lewis uh, did some kind of virtual something. And, they, and there was a, somebody was, got up and, and told jokes, and he was horrible. It that was, was me. That was me. No, it was not you. Oh. The Isley Brothers? The Isley Brothers performed? That guy was terrific. Yes, he was. On the guitar. He did the national anthem or something on the guitar. Right. Great. But there was a comedian uh, who was terrible. And, that, and then David got up and did maybe 10 minutes of material which he had written himself, including there was some reference to Anglewood Cliffs. And I just laughed hysterically. I thought he was terrific. And he was. You were. Finish your thought. And then continue. Afterwards, Please. we went to have a little snack at the cafeteria. Now, talk more about it, my performance. <laughs> <laughs> this was my this was my line, Professor Harvey J.K. I uh, OK, I, I said. The, it was it was a benefit for Dwight Maher High School. Great, great. Yeah. Great high school. And I said, some of you might remember me as the class clown. And I just want you ladies to know, like, like Pagliacci, on the outside, I may have been laughing, 
but on the inside, I was masturbating. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get a laugh. And everybody, my sister was there. Don't don't do that. I'm doing that. I always tell people that. That I was born down in Englewood General Hospital. I, I, I was actually was actually born in Englewood, and but David was born up the hill in Englewood Cliffs. You know, he's a rich kid. No, I was born in Brooklyn. You were. And Englewood Cliffs isn't. It sounds better. It, we were redlined. If you were of a certain ilk, like my mother and father, they were ilks. ilks. They weren't shown. They left. They they didn't want that ilk to ruin Anglewood or Tenafly. We were redlined into Anglewood Cliffs, which is one of the most disgusting cities on the planet. The most disgusting people are from Anglewood Cliffs. You know, and it continues. They continue. It's the most racist city. Even people from Boston visit Anglewood Cliffs and go, "Is this place racist?" David, David, what? What college was it? I was just going to say, there you go. What college did you do the graduation talk that was so terrific? Uh, in Finish, your thought. Finish your thought. What? Uh, what? Pitts, Pitzer College. It was hysterical. You, you performed at one of the Claremont schools? I did their graduation. They had, I'm not making this up, Samantha Powers, the expert on genocide, spoke one year they decided they wanted a comedian and they foolishly asked me it was like 10 oh years my ago God, they probably haven't recuperated it was great you know they offered me they, like a schmuck they said would you want to teach a course here and I, and i thought oh, i'm a comedy writer what what do i have to teach what what would you what would you um i would have taught uh, british marxists in the 60s I've always wanted to teach the the British Marxists. Maybe FDR. They got that, they got yeah. that from your. They got that from your introduction. <laughs> they heard that introduction and said, "You'll teach British Marxists." No. Cool. In another life, Professor Harvey J. K. Yeah, I, I wrote a lot of books. Is one of the leading authorities on British Marxists. Yeah. By the way, I'm reading FDR and Democracy. You're reading that now? Yes. And, you know, as I'm reading it, I swear to God, I'm reading your introductions to each of his speeches, and I'm going, I can't believe Harvey J.K. comes on my show. I was, and I was also listening to some of the speeches. He was amazing, that, that FDR. People, you know what? I, I, exactly. Excuse me one second. I'm going to do what we do around this time in California, which is have dinner. Professor, I very much enjoyed meeting you. And I you, Bert, and I you. Thank you. And this David, was this was the only thing you? the only thing missing were were sour dill pickles from this meal. <laughs> I wish there was like a little cabbage and so, I felt mm. like I was in Arts Deli. Bert Ross, yeah. American hero and sex symbol, please give my love to your wife. I will, I will. He means I it. He, he means it. Too sweet. Gentlemen, be well, I'll well. see you next week. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, but Bert, if if the election goes well, I'll see you next week. If not, I will have committed Harry Carey. So long, my friend. Thank you. Professor K. Yeah, let's just spend a few minutes before I don't want to get in the way of Emil to uh Emil Emil's on. Uh let me let me uh ask you a question. 
Monday, yeah. you popped in and you popped out and then we communicate. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't I, I get really, out of bed. I didn't Tuesday. want to cut that off. It was a, look, I mean, Adnan, was the woman with Adnan that evening related to him? I, it's I, his partner. His partner. Okay. They own, yeah, a, I mean, uh, they own a chain of dry goods stores in Kingston. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so old. I introduced, I, you know, listen, I, I just introduced. Anyway, move on. I, I No, I was going to say is I, I really did not want to cut off those conversations. And I knew I had to move on to do something. So I, I figured I, you know. I could no not get out of world. bed Tuesday. I, I, By the way, David, I was I so depressed. You, you never answered me. I sent you a, an email and a text and I said, do you want to talk? Because I thought you had something on your mind that you might want to talk. I, about. I, I couldn't get out. It was the elections. I, I hate to admit this, but I'm like I, this Tuesday. I did the show on Monday. And I Tuesdays is when I kind of is it's the one day of the week where I relax and I I this and I and I sense the same thing from you that you are like really and I sense it from a lot of people it's there there's no more artifice right we're going to find right. out who we are as a people on Tuesday we're either going to find out that he's more popular than people because you know, nobody's going to answer uh, that I'm not so. Sh- I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm, let me put it this way. I, I'm. Somebody asked me the other day, a Tuesday night. I did a, a Tuesday night. I did this um, radio show that it's out of Boston, but it's also broadcast in Madison. I did this radio show, and they they asked me, uh, well, how are things looking in Wisconsin? You know, the polls seem to indicate that Biden's you know at least several points ahead. And I said, I'm not I'm not allowing myself any optimism. I can't afford that emotionally. I, I just can't do that. And I can tell you that the one thing that's led me the the most optimistic article I've read was a piece. I think it's either in The Washington Post or The New York Times today about just how much women are moving to Biden. Right. OK. And and that to me was was more important as a sign of hope than any other thing I've I've looked at because that I because last time my when I saw certain events unfold I I don't have to repeat myself but back in 2016 I really did believe that women did not did not have any affection whatsoever for Hillary and I was worried that she was going to lose in Wisconsin and she did and I I had other kinds of evidence to, that led me there but this time, I just have this feeling that, you know, I don't even know if you have to be a, a mother or a grandmother, whatever else, but you know that the current president is a, is a threat to your loved ones. He's a rapist. In both the man the is a rapist. Sense, right. In the most intimate sense and in the most public sense, he is a threat, truly a threat. Now, I will tell you, when I, when I get, at, get in a car to do a little sort of escape from the house and we drive out, I see Trump signs all across the countryside. But I can also tell you that here in my very, very large working class neighborhood, I think I've seen only two Trump signs. So you want to hear my theory? Let me just finish. Let me just finish this one thing. 
I do not see Biden signs, but from the beginning, I've said that there's been inadequate preparation regarding that. And I think that people who are just generally going to vote already know they're going to vote for Biden here in the city. And the, the sign outside wasn't essential in any way. Right. Whereas the Trump people, I think they're I think, you know, they're kind of smelling the fact that uh, not only does he stink to high heaven, but also that he's going to be pretty much the, the you know. So here's my I, theory about yeah. anecdotal evidence. First of all, the polls, it could be tighter than the polls are showing, because if I were voting for Trump and I get a call from Gallup, I'm not going to say, oh, as a matter of fact, I do hate black people and I hate Arabs and Jews and gays. Yes. Yes. You have my phone number and just, yes, mark me down for hating blacks and Mexicans. So I don't think you're going to tell a pollster who you're voting for. But if you have a house. I'm going to put a Trump sign in front of my house because nobody's breaking into that house because they figure you got a gun. And if you're voting for Trump, you've sold everything for for food and electricity. I would put if you want to stay safe, if you don't want anybody to break into your house, put a Trump placard on your lawn. Nobody will break into your house because they think you have a gun and you'll use it and you have no money. Yeah. That's why I think you see so many Trump signs. I think most yeah. of those people. No, but I, look, the other thing is, I don't for a moment believe that merely because people are voting in certain places, you know, so early and everything, you know, the percentage is so high that that's a guarantee at all that it's a, that it's going to be a Biden outcome. But, but this is something else. I'm trying to pile up enough anecdotal evidence that I can at least sleep at night until uh, until we find out what happens. I was up the other night at three in the morning and I just literally in fact, I was listening to Fugelsang's show on demand from Sirius XM and didn't make me feel any better about anything. Um, but here, here's the thing. So my daughter lives in Brooklyn, as you know, and she the, a couple of times went over to the Brooklyn Museum to where she's supposed to vote. And the line went all the way around the museum and the parking went completely around. OK, so the wait was a, a long wait. And she decided she'd just, put, you know, put off, you know, for another couple of days. But this is the thing. Everyone knows the outcome in New York. They know it. Okay. Cause it's going to go democratic period. And there's no other, there's nothing, there's nothing at stake in the New York down ballot to my knowledge at all. So I think that the, if the turnout was that intense, I think people are just utterly convinced that they want to make sure that they go down to vote because they want to see him go down on Tuesday. That's the, those are the kinds of pieces of evidence that give me a bit of hope. Because otherwise, the polls don't do it for me. I actually trust the anecdotal right now more than I do the polls. Before you go, take hold of our history. Yeah. Here's my question. How important is history? Forget Trump. How important is history to... Bill Barr to John Roberts. Aren't these monsters, and I do mean monsters, still yeah. playing to history so that are they going to let 
I mean, if he loses on Tuesday, do they want to be remembered? Does Roberts want to be, you know, Tawny, chief, you know, the judge Tawny? Who yeah, ruled? it's funny. Each one of them has their own thing. Barr, I don't trust at all to ever do the right thing. Roberts, as the chief justice, here's what I, my proof of what I'm about to say is that he actually cast the deciding vote to sustain Obamacare, which I never, ever expected. In fact, had I been on the court, I would have been torn because I think they, I would have more readily approved universal health care than Obamacare, given the fact that there was no precedent for the federal government requiring people to buy, to buy private commodity, you might say. OK, but that's it's OK. So he, he saved it. He said it was a tax. He did a yeah. better job he than the solicitor. He literally redefined the whole. Right. right. Which is, by the way, just very questionable, nevertheless. Right. And he may well change his mind this time in, in an upcoming decision. But I just don't think I don't think he'll decide to to endorse the stealing of an election. I don't look Kavanaugh. I can't vouch for. He's already shown his willingness, his willingness to redefine the meaning of the vote. You know, RBG, however much I resent the fact she stayed on on the court as long as she did, I believe she was the one who said, the only question is whether or not you're going to count the votes. And democracy is about counting the votes. So, you know, there, there you go. David, can I just say something yeah. for next week? I, I don't I, I don't. Usually I'm the, I come on on Monday nights. I, I don't want to come on on Monday night. Okay. It's too, it's, I'll, I'll be rattled on Monday night. Would okay. you be willing to, if I decide to but do. I'd like to come back Thursday night. Whatever you what want. I'm, I'm just thrilled. I'd be very happy to come back Thursday <laughs> night to talk. Cause either we're going to talk about now, what do we do? Or now what the fuck do we do? So here, here's what I'm thinking of doing. I'm thinking of doing a Tuesday night show in addition uh-huh. to Monday night show, but to do a show Tuesday night at midnight, like start the uh-huh. show or like early Wednesday morning. Huh. Uh, it, it's when, hard for me to imagine myself falling asleep that night. So what, you know, if you're going to do something late at night, I, 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 that I, I would be interested. Yeah. I think yeah. at midnight, we're going to know whether or not we know. Yeah. And if, Something. T- yeah. I just got the chills. I, something tells me we're going to know. Huh. Well, I think of you as a prophet. I wish it were spelled the other way. I wish you thought of me the other way with, <laughs> with an F instead of a PH. Harvey J.K. Yeah. is the author of FDR and Democracy. Pick this book up. It'll inspire you. Once upon a time, there was a president who, who taught the rest of the presidents, how to communicate. Right. Uh, and thank you, David. And, and just let me know about Tuesday night, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I can be there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Follow David. Harvey JK on Twitter, at Harvey JK. I'll take you out with Mike Steinel, and then we'll... Oh, good. Talk. I won't go yeah, just I yet, know. I want to hear a bit of that. I know. Okay. Uh, just come on Monday night so I can play this. Uh, coming up next, Emil Guillermo will be with us. Enjoy yourself, Emil. Hey, thanks, Harvey. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot to I say. I love this. So do I. About <laughs> Thomas Paine and FDR. 
St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. JK wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical, won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK. Professor, that is Professor Mike Steinell, and it doesn't get—it just doesn't get any better than that. He's doing everything. He's writing, and singing, and doing all the music. It does not get better than Professor Mike Steinell. What a privilege that he would make music for this show. Well, this Saturday night, nine thirty. It's the COVID Town Squares with the irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamacki. All proceeds go towards Henry Huckamacki's research and education. The two of these men have been on top of COVID-19 since, since it was just, uh, just a little spark in Donald Trump's eyes. <laughs> and now it's, it's gotten so huge. Uh, this show will be our Halloween special, and we want to celebrate with you. Tickets for this show will be available for as low as $6.66, though higher donation levels are available. We have fun perks. I'll go over the tiers in a second. But we've lowered the price. This economy is not turning around. And we, we're selling tickets at $15. And it occurred to us, I read our Discord groups, we have Discord. Andy Brown will tell you about our Discord groups, our different channels there. $15 is a lot of money, so we've lowered the ticket to $6.66. 
and we'd like everybody to attend the COVID town squares. We're only selling 100 seats and all the proceeds go towards Henry Huckamacki's research and education and go to davidfeldmanshow.com, click on the pay-per-view tab or go directly to Eventbrite and search for COVID Town Squares 5. Very quickly, here are the tiers. We'll have time, Emil. I'm getting no problem, a cup no of, problem. I'm pouring a cup of coffee and we're going to Take go. your time, David. Thank Take you. Your- Thank you. We have you, then we have Alan Minsky. I think Jim Earl is here. He's pissed off at me. And then we have uh, Kelly Stone. So we're going to go for a little while. So anyway, we have the OG ticket tier at $15. We're in return for your additional donation. You'll get a postcard from me, David Feldman. It's a great postcard suitable for cleaning Salisbury steak out from between your teeth. Then there's the $30 tier. That's our super generous tier. And you get a postcard plus a funny credit at the end of the show. I showed them earlier. They're great. Frankie C. does the credits, and you'll want to get a screenshot and frame it. Somebody got a credit as Donkey Fluffer. For example, Emil, if you donated to the show, if you, if you took the $30 tier, we would give you the credit of Donkey Fluffer. And How about Donkey Plupper? Donkey Plupper, yes, of course. I have a screenshot on Curb Your Enthusiasm. My credit was Angry Jew David Feldman. That was my credit. And I have that framed somewhere in a storage facility in Los Angeles, along with all my other cherished items. So that's the super generous tier. You get a postcard plus a funny credit at the end of the show. $50. You get the sausage party tier. You get, for the sausage party tier, you get the uh, postcard, the credit at the end, suitable for framing, and you get to attend our next rehearsal. That's why it's called the sausage party, because you get to see not only how the sausage is made, you also get to see how it's eaten, digested, excreted, and how the fecal plumes we have neutralized are destroyed. Once they're neutralized, we destroy them. Let me show you what you get this is exciting. Do you know about my my product? Do you know about my my Plumex, Emil? Oh, I think I did hear about that the last time I was on. It's a a, a fragrance uh, buster. No, it's a fecal plume neutralizer. Now, as oh. you, I'm going into Alex Jones territory. I see. Because Plumex. the Federal Trade Commission, the Justice Department, they don't crack down. The FDA won't crack down on Alex Jones. I buy his boner pills and. You can't return them. Nothing. I'm selling fecal plume neutralizer because, as we all know, you can catch the corona from a bad plume. But if you go and get Plumex. Yeah, watch your plumes. The fecal plume neutral. Actually, so we have made Frankie C is a brilliant artist. She designed Plumex. And if you get this tier you will get sent to you a bottle of Plumex, the fecal plume neutralizer. Not only that, Henry will make a phone call to an anti-masker on your behalf and use science to convince that anti-masker that they need to wear a mask. Sometimes that that it takes, yeah. Right. 
Receive so a call. That's the say it and spray it level. Because you get Henry saying something, and then you get Plumex spraying it. There's another level, same price. Instead of say it and spray it, you can choose the turds and the bees ticket. That's where you get the Plumex. Plus, Henry will save you the awkwardness of giving the talk to a person of your choice. Do you have a teenage son or daughter who you feel should know where babies don't come from? That's the first, you know, is it for kids uh, need to 20, know where they don't come from. It's about 25 years too late for me, but yeah, that's all right. I know. Imagine how different your life would be if somebody sure. explained to you where babies don't come from. Maybe you have an anti-science uncle. Henry will give them a call and set the record straight on where babies don't come from. That's the turds and the bees level. Okay. You, you get the Plumex plus Henry explaining the, bir- the turds and the bees, the birds and the bees. And finally, the top tier is Hank's Shank, where in addition to all those perks that we've already told you about, you get a handcrafted Finnish-style knife. These are beautiful, made by none other than Henry Huckamacki. So let's make this Halloween special a success. We're going to take a month off after this so we can all be <laughs> relocated <laughs> under mine Trump. Uh, come and invite friends, invite enemies. Make sure to spread the ticket as far and wide as the virus. Let's make this show go viral. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the pay-per-view menu. It'll take you to Eventbrite. You can buy a ticket for as little as $6.66. All proceeds go to Henry Huckamacki's Research and Education. Thank you for uh, doing this. And I hope to see everybody this Saturday night at our pay-per-view event. We're going to be doing benefits every Saturday night. We're raising money for important causes. I'm glad you don't have a turds and way level. <laughs> Where were you at yesterday's meeting? We could have used that. Uh, that, that well, turds and way would not have been vegan. <laughs> I could not have supported that. Hey, I had Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, the animal behaviorist on, and I hope uh, you can come back and do an evening with Dr. I, Jen. You know, I, I like to. You know, my, my only reluctance is she's a scientist and I'm just a yakker. I'm like you, David. I'm just a yakker. You're brilliant. PETA, yeah. I, monkey labor. I, uh, I thought it was a joke. Monkey, monkey labor. labor is for real. Monkey labor is for real in Thailand. And it's uh, it's it's ridiculous. And and you can go to the PETA podcast. We talked about it. We talk about a lot of things. How do they podcast. get the monkeys to pick the coconuts? I mean, I don't mean to be. It's almost it's if it weren't so sad, you know, it's a, monkey it's a labor is thing. what it's a, it's a thing there where they, you know, that the tourists flock just like the tourists flock to the elephants. And you go to Thailand, uh, you know, it's monkeys everywhere. They're like as numerous there as, say, pigeons are in San Francisco or any big city. And they attack you, the monkeys. They they could. I've seen some. Most people feed the, the monkeys, and so they get kind of uh, aggressive. But, uh, yeah, you know, the thing is, they, they, have the, they have these farms where 
the monkeys are on display and they show the monkeys getting the coconuts and it's a big show. And, you know, Peter believes that animals are not for our entertainment nor for our, you know, nor for picking our coconuts. We can get our own coconuts, you know, and, that, and that's really, there's one farm. See, it, this happens with a specific kind of product. Like there's some, like the milk products are particularly bad, but there's some, some products that are good. Check the PETA podcast. I did a show on this and I talked to PETA Asians. Got, PETA Asia has a, a head over there who's trying to, to cut down or you know stop the practice. But uh, there are some coconuts that are good. Yeah, somebody um, asked earlier, can you recommend a righteously uh, sourced coconut? Yeah, there are some better coconuts and some coconut milk that is good, but... Uh, in general, I and have to, I talk, you know, just go back over the PETA podcast, but go just go to your, wherever you get your podcast, the PETA podcast. Uh, we did a thing on the coconut labor. And then that's, I, I understand that that would be a real concern of yours. Uh, the, you know, the, la- the, the mistreatment of animals, my goodness, the, the labor rights. Of but I, I have to be honest with you. Yeah, please. Monkey, when I monkey labor, monkey exploitation. Yeah. It's real. It's real. Look. Okay. So do they train the monkeys to do it? They do train the monkey. The monkeys do it naturally, but then they they go through a kind of training. I mean, it really is kind of, and and they stick them in the back of a truck. Right. That's how, that's that's the the negative thing. They actually do some deprivation, which is part of, uh, you know, how, you know, they get primate seducer and things. And and now I get people on this show to do things. Well, I know you deprive them of something. You say, here, 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 you bait them. Hey, look, you know, primatologist, I talked to a primatologist this week on the Peter Peter podcast, John Gluck. He's a bioethicist. He was one of the worst. He he trained under this legendary guy, Harry Harlow, who was the absolute worst vivisector, you know, deprivation, psychological studies. This guy was his uh, mentee and didn't challenge him. Finally, later on in life, he said, hey, look, this is divorced from my my ethical identity as a science. I can't do this. And he stopped. He became a bioethicist. And people can do that, except, you know, you are inculcated as a scientist. Now, ask Henry, you know, uh, when you go into science and you have a certain view about I don't trade, I don't test on animals. I don't vivisect. I don't, you know, dissect. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't, I don't do any cruelty. You will, you will be looked, you'll be frowned on by your, you know, colleagues, right? There's this brethren there. It's ridiculous, but it's true. And they will lie. They will do all these things. And David, this is science. This is science today and um the bioethicists are there to try to save the day but there's no no one no one talks to them except they, they talk to their small cadre you will, of you will be fortunately there's a younger generation of scientists who is saying you know we got to change how we do it because a lot of the things they find aren't applicable to human beings you know so it's baloney science it's just bankrupt science right. anyway that's on this week's Podcast. Okay. I just want to alert Alan Minsky from Progressive Democrats of America. We're running a little behind schedule and we flipped everybody around. So I have another 20 minutes with this patient, but I'll, if you can just strip and put on the gown, strip down to everything except your underwear and your socks. And you think then- I'm Jeffrey Tubin? <laughs> 
Jeff, Jeffrey Tubin, he's he, isn't he the Louis C.K. of uh, news commentators? <laughs> yes, the Louis C.K. Brett Favre. Uh, yes, that's it. Hey, look, you know, look, uh, Jeffrey Tubin went to Harvard, and I know that at Harvard, you know, they give you this red book. Back then, it was called the Facebook. It was a book of faces, and you held it up like you would a Farrah Fawcett poster, and either you, you either you got a date or you masturbate. I mean, that's the way it was. So I know he learned his he lessons. He learned his lessons well. They didn't have Zoom cameras back then, though. You know, uh, Bert, we're, I, we're lousy with Harvard, as I call them, Harvard assholes today. And I do mean assholes. I think if you went to Harvard, you're an asshole and you should be put into a re-education camp. Although re-education implies that you were educated in the first place. So just an about, education camp. What about Yaley's? Yeah, also. No offense. Uh, and, and Bert Ross w- was saying to me, Bert Ross was saying, you know, if he needs a doctor, he's going to make sure that the doctor went to Harvard. And, you know, I I forgot what I the point I was trying to make other than go fuck yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> with your $10 words and the uh, oh, that the point I was going to make is Je- uh, Jeffrey Tubin with his $50,000 a second education and he's too stupid to know how to work Zoom that he can't figure out to, to masturbate on a different computer. I'm telling you, he's the Louis C.K. of news commentators. I mean, and I, I, I'm telling I you, Reed David Halberstam's the best and the brightest well, because it's been appropriated. The title, the best and the brightest, has been appropriated. Oh yeah, it was sarcastic. The be- yeah. they got us into v- the best and the brightest got us into Vietnam, and they were all yeah. Harvard assholes. <laughs> They were, but remember, George Bush was CIA and he was Yale. Okay, so David. People who go to Yale are also Harvard assholes. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess they were too. But, but you know, the thing is, I wonder how soon Jeffrey Tubin will come back because he wasn't, he wasn't on for the Amy Coney Barrett things, right? And if he's CNN's legal guy. I don't know. I just just curious. I don't. I, I don't want to. Do we really want to talk about? Look look at Alan Minsky. Look, like, Alan. Do you know you're on camera, Alan? Stop it, Alan. Stop. <laughs> Hang on. What? No. I, oh, he's looking. For, hey, right. well, look. I can. I can top that. See, I. I don't think it's cute. I don't think you guys are being cute. I think. Hey, wait a minute. But this is an official trademark. No, no. I. I think it's. I'm actually offended. I'm being serious. Are you really? Yeah, I think yeah. it's offensive. Yeah, it is. It's damn offensive. And it's, this thing follows you around. You cannot escape it. I've never told them where I live, and they find me and send it to me. But, but I think, I think, this whole elite college thing, mm-hmm. th- these colleges have to be mowed down Look. and broken up. <laughs> I, I'm take the take the endowment. Hang on for one second, because I I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Uh, it's not a joke. It's not where you went to college. Right. It's where you say you went to college. That's the first thing. No, it's the, the idea that you can get the idea that somebody, some piece of shit who goes to Horace Mann 
and has rich parents and then can get into Harvard is more qualified than somebody who went to a quote unquote lesser school. You know who keeps track of the best schools? U.S. News and World Report. The colleges. Now, hang on for one second, because I'm offended and I'm pissed off now. U.S. News and World Report keeps track of what the best colleges are. U.S. News and World Report used to be a magazine, but they went out of business. They they didn't have the only the only business model they have is to have other colleges competing with one another. So U.S. News and World Report can say this is the best college this year. U.S. News and World Report can't do what it was supposed to do, which is report the news. U.S. News and World Report is a failure, and they're judging, they're determining whether Stanford is better than Harvard. Give me, it is garbage, and it's ruining, it is ruining our children. It's ruined our culture. It's creating a sense of both entitlement and inferiority. It is garbage. It is garbage. Education is not a BMW. David, I'm living and Harvard test- is a BM. Harvard yeah. is a BM. <laughs> David, I'm living testament to that. My my motivational speech or my demotivational speech is how I overcame Harvard. That that's I'm on I'm on the circuit. That's my but and yet, look, I still defend diversity over that Harvard lawsuit. Anyway, that's part people of think I'm joking. People think like Alan. People think I'm joking around. I, I mean know. it. No, there's section of the movie Manufacturing Consent, which is about Noam Chomsky. And it says that the regular population gets sports for the guys. This is the 90s or whatever. Soap opera and those crazy magazines at the checkout stand for the women. And the real indoctrination occurs for the elites. They have to be fully indoctrinated. And then, you know, the, the shows the people of the Ivies and the little footage that rolls. And my experience at Yale is that was 100% true. The kids got their Bar Chamadi said on the very first speech to the fresh incoming freshman class, you are the future leaders of America and nobody there rocked the boat because you know, you- 10% of the kids were, you were interesting and experimental and challenged themselves intellectually. Most everybody, you know, I can't speak to the kids in science. They were sort of, I wasn't a science major or a math major. You're but, not going to you know, get in if you rock the boat. You I, learn to color within the lines. Your parents are helicopter tiger moms who who don't want original thinking they spit back what you've been taught and from from that point forward for sure they were there to serve the ruling class yeah uh i i can't i can't disagree with you but there are a few people who name one well i i certainly Uh, okay see See? because i went to harvard that's for sure well there there are no original minds that come out of these red kavanaugh Sorry. That's true. <laughs> we, we, I, but I am serious. And it's why I'm for the Electoral College, by the way. Because you don't want to vote in the presidential election. No, because 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 New, New, I grew up in New York and I lived in California. And you know what? You get rid of the Electoral College and, you, and, you, and the future of this country is determined by these douchebags from Columbia, Stanford, Berkeley, all the Ivy Leagues and 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 the the flyover states are going to be neglected and it's going to be left to the 
best and the brightest. And that's why I support the Electoral College. These effing geniuses from Harvard and Yale are so smart, they can't even figure out a ground game to beat Trump. They know what the swing states are. They're so brilliant. But just well, like in you know, Vietnam, they sure. couldn't they couldn't win in Vietnam and they can't win the ground game. So they what, what these these self-entitled pricks go get rid of the Electoral College because we can't win this game. Go F yourself. Not you, Alan, not you or Emil. I've had some coffee and <laughs> I, I know the great the great antidote to this conversation. And that is if we talk about this Filipino American who was murdered in 1933, because finally I, something <laughs> cheerful. Yeah. Well, you know, back in 1933, it was not a good time for Filipinos. And if you and as the museum director of the Filipino American National Historical Society Museum, this is a story that when I first heard it, heard of it uh, just a few years back. This is a woman who was buried alive in 1932. And the trial made, made papers, made headlines everywhere. The New York Times, papers in Europe, a Filipino woman buried alive. And why this is important. How did she get buried alive? Well, here's, here's the story. This woman, her name was Cecilia Navarro, comes to America in 1918. The Philippines is a, is a colony. She comes as, a, as, a, as an American national. She couldn't find work except in the fields. She goes to the fields, marries a, a farm worker, 1924. Uh, she, you know, Filipinos are on the fringe, even though they're American nationals. And they have these fraternal organizations, uh, sort of like uh, the Masonics. So they have a, there's a group called the Caballeros de, de Masalang, CDA, and it's a, and they have a women's group. It's sort of like lions, rotarians, that kind of thing. You mm-hmm. wear fezes. Uh, and she was, she witnessed something. She witnessed a crime. And you're sworn to secrecy in these organizations. But she saw a crime. She saw a, members of the CDA beat up a, a white woman and take her away from a fellow CDA member because, there were a few Filipino women out there in the world, 40,000 Filipinos, and only 7% were women. So Filipinos were mixing. That was sort of frowned upon by white men at the time. She witnessed this crime against this white woman. She testified, and the four, four people were arrested and sent to San Quentin to prison. Because she broke the secrecy of the fraternal organization, she was shunned by the group, kidnapped, and put to trial by the group, according to stories. Well, She was beaten, and she was let go once. Then she was kidnapped again, according to reports. And then she was put on trial by this organization, the CDA, the Caballeros de de Masalang, in 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 a secret house in Stockton, California. She was made to kneel. She was beaten. And she was put to trial and sentenced to die, sentenced to be buried at midnight the next day. So November 1932, she was brought to a a Delta Island near Stockton and she was buried. Well, she was buried. She was she was presumed dead. But get this. They found her body later. She was not dead. She died of suffocation. So essentially, she was buried alive. Uh. It was a few weeks later, a member of the CDA went to police and said, there's a dead body here. You got to go, you know, you got to dig it up. They found it. 
They dug her up. This became a big story in the Bay Area, in Northern California. And it became a big story internationally. The New York Times reported on it. Because at this time, 1933, there was a strong anti-Filipino sentiment. They wanted to get rid of the Filipinos. You know, America, some Americans didn't want to be the imperial masters of the Philippines. And yet there, you also had these Filipinos coming to California and taking these jobs and taking these white women that was frowned upon. There are very few Filipino women. So this whole sexual jealousy thing is, is part of this story as well. So what happened was they arrested seven members of the CDA, put them on trial this this story goes out all over the world. It could have been the OJ story if if there was if Jeffrey Tubin was alive mm-hmm. back then. It could have been the OJ story. Well, what happened was seven people who were on trial were acquitted. They were acquitted, and there was never any justice for Cecilia Navarro. Never any justice for her her her, her family. And this story is in some history books, not all, not, not, there's not much Filipino American history in the history books. You got to go deep to heart, but it's resurfaced now because there are people of Filipino ancestry who are documentarians, who are journalists, and they're discovering these stories and they're saying, Hey, here's, here's this story that happened over, you know, almost, almost 90 years ago. And it, it says why exactly the Filipino community is the way it is. And it's it's resurfacing. There's this documentary called the Celine Archive. It's being shown at film festivals around the country. And the Filipino American National Historical Society is having a uh, discussion, a webinar on Halloween. It people talk about this story in the community as a ghost story, but they don't realize it's a real story. And then when they see this story and they see the component parts, they see how it involves women. You hardly ever hear about women from the Philippines in the 30s because they were only 7% of the population. They wanted a labor force to come over from the Philippines. They didn't want Filipinos to start. 7% of the Filipino population that came to America. Yeah, 40,000 who came. The census in 1930 said 40,000 people in America, only 7% were women. So you could tell that, you know, if you were a Filipino and ever all the Filipinos wanted to, to mate, you know, this is a, a social biological aspect of the story. You know, how do you have a Filipino family? You needed Filipino women, not in the twenties, not in the thirties, not in the forties, forties. It wasn't until after world war two that more Filipino women came in. That's when I was born after, you know, late in the fifties. And That's why there's this missing generation in the Filipino community. There was a lot of racism. This explains the racism in our lives. Fear of the men. Yeah. The men, these uh, patriarchal organizations. And then you had this, this, uh, she was accused of adultery. She, this, this woman, Cecilia Navarro, not only did she was punished for witnessing uh, the crime, this first crime, but she was also put to death because she was accused of adultery these male dominated secret societies put her to death according to reports it's a story in our history it happened in california in 1933 it was reported it was called in the local papal papers jungle justice because it was seen as oh look at these filipinos you know doing their thing and wouldn't you know this happens at the same time 1933 when the next year 1934 coincidentally the uh, Tidings-McDuffie Act is passed, 
which changes the status of Filipinos from American nationals to Philippine nationals and repatriates the Filipinos who are here. So essentially tells people who are Filipino here in America to self-deport. This was an embarrassment, this trial, and it helped to, to further this uh, this Tidings-McDuffie Act, which, um, I mean, there are other aspects of the Tidings-McDuffie Act because the Philippine government and the Philippines was in on that too. They wanted their independence. But for the Filipinos who were here as American nationals, colon, colonized Americans, they were kind of in this quandary. You know, what do we do? We're, we're on the fringes. And just a little Would part of it. Would you consider, uh, we, Andy Brown set up Discord for us, and we have these little Discord groups. Would you be interested in setting up a Discord group? Sure. Well, you let me know anytime. I'm always happy to do stuff uh, with uh, the David Feldman show. Yeah. I, you know, this is a story when I first heard it. Tell me about the uh, museum that you're associated well, with. It's a community grassroots micro organization, right? It's a, a bunch of people. We raised some money in the community. We said we need to preserve. Well, plug the museum first. So we. Well, all right. The Filipino American National Historical Society Museum is a, like a 1500 foot gallery, square foot gallery in downtown Stockton. Downtown Stockton is sort of like the it's like the Cleveland or the Detroit of California. Right. It's like this urban core of a city in the Central Valley. But this is where the Filipinos were in the 20s and 30s. My father came from the Philippines to San Francisco. He stayed there. He wouldn't take the yellow cab to take him to the fields where he could make 10 cents an hour picking asparagus. But most of the Filipinos, that was the only choice they had, to go to the fields, work the asparagus, and then go up and down the Central Valley, up and down the coast of California, and then even go up to Alaska to work the salmon canneries. And so... Stockton was the center, the hub of Filipino American life in the 20s and the 30s. And it's where it's because that's where the ag was. So the museum came Does up. Does it still have a vibrant Filipino community? The, the, it's vibrant. You know, Stockton is 300,000 people. Would I say it's vibrant? It's kind of struggling because it, it has a great black mayor, Michael Tubbs. He's, he's under 30. He's struggling. He's running for election now. Uh, HBO did a story about Stockton. Um, that's on Who's now. The, is the congressman the cow guy from the House Intelligence Committee? What's his uh, name? I don't, I don't was know. It Garrett, well, you know, the, the, the guy who was busy delivering intelligence to. Oh, uh, Devin Nunes? Yeah. Oh, he's down south. He's closer to Fresno. Was Gary Condit your? Gary Condit was, but he's gone. He, he's been gone for about five, ten years. And he was I, innocent, I by the way. Uh, you know, I forget what his, uh, what the disposition was with the, the young lady that he had a dalliance with who was found murdered. I, I, I don't it turned know. out he was innocent. Yeah, but it, that's just a Chandra tragic. Levy, I believe her name was. Right, Chandra Levy, exactly. Right. She's from Modesto, which is just south of Stockton. So the Filipinos were, they're still a, a, a force, but Stockton's struggling. And, you know, so if you go to the Filipino American National Historical Society Museum website, you'll see we, we've got, we're in an old five and dime, a renovated five and dime in the main street of, uh, of Stockton. 
we've got a nice little we've got nice little exhibits and displays of the way it looked in the campesinos or uh, in the camps. Uh, we have uh, it's a history of Filipino Americans going back from uh, the uh, you know the Filipino American War to the present. Uh, we have uh, some exhibits. We have cockfighting exhibits. We show the culture. It's an interesting place. And because of COVID, we've been closed. But if they go to my Facebook page or they go to Facebook at Fonz Museum, F-A-N-H-S Museum, I do a bunch of um, talks. I do these uh, virtual museum type of uh, uh they're not monologues. Sometimes they're interviews, but uh, you can click on some videos and get a sense of the stories we tell. Because in the end, what what the Filipino American National Historical Society Museum is, is we're just a collector and teller of stories, of Filipino stories. And for this month, which happens to be Filipino American uh, History Month, October uh, October 31st is going to be the last day we thought doing a discussion about the story of Celine Navarro or Cecilia Navarro was a good way to say put a cap this year on Filipino American history. So this, as you know, David, has always been a passion of mine to tell the Filipino American story. Uh, you were there when I went to the Philippines, right? 1983. I when Aquino was assassinated. When Aquino was assassinated. We worked at uh, KRON in San Francisco together. And that was a real turning point because, you know, that was Aquino, Benigno Aquino, the senator, the rival to Marcus, was assassinated on the tarmac in, in Manila. And then his death. Didn't even get to pick up his luggage. He did, you know, right there on the tarmac, right there on the tarmac. And, you know, that was the first sign that there was this people power because one of the things that I witnessed there was a million people on the streets behind his casket going to the, you know, to, to the, the funeral procession. I never seen anything like this is before the million man March. I remember your reports because you, we were working Carowind news, which is the flagship NBC affiliate in San Francisco and NBC picked up your story. I remember you in a white shirt standing behind hundreds sure. of thousands. I think you oh, were yeah. on a car reporting yeah. people power. What was, what kind of white shirt was it? What? Well, it's similar to, you know, thank goodness I'm in my closet, David. But Say hello to Lindsey Graham for me. It's similar yes. to this. Yeah. But it's called the Barong Tagalog, which is a sort of a invisible, or sort of like a translucent shirt or a see-through shirt. Uh, made of a kind of a funny kind of material. But you were wearing that. Uh, this We're talking about 1984, right? Yes. I, I wasn't wearing this shirt, but I was wearing something similar. Right. But uh, I always it's called a Barong Tagalog. And I always thought that Barong Tagalog, you know, semi-see-through, which is kind of redundant when you're see, when you're invisible. Right. So, uh, right. But I, so, I remember thinking not a good move. Emil's in autumn and that shirt brings out his eyes which are more of a winter but i've it's been nearly 40 years that i've been meaning to tell you that i didn't oh. approve of the shirt but oh. no i do remember the shot yeah. of you I, in front of hundreds of thousands of people the people I had, power. Never, I had never seen so many people so many filipinos but she imelda is still alive well let's go back cory aquino right she, she, when her husband died, she filled in the vacuum. Right. She brought on people power and mixed 
kind of a you know she's still sort of a symbol but i think most people have forgotten Korea Kino. yeah and imelda marcos's kid is running for i think he's in the senate one of the first was, jokes i wrote yeah. was i found out why imelda marcos has so many shoes she's a centipede and let me tell you something my friend yeah. back in 1983 that joke was considered smart and political Oh, that was a killer joke. How about I mean, you could you could have tagged it. She said, uh, "Not only she she was a centipede, but it was all right feet." No left she's feet. A, yeah. Why are you ruining a bad joke for me? The joke <laughs> is already bad. Now you have to make it even worse. Hey, this is a writer's room, David. This is a writer's room. It so got anyway. printed in Herb Kane's column. Ah, remember Herb Kane? Now there's a relic. There's a relic, David, because you know I was thinking about this. Who, who are the Herb Canes today? We don't have Herb Canes. We have YouTubers. We have people on Twitter. We have Sarah Cooper. I like Sarah Cooper, but did you see her new show? No. On Netflix? No. All right. We, we have to wrap this up. Thank you so much. Emil Guillermo is... Hey, 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 wait, yes, wait, wait, wait one second. I share your anxiety, too, about next week. Hang on. Well, you know, I don't know. Who's Can you win. stick around? Because I just had coffee, which means I'm going to be up for another eight hours. So we might as well just keep this show going. Let me bring in Alan Minsky. We'll, Alan and I will talk. And then Kelly Stone. Are you drinking carrot juice? I am, yes. Oh, refreshing. Carrot juice is good. Just yes. make sure you do something positive with the, uh, with the, <laughs> the you know, the. The pulp, the pulp. The pulp. Be a good pulpist. Oh, I didn't make it myself, so oh, okay. I have no pulp. So. Carrot okay. juice, you're better off eating a lot of carrots. It's, you're spiking your blood sugar. Sure. Ah, well, Emil, yeah, besides being a columnist for Aldef and host of the PETA podcast, Emil is also a black belt in veganism. <laughs> no, no, seriously, he has some, he, like... He he can he can examine a vegan diet and tell you you're immoral. But well, he, he is he can look at a vegan diet and tell you why you're wrong. Can you imagine being a vegan and still being wrong, Alan? Well, I'm just happy that my blood sugar is spiked with so I can match your coffee, David. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hey David, look, I I would love to stay. Stay, uh, but I no, I I must I, I have me come back again and I'll talk about. How bad I feel about, well, how good I feel. I, I think we're going to feel good. I think. But no, no, just, no, no, no. You don't know how to deal with God. This is the way I'm working. God? I'm outsmarting God. God thinks, oh. I'm saying Trump's going to win. You are? Yeah. So I'm oh. tricking God. Oh, into, tree, tree. I'm trick, I, I'm outsmarting God. You're faking him out. I'm faking yeah. out. He thinks he's going to, he thinks he's going to get me this time like he did four years ago. To go left. Uh -huh. So now I'm just saying that there's no way Trump could lose. Um, Emil, Emil knows, knows Kamala, right? You know her a bit personally, right? Well, not really personally. We've written, I've written about her. We've tangled. Uh, we don't, I didn't say anything complimentary. I don't really know her, but we have lived in the same city and we've, uh, um, you know, I, I have come around to thinking that she's okay. She, she's, I, I like, I like her enough this time. 
but she's she says she'll say anything to get elected. So in some yeah. ways, she's what you know who she is? She's George Herbert Walker Bush in 1980. Yeah. He, George Herbert Walker Bush ran against Reagan. He called it voodoo economics mm-hmm. and really challenged Reagan. You want to be my vice president? Yep. And that's who Kamala is. She's, and she'll end up being president. A lot, more, a lot more concentrated power in Bush's hands at that point than, than she has. I think. And I think she's a lot more, despite Bush's compassionate conservatism, I think Kamala's heart is maybe slightly Slightly more in the right place. Why? She's, got um, little, she's got a little Asian in her. She's got <laughs> that, and so that's get that gets our vote. In the so Asian when she America. was locking up the parents of truants, well, this is one of the conflicts. When she was not acting on Asian Americans getting beaten up in San Francisco in the Sunset District, I mean, people were wondering about that. I don't know. There's a lot of the, the political dynamic is or the political equation gets complex sometimes and people couldn't she have easily have been a republican if republicans ran san francisco i mean she's married to a, a neoliberal hack yeah you know uh there are no republicans in san francisco <laughs> yeah it's a different world <laughs> that's man, why yeah. no they just yeah. call themselves democrats that's why well, nancy pelosi is a democrat was, well feinstein really was i mean you know the, her husband was a developer Oh, and, yeah. and, you know, you go back and you watch the life and times of Harvey Milk and she's in the opposition to milk, you know. Yeah. And so it's it's the murder of Moscone milk that that she becomes the I don't think she had a political pathway to ascend other than that murder. And she, then it's just development, development, development while she's the, the mayor of San Francisco. Yeah. Look, as a as a native San Franciscan, I know how what the city looked like when they had they had. Uh, grassroots organizations to stop the Manhattanization of the city when I was a small boy. And now I look at San Francisco skyline and it's like, what happened? This is, you know, the Manhattanization is complete, you know, with all those, you know, uh, dysfunctional skyscrapers. Right. Who knows how much longer they'll be standing. Well, yeah, but uh, to to bring it back to Feinstein, it was Feinstein and Willie Brown who made that all happen. Right. Right. For sure. Yep, I lived there for a while. Yeah, she's very just doesn't really fit as an ascendant politician coming out of San Francisco, but it's what happened. It it is what happened. I did now. I did I did share a stage with her at my high school graduation, Lowell High School, way back when. And uh, she's a real. You see her in, in 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 action as a politician. She's a real rah rah cheerleader. She knows crowd control. Just like a good comedian, right, David? They know crowd control. They get up on stage. They know how to say things like, you know, she does the rah-rah really good. And I can see why, you know, she's ascended. She's a politician. Except she didn't win. Well, she got to the Senate. What, did you think she had higher aspirations than that? Well, in the primary, she didn't do well. I think you're talking Feinstein and at cross purposes, Feinstein and Harris. I think Camille's referring to Feinstein. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk to Alan Minsky. Let's talk because Kelly Stone is here. We're running a little behind Kelly. Is that okay? Alan, you know, and I'll, I'll, I will, I will let you speak with David and I'll catch you next time. David, thank you. By the way, we're scheduling a, we're probably going to do a special 
like 1201 Wednesday morning next week. <laughs> goodbye. Yeah. We'll call it goodbye, America. Yeah. Goodbye, America. That's yeah. Great. Good night, America. Yeah, because they weren't able to do Zoomcasts when when Fort Sumter was under attack at the beginning of that civil right. war. So you know, might as well document it fully. Yeah. Well, we know uh, joining us from Los Angeles. Thank you, Emil. Follow Emil on Twitter, Emil Amuck. Read him over at ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and of course the PETA podcast. And the name of your museum is the Filipino American National Historical Society Museum. So, and what's the uh, website? Uh, go to Facebook at Fonz, F-A-N-H-S, Museum. Fantastic. Or to my website at amok.com. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you next week, maybe election night. Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless you. God he, bless you. Let's go to Los Angeles where Alan Minsky is standing by. He is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. You're a little cut off there, if I can see your full head. There we go. Thank you, sir. <laughs> More pretty. Thank you. What will we know on election night? Um, Midnight. What are we going to know? You know, I just I don't know. It really um, very little unless North Carolina or Florida are called by then in terms of the presidency. Um, Both uh, only a lot of the Senate um, uh, important Senate flip seats are not on the eastern seaboard, only North Carolina and Maine and Georgia, I suppose. Um, you know, Ossoff, Purdue canceled the debate today because he made a mess of it, hash of it last Let time. Let me play so, a clip like, from this. Yeah. Let me play you this clip. Because Ossoff, he's running against Purdue. Mm-hmm. Ossoff is considered, you know, the son of a rich guy. He could be a Republican if there was an opening, but instead he's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Right, and, what, he ran a media company in London, right? Is that what he well, did? So he claims. So he yeah. claims. Uh let me see if I can do this. Uh, I'm obsessed. Well, the, the, you know, it's funny because of all the senators, and this is the sad thing about the contemporary Democratic Party, is of all the senators that are going to possibly uh, be pickups, right? Um, also, is actually one of the less offensive. Um, and, uh, you know, Hickenlooper, who what drank fracking water. That's how in, in the pocket of, of uh, extractive industries. That's almost as bad as uh, when Obama drank the water in Flint. In Flint, yeah. Okay, if he, let's roll, see if we can roll, hear roll. this. This is not a bad moment for Ossoff. Can you hear this? Nothing yet. I hate my life. I really do. <laughs> I just want simple... Okay, now... To respond properly hear to the COVID-19 pandemic. You do hear it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. It keeps this technology. You learn it. and then You they, had it. You had it. Just roll it. But no, but here's yeah. what they do. Then they make you upgrade and update and all. And then it's a different input. It, it's all fluid. I hate it. Okay. So this is Purdue versus Ossoff. Ossoff is on our right. He's the son of a rich guy. Perhaps Senator Perdue would have been able to respond properly to the COVID-19 pandemic if you hadn't been fending off multiple federal investigations for insider trading. It's not just that you're a crook, Senator. It's that you're attacking the health of the people that you represent. You did say COVID-19 was no deadlier than the flu. 
you did say there would be no significant uptick in cases. All the while, you were looking after your own assets and your own portfolio, and you did vote four times to end protections for pre-existing conditions. Four times. And the legislation that you tout, the PROTECT Act, it includes loopholes that specifically allow... Purdue looks like he's trying to pass a kidney stone, doesn't he? (laughs) Insurance companies to deny policies to Georgians with pre-existing conditions. Can you look down the camera and tell the people of this state why you voted four times to allow insurance companies to deny us health coverage because we may suffer from diabetes or heart disease or asthma or have cancer in remission? Why? Now, why didn't he interrupt him? Well, it's not even going to debate him again. He, ref- he canceled the debate. But what kind, debate. Of, what kind of Republican is that to allow somebody to talk that long without interrupting him? He should be kicked out of the Republican Party, Purdue. Well, the Republican Party in Georgia, they pretty much just erase people from the voting rolls and make sure that they have 50 percent plus one at the end of the day. And that's the way you win elections. You know, they're not they don't really have to do things like, you know, persuasion. Well, is he uh, is Ossoff going to win this? That, of course, is considered to have been a big thing, uh, plus for Ossoff. And he's been been closing. It's very close. Again, the question is largely Look, I really actually agree with what I just said sincerely. And I think in, you know, okay, he's not, he's not like an Alabama charged with, you know, child predation, right? I'm sorry, he's uh, not charged with child predation. Yeah, yeah. And so he's not, he's not, he's not a pedophile. That, you'll lose 10% of a vote. Even the Republicans won't vote for you then, as it turned out, in Alabama, or 15% of them wouldn't, right? And the Democrat could squeak by. Short of something like that in Georgia, I think you really just have, you know, basically tribal voting going on. And uh, Georgia, however, has been a a state that's been shifting rather dramatically. Atlanta has become a huge. um, uh, I hate that I can see the chat. Apparently I'm dead. They're animals. They They will lead you down. Did you hear what happened to Corbyn today in England, in the UK? Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's just so insane. But let me tell you something. You, you, you and I are from Pacifica Radio. This is yeah, why you can't it trust. Can be said. Yes, yes. Don't trust the chat room because the people who call into. Well, complain, I wish I couldn't see that. And no, I'm not related to Marvin Minsky. Marvin Minsky is also a pedophile. Okay, he was over at the Jeffrey Epstein uh, uh, Island. You know, and you know, I, had, I had to respond to people when that broke in the press. Like, no, no, that guy was not my dad. Okay. David Perdue versus John Ossoff in in Georgia. It was tight. But... Yeah, very tight. And, and, and of all the Senate candidates that have a chance of winning right now, um, none of them are any good among the Democrats. Um, this is off the record. Please do not quote me. Um, Jamie Harrison has got some decency about him. I mean, all of them have a little bit of decency. They're friggin' not Republicans after all, but these are real blue dog Democrats. Mark Kelly, Hickenlooper, Bullock, Gideon up in uh, Maine, uh, Cunningham in North Carolina. And also because I think actually shows a little promise more than, than most of the ones I just name checked. But um, is it conceivable that Kelly Loeffler... Is Raphael Warnock, I think. Uh, what? The best of the lot, Jamie Harrison has been better than Ossoff. So Jamie defeat Lindsey Graham, yay. That'd be brilliant to see him win that. But then 
Uh, Raphael Warnock has some has you know more progressive cred than even Harrison, and, and he's going to beat he's going to beat Loeffler in Georgia. It looks like he will get into a runoff, and so you could actually have a scenario where if the election doesn't turn out as well as we're hoping, um, but nonetheless it's in play, it could be possibly be in play with fifty Democratic Republican seats, forty nine Democratic seats, Biden in the White House. And um, and so Pamela Harris would be the tie-breaking vote in the Senate for control of the Senate, and it would come down to Raphael Warnock's runoff. And right. so that's something. Okay. And then that takes place, I think, in, in early January. It's not until January, so a long time for the world to focus on Georgia and to continue election mania among us political junkies. Um, Maine and, uh, and South Carolina. Maine, South Carolina, Iowa. Um, I'm sorry, man, in the Senate. So South Carolina, Lindsey, Jamie Harrison, and Lindsey Graham, it's a toss-up now. The ones that I think are considered very good for the Democrats are, they have to win four because they're going to lose Alabama, are um, Arizona and Colorado. Iowa is a toss-up. Maine looks... Iowa? Joni Ernst? Yeah, that's that's competitive. Right? I thought she, she was losing. There's a lot of discontent in Iowa with the Republican Party right now. And no, I, Joni Ernst was losing. Yeah, she yeah. I, I didn't think it's a toss-up. I thought Joni Ernst is—it's given that she's going to lose Iowa. No, no, it's it's one or two percent or something like that. And then Bullock is still behind in Montana, which is also bad because if there is this nightmare scenario of Trump trying to send separate electoral delegate electoral college delegations from states and it goes to the House, the Montana congressional race is a huge thing because that would possibly. Uh, shift the balance of how many delegations are Democrat versus Republican because the Constitution says that's how the the, the hung electoral college is determined by the, the House of Representatives, but not by the vote of the membership, but each state gets a vote. Right. And any Montana. congressional ca- uh, 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 any congressional races we should be paying attention to? Most of them are right around Kelly Stone. Uh, they're on either side of her, right? right. Kelly's in Texas, right? Yes. And, uh, and so it's um, <laughs> it's uh, Julie Oliver's great. But um, Mike Siegel for me is is I really hope Mike wins. Yeah. And, you know, if everything else goes right and Mike loses, I'll be depressed. Because Mike Siegel is a true, true, true progressive champion right at the heart of the oil industry. This guy is Green New Deal, Medicare for all, pro-union. And that's important. Green New Deal and pro-union. This guy brings a lot of forces together. He is a brilliant guy, a great public servant, um, a very sincere fellow, and uh, just a, just that's a big one. But there, there are bunches of them. There are tons of them that are, that are good where progressives could pick up Kara Eastman in Nebraska 2nd. Of course, that's a hugely important district because the electoral uh, – Nebraska and Maine are the two states where they break up their electoral college votes per congressional district. If Kara wins Nebraska 2nd, I think Biden picks up that electoral vote too. Um, and so, yeah, there are a bunch of progressives who can get in right now, and uh, and I'm hoping all of them do. One that is certain to get in who's gone under the radar screen that I think will join basically with the squad, and people know very little bit about her. Um, she the best thing the thing people know most about her is she beat Valerie Plame in the in the in the um, primary, and that's Teresa Lega Fernandez. She is a fantastic progressive out of New Mexico, um, really even more progressive positions than Deb Holland, also from New Mexico, and. But Deb's already been there. Deb's great. But Grace is really good. Well, you I mean, bring up Valerie Plame, who was outed 
as a CIA agent back in 2003. Yeah, but ran as a Clinton-like Democrat in Santa right. Fe and lost to Teresa. Yeah. But she was also outed maybe as an anti-Semite. There was some anti-Israel stuff. Uh, well, you know, and this is such fucking bullshit about Jeremy. I know Jeremy. I met Jeremy uh, and got to know him. And, you know, I am, you know, just everybody in the world who meets me who even knows what a Jew is, knows and assumes I'm Jewish. Um, and, um, and, you know, you know, Corbyn's not an anti-Semite. He's not remotely an anti-Semite. But did he turn a blind eye to anti-Semitism? The former British Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has been suspended from the Labour Party. He's what it is, is he's for Palestinian human rights. And that's what it is. This whole thing is just a, basically a hit job by a wing of um, Israeli intelligence. Apparently not the Mossad, but a different branch of Israeli intelligence uh, was, was very much behind undermining Corbyn. Uh, because he was a threat. I mean, look, the UK is a major world power. The UK, obviously. So you're you're saying that Israel, you're saying Israel, Israel played a hand in it, but then the major role in it was played. Is, by, the major that? role was played by the neoliberal opposition to Corbyn within the Labour Party. Do, do you not worry that you're playing into an age-old anti-Semitic trope when you? attribute qualities to Mossad and Israel that may or may not be there. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein. Hang on on for one second. Mossad has its hands in everything. Mossad has nothing to do with Epstein and Mossad has nothing to do with Corbyn. They're different branches of Israel. I'm just saying that, that when you start saying that Israel had its hands in I understand that it's dangerous, and it, you have to worry about that. And anti-Semitism of all variations of variety is completely. I mean, it's dangerous. true, but do we want to no. know? Uh. No, 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 no. But it, 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 look, Israel. It, that's the thing. You know, Israel itself is pushes into the territory of anti-Semitism, and here's how: if it says we are speaking for international Jews around the world, that we are the voice of Jews, and then clearly we do not respect the human rights of others then that sends the message that Jews do not respect the human rights of others. Two things there. Israel does not speak for Jews around the world. Okay. And Israeli government. And, you know, and it's a pariah. And and it's a pariah. There are very few countries that actually like Israel, want to do business with Israel, but they're given superhuman strength to explain away a lot of the inexplicable. That's an, age-old anti-Semitic trope. To say that the Mossad had something to do with Jeremy Corbyn, how do you prove something like that? You can't. Same way you can't prove that the Rothschilds were behind World War II. There are documentary films about how, what's it called? Um, um, A German person went undercover. A German uh, documentary filmmaker went undercover in England and was able to um, engage with, I think, the Israeli embassy in London, and they were coordinating efforts to to undermine Corbyn. But this is this is not important. What's important is Corbyn is not an anti-Semite. But okay. there are anti-Semitic elements on the left. Did you just walk out on me? Yeah, I had to. Sorry, I'm having somebody's here, and I'm a little distracted. Um, so I apologize. But, but, you, but there is anti-Semitism on the left, the same way that there's anti-Semitism on the right and anti-Semitism yes. in the middle. There's. Um, um, 
Sorry, I got very distracted. The the um it's massage. They're 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 wired into the fillings in your teeth. And uh, no, getting... I mean, you know, the thing that happened with Corbyn is Corbyn is a lifelong advocate for Palestinian human rights. He is not anti-Semitic in the least. Uh, are is there anti-Semitism amongst some radical groups that support Palestinian human rights? Yes, probably. Is there okay. anti-Semitism? Is there anti-Semitism among populists? Anybody who's anti-bank. When you when you have people who are anti-Wall Street and anti-bank, there's always going to be a strain of anti-Semitism among those people, and you find them on the left. Exclusive, you know, you, you don't even have to worry about Israel. When people hate the banks, and they should hate the banks, a percentage of them will hate the Jews. Look, here's, here's the thing that's happened, I think, around Israel and Palestine. Well, but, but, but please address that. Please address that. Is it not true that you will find on the left mm-hmm. a certain element who hates Wall Street and the banks and the moneyed elite, and they and they associate? I don't think racism or anti-Semitism. If somebody has anti-Semitic views or racist views, they're simply not on the left. Now, I don't mean to defend the term the left as if it's sacrosanct, but if it means anything. It means you want political power for everybody, for political power to be distributed equally as, as broadly. But if you're militantly, <laughs> if you're militantly on the left, if you are up against the powers that be. If you're an anti-Semite, you're a dumbass fool. Well, that idiot. goes without saying. Right. But, but I'm saying, but, racist, to deny, you're, you're but, but to right. deny that there's anti-Semitism on the left is disingenuous, I think. Separate from Israel. That there is no, but what's the left? There's no, you know, there's no communist party anymore. But there's if no, you if you are anti Wall Street, right? If you are anti bank, if you are anti New York, then among those people, you will find the age old trope of the Rothschilds and the Jews controlling. I, I don't disagree with that, but I think those are fools. And this but is it not, doesn't matter if they're fools. Trump's a fool. Right. But they're, look, the, the issue here with Corbyn is that he was a lifelong advocate for Palestinian human rights. As such, he was not acceptable as a potential prime minister to the British foreign policy establishment or, for that matter, to Israeli national interests. OK, and. However, I think the main threat that Corbyn also represented was a threat to the Parliamentary Labor Party and to the neoliberal Labor Party. So Jeremy Corbyn got to be the head of the Labor Party. And what took place then was a nonstop set of attacks on him that, you know, certainly parallels the way like the Rachel Maddow show treats Donald Trump. Right. And largely, I agree with the critique of Donald Trump as being hideous and horrible and all those things. But Corbyn was a great guy. You know, I mean, I think that I think if you met him, you'd think that anybody who's been involved in the international peace movement would think that anybody who's involved with the left. The guy's just sort of like a aging lefty hippie guy who's very inclusive, very participatory. And he was just, you know, castigated and tarnished by establishment media, by the Tony Blair wing of the Labor Party. Don't forget, he called Tony Blair from inside his own party a war criminal. Tony Blair said when this guy was about to become a head of the Labor Party, this was not a moment for, you know, persuasion. It was a moment for a rugby time. 
Like you cannot allow this guy to become head of the Labor Party. We were starting to see in the treatment of Bernie Sanders something very similar from the James Carvels of the world, the Chris Matthews of the world, when Bernie Sanders got ahead in the polls after the Nevada caucuses. Uh, so if you followed the Corbin story closely, and I certainly did because I knew Jeremy, and Jeremy, again, is in no way anti-Semitic, okay? And I don't think he even really is a very radical um, opponent of the of Zionism, I think he simply supports the human rights of Palestinians. But that was a core issue for him. And so he was, you know, just basically uh, crucified, <laughs> as it were, uh, publicly. Maybe that's an anti-Semitic trope, David, you tell me. I don't know. It might be. But um, I was really appalled by this coming forward today. And to see Keir Starmer do this, I think it's going to rip up the Labor Party. And, um, yeah, I don't know where it'll go. I think Corbyn will probably be brought back into the party, but they'll make him cry uncle. George Galloway, did he, did, was George Galloway destroyed for his position on? Galloway says stupid ass things of all different varieties. Corbyn never did. Right. You know, I can't really. And the, the, he seemed to be very, um, you know, soft on Saddam Hussein. And I think he went and visited Hussein and it just all seemed a little Sounds bit like. like Rumsfeld. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. But, All right, um, let's talk about Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get out of bed on Tuesday a week. I, I just could not. Usually Tuesdays is when I relax. But Tuesday, I felt sick. And I thought, can it be? I'm worried about the election. And I think a lot of people are, are spooked by next week. Are you on tender hooks? Um, yeah, it's very difficult. I think um, it's. Um, uh, I think, and here's here's the thing I really wanted to talk about in coming on the show today. I think we're in a situation where the fact that the Democratic Party has put forward a very weak top of the ticket team um, is coming back to haunt them in the final week. Um, I think in 2004, John Kerry ran as a non-entity, and everybody woke up after election day and was like. Oh, yeah, George W. Bush is the most famous person in the world, and we ran a total void. Well, Joe Biden is basically a total void. You know, let's face it. He has almost no charisma at this point in his career. You know, I'm, Kerry I, was measure, a better By all measure, he and Jill seem like nice people, and I have a lot of empathy for Biden for all the losses he had in his life. And he right now is the person who's carrying the banner of our constitutional republic, so I support him, and I support him very strongly for that reason and that reason alone. I think Kamala Harris has basically been a bust as a vice presidential candidate. The right wing is now using the, the footage and the imagery of her 60 minutes interview in all of their ads from this week. What did she say in 60 minutes? Not so much what she said. I think she just laughs off a lot of things. And I think that they're reading um, her behavior as having a lot of contempt for the questions and just sort of a contemptuous attitude. And I don't think that's incorrect. And um, and I think that that's a big thing that people in the, you know, who vote Republican feel about the Democratic Party is it's a party of elites who have contempt for the average person. And, you know, Kamala Harris was a bust as a candidate. Why exactly she ended up on the vice presidential ticket when she ran for president and didn't even make it to the first contest. Pretty fucking crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, and I do think she'll be vice president. I think she'll probably be president. I agree. And, um, and you know, Biden is, um, but I think the polls are tightening because of this. Look, Donald Trump, whatever we make of him, he has a lot of fucking energy. 
a lot more than Joe Biden does. He can run around the country. He can do these events. You can see a sense of, you know, crowd going crazy behind him for what he's saying. Well, they don't have to go crazy. They're already there. They're already there, yeah. And so I'm worried about this, but I still think that there's probably enough people who voted. And, um, you know, into like today's economic news, that's that's Trump, you know, the the growth of of the third quarter economically. He could certainly make a lot of that. But I think COVID and the fact of him being an insidious, just a ridiculous, idiotic, narcissistic, bloviating asshole has just enough for people to, to vote against him and to propel Biden and Harris to victory. I'm a little worried that the tightening of the polls will make the results in the Senate less favorable towards us. Uh, and I do think, even though I just totally trashed all the moderate uh, you know, Democratic uh, candidates uh, who are running for Senate as neoliberal and blue dogs, I think they, we need that because that's the way, by the way, something very interesting is going to happen around um, uh, this sort of omnibus democracy bill that uh, is going to go through the House. What is it? It's called HR1. HR1 is the name of the bill, and they'll pass it again as HR1. It basically is a bill that looks at the way that the Republicans steal elections and tries to make them illegal, okay? And Chuck Schumer has said that his three priorities, one is democracy. So he's going to take that bill from the House and he's going to pass a bill right then and there. If, if the Democrats have the majority right then and there, the filibuster will be on the table because McConnell will, of course, um, not allow it to go forward. At which point, the only way it goes forward is by overturning the filibuster, at which point the Democratic Party has to discover if they're serious about supporting democracy. And um, and so that that situation with the filibuster, I think, is going to come to a head very quickly if the Democrats win all three. But again, the tightening of the polls, yeah, it makes me really nervous. It makes me nervous also for candidates like Mike Siegel, who I like a lot and stuff like that. We have uh, have to have a conversation in this country about whether or not we believe in democracy. Because I've spoken to a lot of people, people Mm -hmm. who are well-educated, who claim to be liberal or on the left, and when you scratch underneath the surface, they're not so keen on the mob. There's this Madisonian strain among the mm-hmm. liberal elite. We have to have a conversation about just how much democracy we really want. It's not the Supreme Court. Just, it's not just the Supreme Court. It's the Democratic Party as well, as evidenced by the Green Party, Howie not being able to get on the ballot in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. That was the Democrats doing, right? Didn't the Democrats keep the Green Party off the ballot? Uh, they, they fought that regularly. They fight the Green Party getting on the ballot. Um, I do want to say the name of the documentary I referenced, and so that people just don't think I'm crazy, relating to Israeli intelligence and uh, the Israeli embassy is called The Lobby. And there's The Lobby USA and The Lobby UK. And it's very good. And it shows that they there's a, been a concerted effort that is coordinated with the Israeli government, for instance, to keep um, the sort of Palestinian human rights movement off of U.S. campuses so that U.S. academics are labeled as anti-Semites. Um, and that um, any movement that is uh, critical of Israel is viewed as anti-Semitic. And uh, similarly, it focuses on the treatment of Jeremy Corbyn. Great. And how there were efforts uh, that were that were not not, you know, it's not put forward seniorly by the Israeli government, by Israeli intelligence. 
the accusations of anti-Semitism. Uh, it was something that was playing out in the press. It was a huge national subject in the British press. I don't think it had almost any influence on the outcome of the election, which was determined by Brexit. But it's complete bullshit. And, you know, I know Jeremy and, um, um, you know, it's uh, it's the type of thing that we would face as the left if we ever came close to political power in this country. Might have a very different right. texture. I think Bernie Sanders would have been hit for hit on it, except he was Jewish. Um, because he obviously had a much, in my opinion, phenomenally better position on Israel-Palestine than any other presidential candidate had. He had the he had the courage to do it. I think in part because he was Jewish. Right, right. Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. I'll talk to you next week. I hope maybe we'll talk to you early Wednesday morning. I'll be awake. Good. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks Thank so much. You. Okay. Bye. Bye. Kelly Stone ran for railroad commissioner in Texas. She got about 300, 400,000 votes. Hello there, Kelly Stone. You are a sex educator and a baby mama. How are you? And a comedian, yes. And Bless a com- mantra, but that's questionable these days, right? I mean, what is comedy? What are we doing? I'll show you. I want to show you something. I've been saving this for you. Oh, yay. Kiaja K.J. Brooks lives in Missouri, and she attended the Board of Police Commissioners meeting in Kansas City, Missouri, on October 27th, 2020. She's one of the leaders of Kansas City's Black Lives Matters movement, and she is a co-founder of the Chigona Collective. It's a multicultural, queer-inclusive, intersectional organization led by Black, Indigenous, and Latinx women. Awesome. Sounds like an awesome group. And we all know that Missouri, Ferguson is in Missouri. We know how Missouri treats its African-American community. I believe there was a couple that uh, spoke at the Republican convention this year because they pointed guns at the black. Corey Bush is from Missouri. That's true. That's true. Let me play you. Let me play you if I can, if I can get this effing audio to work. Uh, Let me see if I can play you her. It's it. It will clean your sinuses out. It's very sad. Are we not allowed to curse on this show? Well, she's going to curse. <laughs> oh, great. You said effing, and I was like, oh, no. Have I been messing up this whole time? Can you hear this? Fair warning. Um, can you hear that? I can. I'm not I can nice. Now. Okay, okay. So this is... Uh, Board the, of Police Commissioners meeting. Yes. October 27th. And what day is today? The 29th? Yes, this was two days ago. This is Kiaja K.J. Brooks. She's 20 years old. This is where the future of America is coming from. Oh, my gosh, this is exciting. Fair warning. Um, I'm not nice, and I don't seek to be respectable. I'm not asking y'all for anything, because y'all can't and won't be both my savior and my oppressor. Um, I don't want reform. I want to turn this building into luxury, low-cost housing. These will make some really nice apartments to me. Firstly, stop using black children as photo opportunities because they're cute now, but in 10 years, they're black male suspect in red shirts and khaki shorts. Eating cookies and drinking milk with children does not absolve you of your complicity in their oppression and denigration, Rick Smith. 
because Kansas City will spend more on police than education and then try to encourage children to feast with their oppressors. Y'all are really weird. It's asinine to be called radical or homegrown terrorists for not wanting government employees to kill citizens in any instance. So I'm not here begging anything of soulless white folks and self-preserving black folks. You get one life and you all in this room have chosen profits over people and that's pathetic. So I'm gonna spend the next two minutes reading y'all for a filth, something I'm sure nobody has ever done. Nathan, the gentleman in the vomit colored men's warehouse suit in desperate need of Bosley and a haircut, a former FBI agent who exudes white privilege and is the epitome of mediocrity and who loves Trump so much that he hired his former attorney general at his firm. And it's so sweet cause he spent most of this meeting looking away with his head in his hands. Or Mark, excuse me, Pastor Mark of Victorious Life Church on 34th and Paseo, where the mission is to provide a place and opportunity to worship Jesus Christ and preach a message of hope and faith through God's holy, holy word in the building. Meanwhile, he's subjecting black people to terrorism and unchristlike behavior at the hands of KCPD outside the building. And Kathy, Miss, I'll get here before the other commission members, so I look as if I have empathy and I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Meanwhile, I didn't have anything else to do at eight o'clock in the morning but be rich and white and retired, so I'm here early. Or Don, owner of Wagner Investments, Blue Notes LLC, and part owner of the Royals, another rich and white and disconnected and out of touch person with nothing but pure apathy seeping through the bulging veins of your paper colored skin. You age like trash when you're racist and subject others to violence. And David, you don't get a vote, but it'd be a shame if your really progressive students at UMKC Block School of Management knew you were a cop lover in 2020. I don't think they would be a huge fan of that in 2020, in 1960 maybe, but this is 2020. And Q, had I not spent the entirety of the last six months dragging you, I would have more to say, but I don't. And Rick, I won't even begin with you because I don't care enough about you your time to start, up. but you will have to spend overtime in a chapel at the end of your life. You have blood on your hands, and while these idiots hold you on a pedestal, God does not honor injustice and murder. Anyways, I'll leave you soulless, profit-driven, avaricious, greedy, God-forsaken humans, including anyone who works in this building, with one Bible verse from the Bible detailing the life of Jesus, Jesus Christ, who was another unarmed black man murdered by authorities in the book you hellbound people claim to love so much. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You're really funny. Kiki. <laughs> Why is it so hard to find scolds like that who, who spit Christianity back into the faces of people who claim to be Christians but aren't? Why is it so hard to find somebody like that? I Wasn't mean, that great? That it was. So, what I found interesting was like calling everyone out by name um, because a lot of meetings that's against Ooh. the rules. Yeah. You're not allowed to do that. Um, and so like in the fact that nobody came and tried to usher her off and you didn't hear a buzzer, they just said, ma'am, your time. Like I found it interesting that she was like that the ability to be unfettered <laughs> 
was was there that that existed um because if if i tried to do that at city council in san marcus texas i would have been ushered out like um like a hundred percent by people wearing guns like i don't know um that's so that was brave and bold, um, particularly in a police commissioner's meeting. There's a lot there. I actually did a round robin on our council members one time and called them out by name, but never like on no level, like what she just did. The way that I was trying to color in between the lines was, um, I said I was going to list off all of their tells when they get uncomfortable when people at the podium are speaking. And so, and I rattled it off really quickly and I was able to do it because I was trying to call out one council member because he was quoted in the paper and I was real pissed off about it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to call him out, but the rules said you can't do that. And so I started with one and I called them all out to get to that one. And that's, like I felt so connected to what she was doing and like sitting down and thinking about this motherfucker. I know they sit right there. This, you know, like, and everything, like when you have been inundated in a community and you like really pay attention to what's going on and you're so fucking pissed, that's what comes out. But like eloquently and like, Clearly she was allowed that space like to do that. And now she's got that video. You're right. She is the next rock star. Is she running? Is that what you said? I think she's an activist. I don't know if you can get elected. The question, well, I thought she was fantastic and articulate. You know, John Stewart plays to the rafters when he testifies before the, you know, the Senate trying to get health care for the first responders, you know, the people who responded to 9-11. And he gets all emotional, and but he doesn't move the needle. You know, I don't think you get Mitch McConnell. I don't, I don't know if they respond to that. You tell me. Wait, are you talking about that's why we've got Amy McGrath? We're kind of like, meh. Well, I don't know if Showboat... Uh, by the way, I think she's great. She's not running for office yet. She's 20 Isn't years she old. Is she running against Mitch McConnell? No, no, no. I'm talking about this woman, the, the oh, clip oh. I just played. Th- that was cathartic. But, yes. but I'm not so sure you move the needle in the, in the House or the Senate being cathartic and playing to the... Uh, the audience not right now, not right now, but that's that's what's I think that's what's so exciting about this election right now is that the, the youth, the involvement, the, the I'm so glad like I'm I'm 42. Right. And so like Nirvana. Messed I didn't know you were older than I am. You're older than Shut I am. Up. Shut up. Shut your face hole. Um, <laughs> I am the answer to everything, life, the universe, all the things. Um, I'm 42. Um, but I'm I'm too old. I'm too old no, for not. many of, I know, I know, I know. Uh, but for many of these organizations that are really fostering, fueling, uplifting youth in politics, I didn't have that. I didn't have that when I was graduating high school. Like that, that wasn't a thing. You didn't help campaigns. You weren't phone banking. You weren't block walking. And our teens are voting and block walking and volunteering and calling. No, no are you I, I don't know. I mean, did Bernie? I mean, then Bernie would 
have been the nominee, right? Maybe. They're doing more now than they did in March, even. Like, look at when we're talking about those needles moving. I'm about to put a needle in my arm if uh, I want to know if these kids are voting. Because it, I mean, they didn't vote for, they didn't come out for Bernie. Not enough, right? Well, I mean, obviously not enough of them came out for me either. That's why I'm not on the ballot right now. Like, I get it. Like, the, oh, my gosh. And then everyone folded. Right. We had more options. And then everyone folded and threw. Everybody was like Biden, Biden, Biden. everybody paid in. And Kamala did first, like even before the first primary. And she was like, yo, I'm going to pay my dues. And look, she's about to be our first president. Well, what do you think? What's happening in Texas? There's talk. So uh, I don't like the way you're behaving. You got to trick God. He's don't oh, tell God. I heard you say that earlier. You got to you got to outmaneuver God. Is that true? She doesn't like that. Okay. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is exactly like that. <laughs> they are exactly like that. I I think she prefers synchronicity. I I heard you, and I don't even know in what context. But earlier you said fluid, and I was like, yo. I mean, did you? I'll hear tell you what. As a man, <laughs> as a man, when I look at the way the world turned out, your side can have God. Give it to the ladies. I mean, I don't want responsibility for this. This is going to be like a really like leftist feminist thing. But let me tell you something. I don't think we need God. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I think God's gay, actually. You never hear of a Mrs. God. Have you ever heard of a Mrs. God? Well, kind of Lindsey Graham ish, if you ask me, God. God can definitely self-fillate. Whether it's a clitoris or a penis, or maybe both, maybe like a clitoris on top of a penis. Like, let's, let's, I mean, if we were to be like, what is the thing, you know, it's, it'd be fun. Okay. Don't read the chat room. I see your eyes. I see your eyes. You're, you're looking down and they are going to turn you. I'm telling you. Did you you, see me adjust my camera angle earlier because of the chat room? They're, they're, (laughs) They're bad people. Some dude, some dude up in Portland was like, yo, he thought this map behind me was crooked or my camera angle was crooked, which definitely my camera angle was crooked. It was like teetering on a book. It was like wobbling. And that was just fun for me. All right, how are you holding up? Don't look at the chat room. How are you holding up? Are you anxious about Tuesday? Is your life, what is your life going to be like Wednesday morning when you wake up and Joe Biden <clears throat> is our president. Are you going to feel good? Do you think he's going to, do you think we will know Wednesday morning? I think people will start sheltering in place better. Um, Once he's president. I think regardless of the outcome. Um, but, oh my God, if he doesn't win, I truly, I'm like, do I need to seek asylum? Like, I'm going to vote tomorrow. I'm going to vote tomorrow. I'm very excited. I'm voting at 10 a.m. tomorrow, Central Standard Time. And I'm wearing a Handmaid's Tale cloak and a bonnet. Can you take a picture for us and show it? Of course. It's going to be my new profile pic. I'm doing it for the social media. Um, (laughs) Is this to honor Amy Coney Barrett or are you making a political statement? 
Oh, um, so I've got a couple of gal pals coming to, to my condo um, <laughs> and we are going to throw on our capes and our bonnets and we're going to walk um, to the polling location and have like our own little mini parade, it, whatever. Um, we're going to walk past a construction site. We've got like a whole plan, but not like a th- we're just walking. I mean, that's how we would go anyway if we were dressed like this, you know, mm-hmm. but we're just going to be wearing capes and bonnets. And then um, and then we're going to go have brunch afterwards. Um, because you're liberal. <laughs> I mean, how else do we get the full credit for the day? Um, right. <laughs> but no, I'm excited. There's so much excitement. Um, Texas, I'm, the county that I live in, in Hayes County, Texas, we were the first in the nation to surpass our 2016 voting numbers. Um, right here, Hayes County, Texas, which we are located in between Austin and San Antonio. And so, and we, a lot of people went blue, a lot of areas went blue, and we've got a real tough fight for our um, our state rep there's some craziness going on and we need to flip nine seats, but Aaron's wiener needs a lot of help. Um, and she, she's amazing. She was, um, she was named our, our savviest freshman by Texas monthly, um, in, in the state house. But, um, Carrie Isaac is running against her. Do you know much about this race? Do you no. know anything about the race? So, Carrie Isaac is the wife of Jason Isaac and Jason Isaac was our former state representative, which I had interactions with him. He actually judged me in a comedy contest, different story. But so he was terrible state rep and Aaron's wiener as a constituent was just trying to ask him questions and he blocked her on Facebook. So she was like, I'm going to run. <laughs> and she's a three-time Jeopardy champion <laughs> and she's way cool equestrian gal um, she got pregnant while she was on the campaign trail in 2018 had her baby was still sending out like fundraising emails like well that's from the, the horse riding exactly <laughs> you can't put her back wet right um, so she she is amazing and so Carrie Isaac is the wife of Jason Isaac and is now challenging Aaron's wiener who unseated Jason Isaac and now his wife is coming after her and the only campaign attack ad like it's so disgusting what they're doing so I think Biden can take Texas I think Texas is at play it's very exciting I do think Texas is at play i think mj can take cornyn um but i'm only gonna say positive things so you think positive energy so on when the polls opened i can even show it to you but i'd have to get up but when the polls opened i i did my witchy shit right and i like i put out the constitution and the declaration of independence and my little pocket dalai lama and george washington's rules of civility and i burned some sage and palo santo and i lit an intention setting candle a blue one on my little mermaid holder and i just i immediately channeled i started channeling and i even i called my opponent krista castaneda from the primary did she do your show she did my show and my everyone loved her so much she was well loved never meet your enemies Right. Well, they they were impressed. Like what I heard from people is that the how she was stayed with me toe to toe, like in everything, you know, um, and they really enjoyed that about it. Uh, and we talked about the campaign. It wasn't like I was like, well, how do you feel about I mean, that's not the point of my show, you know. Um, it's, it's for like casual conversations. Like I enjoy doing this with you. Right. Um, and, and it went 
swimmingly. And then did you hear right after that, Bloomberg gave her $2.6 million. Really? As a settlement? Did he harass her too? (laughs) That was good. He gave her that much money? $2.6 $2.6 million for the campaign. Yeah, just invested it right after Biden said that we have to transition from fossil fuels in the debate, right? Like, hands down. And then, and then Trump with his stupid face, right? And he was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just said this to take, like, I hate him so much. Um, but then, and then they were like, Texas, oh, God. And people are freaking out about the oil industry in Texas, and maybe Biden lost it. And, and then immediately, and then Bloomberg was like, Hey, Krista Castaneda, here's $2.6 million. Like, because we definitely, like, we've got to change the Railroad Commission really to change the world. Um, it's a glow, it has global impacts. So, how is the oil business in Texas right now? I would assume it's not doing well, right? Listen, um, there's a lot of things I stopped reading after I lost the campaign. <laughs> But it's all it's all like we're at I think it's like 40 percent less. Right. Is is about where we're at. And that's where it's like, whoa, let's keep that going. Here we are. Let's continue that transition. Oh, my gosh. COVID COVID forced us here. And now that we're here and we recognize it and we can there's otters swimming in the San Marcos River that people ain't been seeing because people aren't like the emissions. We don't have all the oil flowing off the streets when it rains in like all of these things. People are commuting less. They're staying home. Like, when? Did, how soon was it? Do you remember? It was like April-ish, right? When all of a sudden you could actually see Los Angeles or there were things that you could see. Chris Christie could see his toes finally. That's, I don't know what that meant, but. Uh, but you've done a great job making me laugh tonight, which is, um Gosh, I needed that. Thank I you. used reverse psychology to get you on the show. This did you notice how brilliant I was? You did, and I, I really, I was like, did I misbehave? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I've, I've definitely had places in my life where I've been a good sub, if you know what I mean. Uh, um, I think well, I said, I, I, it's, I, the invitation. I think I, I wanted you to come on, so I wrote, I think you should come back and apologize. <laughs> And you no, said, for you what? And I said, I haven't figured out back. yet what you need to apologize for. But do you want to come crawling back with oh, your tail right. between your legs? That's how I asked you. To come and back. I was like, dang it. So what is your uh, <laughs> what's your big Zoom show going to be Friday? Tomorrow's night? the finale, Dave Feldman. Did you know that? Yeah. What? Um, tomorrow's the finale of Why? Kelly Stone's Corona Comedy with Candidates Crap Show. Why is it the finale? Well, it was designed to go through the election. I mean, I'm interviewing candidates, right? It's always, it's always like a same format, you know, and I always have candidates. I always have a musical guest. I always have a comedian. Um, And the election's on Tuesday. And so um, also there's a really cool film festival um, next weekend that I want to do. So I don't want to do the show next Friday. And definitely um, during the Civil War, I don't want to be doing a Zoom show on Friday nights. What is this? Stock and stock and way prepared. Okay, how bad can it get? I mean, have you seen any of the movies or read the books or the TVs? Have you seen these things? The the 1984s, The Handmaid's Tale, the the Fahrenheit 451. Have you seen these? Have you seen these? Have you read them? The Stand. What happens to us? 
listen, start with the zombies, right? And now we got the 5G. <laughs> and so like everybody, they're just zombies on their electronics. They're walking around. We're already, the zombie apocalypse already started. Like, cause that's, that's where we at on that. Right. So like, it's all, it's, and now like the locusts are, you know, the, the wasps, those, those, the ones that they found recently, the 20 of them, they were oh, the hornet's nest, the, 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 the killer, the killer murder, hornets, murder wasps, murder wasps. Right? That's the locust, but not really. You know what are the locust mosquitoes? That's what's getting us in Texas. I don't know, but they just cut down my bamboo the other day, and the mosquitoes went away. But if, if they, are they like? Let's say Trump steals the election, right? Oh, yeah. Are what we happened? prepared for that? What is our defense? I, I'm going to name names. I'll turn you in in a second. <laughs> That's why I really, I'm like, I've got a passport. I haven't gotten passports for my kids. I'm an idiot. Um, so we're just going to have to go through Mexico. That's the closest anyway. Like that's my escape route or Oregon, right. Is my trade route. If we get into like the nuclear part, because my rocket scientist friend tells me that Oregon is the safest place of all nuclear scenarios. Um <laughs> How far are you away from Mexico? I'm beginning to understand how Trump's going to get Mexico to pay for that wall to keep me out. How how easy is it to get to Mexico from Texas? From where I live? Yeah. I mean, a three-hour drive. But they don't want us, right? No, no, no. It's not about that. Like, I Can will, we sneak I will- it? With with COVID, we can't go anywhere. I will swim across the river, and I act like that's a safe thing, and other people can't. Because these places where they continue to build the walls and set these checkpoints, they're they're diffusing and, and spreading out where people can access, and that's putting them in more and more dangerous, rugged land, rather than, like, here's a blanket, here's some crackers and water, here's, you know, like, whatever, here, 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 yes, oh my fucking God. Are you cold? Are you hungry? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Um, but no, instead we've set up and there's, there's communities that, that no matter where, and it's just like a regular town, but they've set up so many checkpoints and so much stuff for you to go to the grocery store. You have to go through a military checkpoint hmm. for your daily existence. And, and anyway, it's so, I mean, it's been hostile territory, for a while. And we had a whole bunch of yahoos come here that they were like, we're going to help build this wall. And we also had people who were like, we're going to help with our guns to help defend. Like we've got crazies who are here. They're already here. I mean, you remember Jade Helm? That's like my neighbors. Who? Jade Helm. Who's that? Um, it's not a person. It was an operation. Um, and it was a military, um, like practice run that they were going to be doing. And the people in Bastrop like lost their minds that they were implementing mar- martial law, like all these things were happening. And so that was like, that was 40 minutes down the road, but we've got Trump trains going through town. Uh, do you know about this? You know about these Trump trains? Um, they load up in their big like Jeeps and trucks and Hummers and like all the stuff with their giant flags and they go through and they just um, went into green Texas, which is just outside of New Braunfels, which is home of Schlitterbahn. Um, come play, you know, the world world's most famous water park. Anyway, that's in New Braunfels. 
but in green, they just stopped their trucks and went inside the shops with no masks um, to like make point like they're they're That's domestic terrorism. Right. Their breath. Their breath is domestic terrorism. Well, and the trucks and the flags and the yahooing and the blaring, the destruction of signs, they're stealing signs. Um, There's graffiti. I mean, there's things like that. But I mean, we're not Seattle. Like we I mean, like we don't have like things being burned and like it. But I am I'm concerned about. I've never focused or thought more about the amount of time between election day and inauguration. And that that's the part, like, it's not the waking up on Wednesday. It's the waking up the following Wednesday. <laughs> Cause you're going to sleep for seven days. Well, I think we all are, but then that's, that's where we made our mistakes with Obama. Right. We were like, Oh, now we can sleep. <laughs> dummies <laughs> you know and so that's where like the aocs and the what's her name kiki this this gal that um railroaded the police um commissioners meeting oh yes yes um like that, that's where like <sighs> they're rising up and these voices i what was the, it was the cover of time right that talked about um just recently like look who's old enough well 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 look who's old enough to vote Who's old enough to vote? Um, Oh, my God. Suddenly my brain stopped working and I was going to say Sandy Hook, but it wasn't Sandy Hook. That was the elementary school. Um, Stone. Oh, uh, oh, Marjorie. The uh, uh, Parkland. Um, I think all I mean, I think they've kind of joined forces. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But I still think I still think that's the saddest part about um, Sandy Hook, them being so young. They're still not old enough to vote. They were so young. Right. I think they are old enough. I think Emma Gonzalez, I think she's old enough to vote. Stop. Yes. Am I getting that? I'm 42. What does that mean? It means that you're young and you have the whole world ahead of you. You're young. 42 is young. You're just coming into your prime. I am. I am. I'm just getting started, Dave Feldman. I ran for office this year and I learned a lot. And um, I think that that's going to really help me moving forward with anything that I do. Um, But with um, trying to smash the patriarchy, I'm going to start tomorrow in my Handmaid's Tale cape and bonnet and I'm going to cast my vote. Um, I am voting for Biden. Um, Look at this. Look at this. 81,457 new cases of COVID in America yesterday. The 14-day rolling average shows a 41% increase in new cases of COVID. Yeah. With no we had more than 100 new cases in my community um, in the last day. And, and everything is like just. And that's it's frustrating that people are referring to different waves because we're still in the same wave. We're yeah. still in the first wave. This is our third peak. 
Um, but we never, we never allowed that wave to fully crash and lap up on the sand and retreat before it swelled again for the second. So we're in the third peak of the first wave. And, and we're when, not even peaked yet. We're peaking. Right. And I wish we were peaking because when peaking has it under control, that would have worked if we had changed. It, it wasn't Beijing. When I was a kid, we used to call it peaking. That joke yeah, would have worked. I had a math teacher that said something about that we we weren't taking the test in China. There's no peaking. Right. Yeah. Somebody should go there. No patient. All right. Kelly Kelly Stone is a sex educator, baby mama. We'll talk next week if there's still a country. Yo, solidarity. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for doing this. And plug <laughs> your last plug your last Oh. Uh, tomorrow, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So it's 9 p.m. Eastern and um, 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, which because we have a guest on from LA, Maggie May is going to be our comedian. Um, she's amazing. Uh, and we also have a drag performer, Jinx the Minx. Um, but so 8, 8 PM is when the show starts on zoom. It's contained on zoom and it's not live streamed anywhere. Um, and so hopefully, uh, Dan Frankenberger can drop that link in here for the chat for, for your, your folks. Um, but that's, it's our finale. It's all folks. Kathy Chang, um, running for the Texas uh, Supreme court as well as Stacey Williams running for the Texas Supreme Court will also be on my show as candidates and I've invited many of the fan favorites to drop by so we'll just see who shows up tomorrow it's going to be a party okay good thank you Kelly <laughs> thank you all right it's a great show today we're going to wrap it up with Dan Frankenberger are you still here Dan in the newsroom well while we're waiting for Dan I don't know if he's still here or not, but I want to plug this Saturday night. We're doing COVID Town Square number five this Saturday, 930. While social distancing from the trick-or-treaters that we normally would have just turned the lights off for and pretended we weren't home, we have a show to entertain and inform you with all the latest on the science behind COVID. This show will be a Halloween special and we want to celebrate with you. Tickets for this show will be available for as low as $6.66. We have lowered the, the, the ticket price to $6.66. So please, uh, there are higher donation levels. There are available. But for $6.66, we want to open up COVID Town Squares to more people. And uh, I know that $6.66 sense is a lot of money for some people, but you'll get to spend about three hours with immunobiologist Henry Huckamaki and the irritable immunologist. All proceeds go towards Henry Huckamaki's education and research. And we have several tiers that you can find out about. They're really funny. You can get the OG ticket at $15 when return for paying $15, I will send you a postcard. The $30 tier, the super generous tier, you'll get the postcard plus a funny credit at the end of COVID Town Squares, which is really funny. And we'll put that up on YouTube. At $50, you get the sausage party tier where you get the postcard, the credit, 
and you get to attend our next rehearsal for the COVID Town Squares. It's called the Sausage Party because you get to see not only how the sausage is made, you get to also see how it's eaten, digested, excreted, and how the fecal plumes are neutralized. We also have a $100 tier in addition to everything from the lower tiers. If you choose the Say and Spray It ticket, you get your very own bottle of Plumex Fecal Plume Neutralizer, and Henry will make a phone call to an anti-masker on your behalf and use something called science to convince that anti-masker to wear a mask. Or you can choose the Churds and the Bees ticket where you get the Plumex, and Henry will save you the awkwardness of giving the talk to a person of your choice. If you have a teenage son or daughter that you feel should know where babies come from or where they don't come from, or you might have an anti-science uncle who needs a lesson about the birds and the bees, Henry will give them a call and set the record straight. And lastly, our top tier is Henry Shank, where in addition to all of the perks we've already discussed, you'll also get a handcrafted finished-style knife made by none other than Henry Huckamacki himself. Let's make this Halloween special a success. Come, invite friends, invite your enemies, and make sure to spread the ticket information far and wide. Let's make this show go viral. And I plan on doing benefits on Saturday night. This is one of them. So we've lowered the price to $6.66 for Halloween. Please, I don't ask you for much. Come out and support this important cause. And I want to thank everybody. I don't know if Dan in the newsroom is here. I guess not. But I want to thank all our guests for another great show. I want to thank Kelly Stone, sex educator, comedian, and baby mama. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast. Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Professor Harvey J.K., he is the author of FDR and Democracy. Burt Ross, read him over at the Malibu Times. Professor Marianne Cummings, Parks Commissioner over at Aurora, Illinois. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, check out the Reverend Barry W. Lynn's website, barrywlynn.com. And I understand now he does church services every Sunday starting at 11 a.m. Eastern, very civilized. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, psychiatrist, and his son, Ethan. Of course, Henry Huckamacki and Grace Jackson. We're going to have Grace back real soon. Professor Ben Burgess, his column is over at Jacobin, and you can also listen to his podcast, which is called Give Them an Argument. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, animal behaviorist and author of Raised by Animals. Martha Previtt, it's Senator Susan Collins today. And Jim Earl wrote it, and he was going to be on the show, but something happened. I don't know what happened. All right, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you would like to join the Zoom room where you get to annoy my guests and me and ask questions and take part in our polls, 
please go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend live taping menu, and I'll send you an invitation. Also, office hours every Friday at 9 p.m. That's where the listeners talk and I listen. We have a Discord channel uh, or Discord server broken down into several groups. Andy Brown set that up for us, and it's growing. You have to come to office hours because we don't want to be, we don't want to ruin a special thing. So we will meet you at office hours and then we'll show you how to get into the discord. And uh, that's growing and it's filled with activists and educators and interesting people. That is it, I believe. Remember to vote, please. You have to vote. You do. And you have to vote for Joe Biden. That's the important thing. Thank you very much. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm going to say goodbye to everybody on YouTube and the people who are listening to this as a podcast. And we'll continue the conversation in the Zoom room. It's time right now. For the David Feldman Show He's talking politics and comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty from way back He's a union man with an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. I just remembered. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. I have one final opportunity to play this song from the COVID players. This is performed by Lance Jeffries and Magnus and Kathleen Ash and Benji wrote this. So this is the last time I get to play this. It's going to take another year for me to play this again. Then I'll say goodbye to everybody. This is from the COVID COVID players. Now here's a little story that you all should know from the midnight hour at the Feldman Show. 
As Harvey K and David continued to talk, Benji reached down into his crusty sock. With a lighter from his pocket and some crumpled tin foil, he made a big smell that caused all to recoil. His eyes got glassy and he started to blink. Shut up, everybody. I'm trying to think. He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. As the music and the party started to boom. In came all the creatures from the spooky chat room. Frankie C, Dan the Man, and Henry were there. While the Reverend Barry Lynn stood by in prayer. Jim Earl and Martha Previtt did their thing. As the COVID players all began to sing. Dracula rose from his coffin and then he said. Come on everybody, let's wake the dead. Magnus. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. Whoa. As the evening wound down and people went for the door. They Whoa. couldn't help but notice Benji there on the floor. Whoa. As they all stood laughing and started to mock. Whoa. Benji woke up and shouted. Where's my sock? He did some hash. He did some monster hash. Some monster hash. From his graveyard stash. He did some hash. And then he got smashed. That monster hash. He did some monster hash. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you, Lance Jeffries. Thank you, COVID players. Thank you, Magnus, for that. Thank you, Benji. I'm going to say goodbye to everybody on YouTube and the people listening to this as a podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Be well.